If the person does not seem willing to love and serve God, or isn't interested in discussing the spiritual path, it is a painful cross for me to deal with them. Ever since then, I have had the courage to give everything up to God. It seems to me now that all he ever wanted was my utter transformation. Commands were pointless. My spiritual director saw how attached I was to certain friendships, but he did not dare say that I should give them up. He had to wait until the Lord did it for me. I couldn't give them up on my own either. I had tried, and the distress it caused me was so severe, especially in light of how innocent and good these relationships were, that I abandoned the effort. But now, the Beloved himself set me free and gave me the strength to do his work. I told my spiritual director what had happened, and I let everything go, just as I had been told. It did my guides a lot of good to witness the determination in me. May God be forever blessed. In an instant, he gave me the freedom that I could never attain through all my hard work over so many years. I had often jeopardized my health by trying to force myself to give up things I was not ready for. But since he, who is the all-powerful and true Lord of all, did it for me, I felt no pain. Chapter 25 Spiritual Voices At this juncture, it would be a good idea to explain what happens when the soul hears spiritual voices and how they make her feel. Ever since the Lord first granted me this favor, it has become a very common experience for me. Although we do not hear the words with our physical ears, they are so distinct that we understand them with absolute clarity. In fact, we could not resist hearing and understanding them, even if we tried with all our might to shut them out. Here on earth, if we do not want to listen to something, we can stick our fingers in our ears or focus our attention on something else, so that even if we hear the words, we do not understand them. But when God speaks directly to the soul, she has no choice. Even if I wanted to avoid what God has to say, He makes me listen to Him. And He sharpens my mind so that I clearly understand what He wants me to understand. It doesn't matter whether I'm trying to understand or not. God wants us to realize that He is all-powerful. God is our Supreme Lord. I have a lot of experience with this matter because I struggled for two years to resist these experiences and I couldn't do it. I still try sometimes and I still can't do it. There is a danger of becoming deluded here. Only a very experienced spiritual practitioner is safe from delusions. In general, there are three different sources of spiritual voices. The spirit of God, the spirit of evil, and our own minds. Then there is another kind of voice, which is the spirit speaking to itself. I'm not sure how this last experience works, but it occurs to me today that it would be possible. I have a great deal of experience with the voices that come from God. Many of the things he said to me came true after two or three years. So far, nothing I have heard has turned out to be a lie. Sometimes, when a person approaches God with great love and lays a certain request at his feet, 
the intensity of her feeling might lead her to imagine that she hears his response to her prayer. And it is quite possible that she is correct. But anyone who has experienced genuine spiritual voices will easily be able to hear the difference between words that come from her own mind and those that come from the Spirit of God. If the message is something the intellect has fabricated, no matter how subtle it may be, an experienced person will know that the mind is composing and conveying it. The main difference is that in one case the words are contrived, and in the other they are simply heard. The intellect will recognize that it's not really listening because it's too busy making things up. The words it puts together sound muffled and vague. They do not carry the clarity and authority of a true spiritual voice. In this case, we have just as much power to shift our attention away from the content of our own minds as we do to keep quiet when we no longer want to hear the sound of ourselves talking. When the words come from God, it is impossible to divert our attention. A more obvious sign that the voice is coming from our own minds is that the words have no lasting effect. The voices that come from God are both words and works. What I mean is that even if the words are critical rather than devotional, they cultivate the soul and make her grow. They bless her and give her light. They move the soul to a place of deep tenderness and quietude. If the soul has been suffering from agitation and aridity, it feels like God is liberating her from all her worries with a wave of his hand. He seems to be proving to her that he is all-powerful and that his words are works. It seems to me that the difference between a true spiritual voice and an intellectual one is no more and no less than the difference between listening and speaking. When I am talking, I am arranging what I'm going to say in my mind. But when someone else is talking to me, all I have to do is listen without any effort. With an intellectual voice, we can't be sure if the words were really spoken. We hear them the way someone who is half asleep will hear the conversation in a room where she is lying down. When the voice comes from God, it is so clear that we don't miss a single syllable. We often hear true spiritual voices when our souls and our minds are so agitated and distracted that we couldn't succeed in stringing together a coherent sentence if we tried. Yet here are these elaborate discourses fully prepared and handed to us, speeches we could not possibly have written even in our clearest state of consciousness. At the sound of the first word, the soul is utterly transformed. How could the soul suddenly understand things that have never even crossed her mind before, especially when she is enraptured? How could she apprehend these things when the faculties are suspended and the imagination is dazed? I'd like to make something clear. The soul does not see visions or hear spiritual voices when she is actually in the midst of a rapture. During rapture, all the faculties are completely lost, and in my opinion, we can't see or hear or even understand a thing. The soul is completely under the power of another. The beloved gives her no freedom at all. This state of total absorption doesn't last long, however. It is after the intensity of the rapture has passed, but while the soul is still transported, that the voices come.
even though the faculties are starting to come back, they are barely functional. They certainly aren't capable of putting sentences together. There are so many ways to tell the difference between a voice that comes from God and one conjured up by our own intellect that we have no reason to be fooled more than once. I mean, if a soul is experienced and vigilant, she will easily be able to distinguish between them. Not only do the voices that come from the intellect fail to produce any lasting effects, but the discerning soul has trouble believing them. They sound like nonsense to her. She doesn't take them any more seriously than she would take the ravings of a lunatic. When the voices come from God, on the other hand, they have lasting effects, whether the soul consciously acquiesces to them or not. When we hear a true spiritual voice, we experience it as though we were listening to the teachings of a very holy person or a great sage who would never lie to us. The voice bears absolute authority. This analogy is still inadequate, for the words carry such mystery that even if we do not know who is speaking them, we tremble if they are words of reproach and we melt if they are words of love. The sentences are so complex and are spoken so quickly that we never would have had time to compose them ourselves. There's no reason for me to dwell on this any longer. Suffice it to say that an experienced person is not likely to be deceived unless she wants to be deceived. It is impossible to doubt a spiritual voice when it is happening. It is only afterward that I have sometimes wondered if I made it up. But then later I discovered that what I heard has turned out to be true. The Lord imprints the words on our memory so that we cannot forget what He said. However, the voices that come from our own minds are like the first stirrings of a thought. They pass before they are fully formed. A divine voice may fade over a long period of time, but never so completely that we lose the substance of what we heard. When the voice conveys a particular teaching or bestows a favor, we may not retain the details. But if it takes the form of prophecy, in my opinion, it is impossible to forget. At least this is the case for me, and I have a terrible memory. It would be extremely wicked for someone to claim that she has heard a divine voice when she has not. But it would be impossible for the soul not to realize whether a voice is an artifact of her own mind and does not originate from the Spirit of God. Otherwise, she might spend her whole life laboring under the illusion that she knows something that she does not. How could she? Either a soul wants to understand, or she doesn't. Say the soul tries to push away what she's hearing because it scares her. Or maybe she has convinced herself that silent prayer is the only valid spiritual practice, so she rejects all language and all concepts. Then how could the intellect possibly have the freedom to make up these sacred speeches? Such things take more time than the soul has allowed herself. The voices that come from God instruct us in a flash. We instantaneously realize things that would take us a month to put into words. The intellect and the soul herself are amazed at what they understand. This is the way it is. Anyone who has experienced it will know what I am saying is literally true. 
I praise God for giving me the ability to describe it this way. I'll just wrap this up by saying that I think we can create intellectual voices whenever we want. Every time we sit in prayer, we might talk ourselves into believing that we are hearing the words of God. But we cannot make God speak to us. Sometimes I spend many days hoping to hear the voice of God, and nothing comes. Then at other times, when I don't want to hear a spiritual voice, I am suddenly given direct knowledge of divine things. It seems to me that someone who has not had this experience might try to mislead others into thinking that he understands something that he could not possibly understand. The big clue that it is not a true spiritual voice is that, if pressed, the person will report that he heard it with his physical ears. I never knew there was any other way to hear things either, until I experienced it myself. And hearing in this other way has created severe trials for me. When the voices come from the spirit of evil, not only do they fail to create any positive results, but they leave negative effects in their wake. I have only experienced these voices two or three times, and on each occasion God gave me ample warning ahead of time. Not only do these diabolical voices dry out the soul, but they also leave her terribly disquieted. I have experienced aridity and disquiet many times after the Lord has given me severe temptations and spiritual trials. This kind of inner turmoil still plagues me on a regular basis, but I understand where it comes from. The agitation that accompanies a voice from the spirit of evil is different. The soul intuitively resists it. She feels troubled and upset without knowing why. But I'll tell you why. It's because what the spirit of evil says to her is bad, not good. I wonder if one spirit doesn't detect the presence of the other. The sense of consolation and delight the spirit of evil gives to the soul is very different from what she receives from the voice of God. But if someone had not experienced an authentic spiritual voice, she might easily be deluded by these false messages. The consolations that come from God are deeply pleasurable. They are gentle and refreshing, simultaneously intense and quiet. Little bursts of religious emotion, sometimes accompanied by tears, are evidence of a good beginning, but they do not constitute true devotion. At the first mild breeze of persecution, these blessings drop their tiny blossoms. They don't do much to help the soul distinguish between the effects of a good spirit and a bad one. So it's important to stay conscious. Beginners on the spiritual path are easily deceived when they start having visions and revelations. Personally, I did not experience visions and voices until God, in His great goodness, had already brought me to the prayer of union, except, that is, for the time I saw Christ many years ago. Oh, if only His Majesty had allowed me to understand then, as I understand now, that this was a true vision. It would have done me so much good. When visions and revelations come from the spirit of evil, they do not leave tender effects in the soul. Instead, she feels frightened and agitated afterward. I am absolutely certain that the spirit of evil could never deceive a soul who really questions herself.
Nor would God allow a soul who is fortified in the faith, a soul who would suffer a thousand deaths for one of its sacred teachings, to be deluded by false phenomena. With this love of the faith, a living faith that God himself pours into the soul, she strives to act in harmony with the doctrines of the Church. Grounded in her commitment, she checks her experiences and believes with this person and that person. Even if the heavens themselves were to open to her, the soul would not be tempted to deviate in the slightest degree from what the Church holds to be sacred. Say the soul sometimes wavers in her thoughts about the faith. Say she hears a voice or sees a vision that conflicts with it in some way. Then she should not consider the revelation safe. The same would be true if the soul were to find herself saying, If God is telling me this, it must be true, just as what he said to the saints was true. I don't mean that the soul actually believes this, but this is the way the spirit of evil first tries to tempt the soul. Even to linger over these thoughts for more than a moment is very risky. But I really feel that if the soul is strong in the faith, she will not be tempted by this kind of pride. The same Lord who grants the soul these divine gifts gives her the power to resist delusions. Fortified in this way, the soul is inclined to defend even the most minor teaching of the Church. I mean, if a soul is not strong in the faith and she has a vision that does not strengthen it, she should not trust the revelation. She may not immediately notice the harmful effects, but they accumulate over time. Here's what I see and know through experience. The proof that a spiritual voice has a divine origin is that it conforms to Holy Scripture. Even if I think that the experience comes from the Spirit of God, the slightest deviation from Scripture would assure me that the spirit of evil is its true source. In such cases, there is no need to go searching for signs or to wonder what spirit is responsible for the revelation. The discrepancy is the only sign I need to convince me that it comes from the spirit of evil. If the whole world were to conspire to persuade me that it comes from the spirit of God, I would not believe it. Here's another sign. When we hear voices that come from the spirit of evil, all blessings seem to run away and hide. This leaves the soul feeling restless and touchy. She gleans nothing but negative effects from the experience. Even though she may think she is inspired to do good things, her desires quickly wither. These false voices give the soul false humility. What she considers humble is only anxious and confused. I think anyone who has heard the voice of the Good Spirit will understand this distinction. Still. The devil's tricks can be subtle. The best way to protect yourself is to question each experience and seek wise counsel. Make sure you have a spiritual director who is learned. Hide nothing from him. No harm can come to you in this way. Well, I have to amend that statement. Quite a bit of harm has come to me because of the excessive fears of certain men. At one time, a group of men I deeply trusted got together and had a long discussion about me in hopes of coming up with a remedy for my soul. I had good reason to trust these men. They loved me and only wanted the best for me. They were concerned that I might be deceived by the devil. 
When I was not in prayer, I shared their fears. But as soon as I prayed, God always granted me some favor and reassured me. At first, I only had direct contact with one of the men, but after he gave me permission to contact the others, I spoke to all of them. I think there were five or six of them. They were all faithful servants of God. We have unanimously concluded that your experiences came from the devil, my confessor reported. We decided that it was not good for you to receive communion so often and that you should stop spending so much time alone. I was terrified, and my heart trouble only made matters worse. I didn't dare be by myself in a room during the day in case I slipped into an ecstasy or started hearing voices. All these men were convinced that my experiences came from the spirit of evil when I cannot believe this myself, and I became deeply conflicted. I was afraid that my inability to agree with them was the result of a sinful lack of humility on my part. Look at who they were. They all led incomparably better lives than mine. And they were learned men besides. How could I not believe them? I tried to force myself to agree with their conclusions. I focused my thoughts on my wretched life and decided that because of this, what they were saying about me must be true. In deep distress, I walked out of the church and into an oratory. I had not received communion for many days, and I had been avoiding solitude, both of which were major sources of comfort for me. I had no one to talk to. Everyone was against me. Whenever I tried to share my experiences with them, it seemed like they were ridiculing me, implying that I was making it all up. Some people warned my confessor to watch out for me. Others insisted that the voices I was hearing came from the devil. Only my confessor consoled me. Although he took their side, I found out later that he did that just to test me. My confessor had told me that even if my experiences came from Satan, he couldn't hurt me as long as I did nothing to offend God. He said I should pray earnestly, and if the voices were truly diabolical, God would take them away. Many people started praying for me, my confessor, his brothers, and other servants of God who knew of my troubles. I joined my prayers with theirs. For nearly two years, we spent a large portion of our prayer time beseeching His Majesty to lead me by some other path. But when I reflected that the voices I had heard so often might come from the spirit of evil, I became inconsolable. Since I was no longer setting aside special hours for solitary prayer, the Lord took it upon Himself to bring me into a state of recollection in the middle of an ordinary conversation. Then He would say whatever He pleased, and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Even though I did not want to listen, I had to. I was terribly alone. There was no one I could confide in, no one to support me. I could not pray out loud, I could not read. I was confounded by unrelenting strife and in constant fear that the spirit of evil was going to deceive me. I was totally agitated and thoroughly exhausted. I didn't know what to do with myself. I have experienced intense distress many times in my life, but never as extreme as this. I would burn with this pain for four or five hours at a time. 
there was no solace for me from heaven or from earth. The Lord left me to suffer and to fear a thousand invisible dangers. Oh, my Lord, you are a true friend. How powerful you are. You can do everything it is in your will to do, and as long as we never stop loving, you never stop willing. All things praise you, Lord of the universe. Oh, who will be the voice to cry out for you, proclaiming throughout the world how faithful you are to your friends? All things pass away. You, Lord of all, endure forever. The suffering you allow those who love you to endure is minuscule. You treat us so tenderly, Lord, so delicately and delightfully. If only none of us would ever pause for a moment to love anyone but you. It seems, Lord, that you vigorously challenge the one who loves you so that in the depths of his trial he will discover the depths of your love for him. Oh, my God! If only I had the intelligence, the education, and an entirely new language to express your wonders as my soul understands them. Words fail me, my Lord. Everything fails me. But as long as you do not abandon me, I will not fail you. Let all learned men rise up against me. Let all created things persecute me. Let all the spirits of evil torment me. Do not fail me, Lord. I have already tasted the blessings and refuge you give to those who trust in you alone. As I sat in the oratory, weary to my core, I suddenly heard a voice say, Have no fear, my daughter, for I am, and I will never leave you. Have no fear. Although I had not yet begun to have visions, these words alone were enough to lift my burden completely. Even if there had been a human being alive who could have soothed my soul, and there wasn't, it would have taken many hours, and still no one would ever have been able to persuade me to be at peace. And behold, in a single moment, this voice brought me calm, courage, strength, security, deep quietude, and radiant light. I watched my soul transform before my own eyes. I think at the time I would have denied to the whole world that I had heard the voice of God. Oh, what a good God! Oh, how good the Lord is and how powerful! He not only writes the prescription, but delivers the cure. His words are works. Oh, God, help me! Look how he bolsters our faith and intensifies our love. And so, as I had done so many times before, I pondered the day when Christ commanded the winds to be quiet during a storm at sea. Who is this, I asked myself, whose words all my faculties instantly obey, who pours out his light and banishes the densest darkness in a single moment, who melts this heart of stone, who gives the water of holy tears when it seemed like the drought would last forever? Who inspires these desires and bestows this courage? This made me wonder. What am I afraid of? What is this? All I want is to serve this Lord. I have no other goal than to please my beloved. It's not my own happiness I want or relief or any other benefit. The only blessing I seek 
is to do His will. In that moment, I felt so confident of this truth that it was effortless to affirm it. If this Lord is powerful, I reminded myself, as I see that He is and know that He is, and if evil spirits are His slaves, as I have no doubt that they are since this is an article of faith, and if I am a servant of this Master, then what harm can they do me? Why shouldn't this love give me the strength to battle all of hell? I picked up a cross, and it really did feel like God was infusing me with courage. Within a short time, I found myself so radically transformed that I would have been perfectly comfortable wrestling with demons. With that cross in my hand, I felt like I could easily vanquish any evil. Come on now, all of you, I said. I am a servant of the Lord, and I'd like to see what you can do to me. It became obvious to me that I was intimidating to the little devils because I grew very calm. All my fears drained away and never came back. I still encountered spirits of evil from time to time, but I wasn't afraid of them anymore. In fact, it seemed like they were afraid of me. The Lord of all gave me authority over them, and now I pay no more attention to them than I do to buzzing flies. They are such cowards that when someone doesn't care about them, they lose all their strength. The only times they have any power is when they see people giving in to their attacks, or when it is God's will to let them tempt His servant and put them through trials for their own good. May we always be in awe of the One who deserves our awe. And may we understand that sometimes one small transgression can cause more trouble than all the sins of hell. These demons frighten us because we set ourselves up to be frightened. We are overly attached to our reputations, possessions, and pleasures. When we love and desire what we should be rejecting, we are in conflict with our true selves. That's when the negative energies catch us and use our own weapons against us. Instead of taking up what we have to defend ourselves, we put our swords into the hands of our enemies and make them attack us. What a shame! But if we embrace the cross, reject everything but God, and devote ourselves to serving Him, the devil will avoid us like the plague. He is a friend of lies. He is the lie itself. He will have nothing to do with anyone who walks in truth. When he sees that a person's inner sight is darkening, he will rush in to put out the light altogether. If he sees that a person has put her trust in worldly things as a child puts her trust in toys, he will treat that person like a child and attack her over and over again. May it please God that I not be so blind. May His Majesty help me find refuge in the true source of refuge. By true honor, may I know what honor is and delight by true delight. I thumb my nose at all the spirits of evil. They shall be afraid of me. I don't understand these fears. Why do we run around crying, the devil, the devil, when we could be saying, God, God, and make the devils tremble? We know perfectly well that the spirit of evil cannot move a muscle unless the Lord lets him. What is this? Without a doubt, I fear those who fear the devil more than I fear the devil himself.
He can't do anything to me. But these men, especially if they are confessors, can wreak terrible havoc. They tormented me so badly for so many years that I can't believe I was able to endure it. Blessed be the Lord, who truly helped me. Chapter 26 A Living Book One of the greatest gifts the Lord ever gave me was the courage to fight against the spirits of evil. The only thing the soul should ever be afraid of is offending God. Our Lord and King is all-powerful. There is nothing He cannot do. He rules over all created things. All we have to do is walk in truth, walk with a pure conscience, walk in the presence of His Majesty, and we will have nothing to fear. That's why I wanted to live in a state of perpetual awe. I did not want to risk for an instant offending the one who could annihilate us in an instant. If His Majesty is pleased with us, then anyone who is against us will end up clapping his hands to his head in despair. We can accept this truth at face value and move on, or we can inquire more deeply. Who is this soul who lives such an upright life that she pleases God completely and can rightfully conclude she has nothing to fear? Not my soul. My soul is wretched, worthless, and overflowing with a thousand miseries. But the ways of God are different than the ways of human beings. He understands our weaknesses. Through deep inner examination, the soul discovers that she truly loves God. Once a soul reaches an advanced state of prayer, love doesn't hide as it did in the beginning. It is driven by a powerful impulse and accompanied by such an intense yearning to see God that everything else wearies the soul and wears her out. I have already said this, and I will say it again. Anything other than God is a torment to the soul who is in love with Him. If she is not resting in Him, she is restless. This love does not come in disguise. It is completely revealed. There was a time when I was suffering from a continuous stream of criticism from the people of Avila and from the Carmelite order. I had countless opportunities to be grief-stricken. That was when the Lord said to me, Why are you afraid? Don't you know that I am all-powerful? I will fulfill my promises to you. And he has. This voice so thoroughly strengthened me that I felt I could embark on any new venture in service of the one I love, even if it caused me even more severe trials. I would gladly take on more suffering for his sake. This has happened to me more times than I can count. Sometimes he would scold me. Sometimes he still scolds me when I make mistakes. These divine criticisms are enough to dissolve my soul, but at least they motivate me to change because his majesty's words are both counsel and cure. At other times, especially when His Majesty wants to grant me some exceptional favor. He reminds me of my past transgressions. Then I feel as if it is Judgment Day, and I have to account for my whole life. These spiritual voices present the truth with such penetrating clarity that I have nowhere to hide. 
Sometimes the Lord warns me of imminent danger to myself or to others. He has often told me about things that were going to happen three or four years in the future. All these things have come true. I can give you concrete examples. There are so many signs showing that these spiritual voices come from God that we have no excuse for doubting them. The Lord has often told me the safest course to follow. Make sure my spiritual director is a learned man and then tell him everything. Explain the whole state of my soul to him and describe in detail the favors the Lord grants me. Obey him. When I don't take this path, I am not at peace. Of course, since women have no learning, how can we expect to have peace? I had a confessor who badly humiliated me. He seemed to purposely disquiet my mind by presenting me with constant challenges and utterly distressing me. Looking back, I think he is the spiritual director who did me the most good. Although I was very fond of him, I was often tempted to leave him because his methods interfered with my prayer. But every time I considered ending the relationship, I would hear a voice telling me not to. This divine rebuke upset me more than anything my confessor did. I had questions on the one hand and reproofs on the other. The process exhausted me, but I was so stubborn that my will would never bend unless it was worn out. The Lord once told me that if I wasn't resolved to suffer, then I was not truly submitting. He said that if I would simply fix my eyes on what He had suffered, everything would be easy. After it was determined that the spiritual voices I was hearing indeed came from the Good Spirit, a man who heard my confession advised me that it would be best if I kept quiet and didn't mention them to anyone. Such things should not be talked about, he said. This did not strike me as wrong. Whenever I told my spiritual director about the voices, I felt so abashed that my shame was worse than when I had serious sins to confess. I expected that my confessors would not believe me and would make fun of me, especially when the divine favors were dramatic. My resistance to talking about the voices was so intense because it felt like revealing these things was disrespectful to the wonders of God. So it was best to remain silent. But I came to understand that this confessor had advised me badly and that I should not keep anything from my spiritual director. There is great security in telling him everything and great danger in keeping secrets. Whenever the Lord told me to do something in prayer and my confessor told me something else, the Lord would speak again and tell me to obey him. Then he would change my confessor's mind so that he would agree with what the Lord had said. When the Inquisition banned many books written in Spanish, I was bereft. Reading was such a joy for me. The only sanctioned books were in Latin, which I could not understand. Then the Lord spoke to me. Don't be sad, he said, for I shall give you a living book. Since I had not yet experienced any visions, I couldn't understand why God would say this to me. A few days later, I understood this perfectly. The Lord gathered me in his presence, showed me his love by teaching me in so many ways, and gave me so much to think about that I have had almost no need for books ever since. His Majesty Himself has become 
the living book in which all truths are available. Blessed be such a book that indelibly imprints on our minds everything we need to understand and do. Who could possibly see Christ persecuted and covered with wounds without embracing, loving, and longing for those wounds? Who could witness the glory God gives those who serve Him without recognizing that anything we do and suffer is nothing in light of such a reward? Who could imagine the torment of those who are condemned to the fire without realizing that the trials of this life are sheer delights by comparison and appreciating how much she owes the Lord for so often freeing her from that place? With God's help, I will say more about these things later. For now, I'd like to get on with the account of my life. May it please the Lord that I have been clear in what I have said so far. I'm sure that anyone with experience will understand me and see that I have been successful. I wouldn't be surprised, however, if it all sounded like nonsense to someone without experience. Since I am the one telling the story, I wouldn't blame anyone who might dismiss it as nonsense. He would have a good excuse. May the Lord help me to do His will. Chapter 27 the Perils of Temperance It's time to return to the story of my life. Well, there I was, enduring terrible affliction. I had many people praying on my behalf, beseeching the Lord to lead me by a more secure path, since the one I was on, they told me, was dubious. The truth of the matter is that although I wanted to want to change, I couldn't truly bring myself to want it. This is because I could see how much my soul was flowering since the raptures and spiritual voices had begun, except, that is, for when I wilted under the criticism I received and the fears it instilled in me. I noticed that I was a completely different person than I had been before. How could I desire a different path than the one that had transformed me? So I placed myself in God's hands and trusted that He would carry out His will in me. He alone knew what was best for my soul. I saw that the road I was on led to heaven, and that I had been on my way to hell before. I tried with all my might to convince myself that the devil was deceiving me and to make myself desire another path. But I was powerless. I offered up all my actions, in case there might be a good deed among them, in service of this intention. I invoked my favorite saints to free me from the spirit of evil. I dedicated several novenas to the effort. I entrusted myself to Saint Illyrion and devoted myself to Saint Michael the Archangel. I begged many other saints to petition the Lord to show me the way. Maybe the Holy Ones of God would be able to obtain the truth from His Majesty and pass it along to me. This went on for two years. I prayed, they prayed. But no matter how much we all prayed for God either to lead me on some other path or to reveal the truth about the one I was on, the spiritual voices continued. At the end of two years, I had the following experience. It was the feast day of the glorious St. Peter and I was sitting in prayer when I saw Christ sitting next to me. Actually, to put it a better way, I was aware that Christ was beside me. 
I didn't see anything with my bodily eyes or even with the eyes of my soul. But I felt him there at my side. I realized that he was speaking to me. I had no idea that a vision like this was possible. And at first, I was very much afraid. All I could do was weep. With one word, however, Christ reassured me. He restored my customary calm. I felt quiet and blessed and fearless. This was not an imaginary vision. I knew that Jesus Christ was at my side, but I did not perceive his form. I simply felt him at my right side and recognized that he has always been there and always would be there, witnessing everything I did. Each time I drew my attention within, there he was. Unless I let myself become totally distracted, it was impossible to ignore that he was with me. I rushed to my confessor and anxiously told him everything. In what form did you see him? he asked me. I didn't see him, I answered. Then how did you know it was Christ? I don't know how, but I cannot not be aware that he is beside me. I saw him, I mean, I felt him, very clearly. My soul has been more easily and more deeply recollected ever since. In fact, the prayer of quiet is almost continuous now. It is in an exceedingly clear state. Besides, the effects are very different from what I used to experience. All I could do was offer metaphors and analogies to try and explain myself. But there is no adequate comparison for this vision. A very holy and spiritual man named Father Pedro del Alcantara told me that this vision is one of the most sublime we can receive and also the most difficult for the spirit of evil to interfere with. Other learned men have confirmed this. Women like me, who know very little, are incapable of describing this state. Maybe men of learning can explain it better. For instance, if I say, well, I do not see it with the eyes of the body, nor do I see it with the eyes of the soul, because it is not an imaginative vision, you will rightfully wonder how I can be more certain he is at my side than I would be if I actually saw him. You must not think of this experience as being like a blind person or someone in a dark room who cannot see the person next to him. It's a little bit like that, but not very much. In the case of blindness or darkness, the person perceives things through his other senses. He will hear the other person stir or speak. He can touch him. In this kind of vision, it is not dark, and there are no other senses operating. Yet the vision reveals knowledge to the soul that is more radiant than the clearest sunlight. I don't mean that you directly perceive the sun or its brightness. But there is light, even though you don't see light, and it lights up everything. It illuminates the mind so that the soul can enjoy the great blessings the vision brings with it. A sense of connectedness to God is not uncommon. Seasoned practitioners of silent prayer particularly if they have experienced the prayer of quiet and the prayer of union, sometimes find that as soon as they sit down with the intention to pray, the one they are praying to seems to be there listening. They become aware of feelings of tender love and faith and a deepening of their most cherished resolutions. This is a blessing from God, and anyone who experiences it should be grateful. It is a sublime prayer 
but it is not a vision. In the prayer of quiet and the prayer of union, His Majesty makes Himself known through the effects He leaves in the soul. But this vision I'm talking about is different. The soul sees very clearly that Jesus Christ, Son of the Virgin, is present. In the other states of prayer, the soul feels divine influences. In this vision, however, she not only experienced these holy feelings, but she knows that the most sacred humanity has become her companion and that he wants to grant her favors. Who said it was Jesus Christ? The confessor asked me next. He told me himself, I answered, many times. Before Christ told me who he was, he impressed himself so firmly into my consciousness that I knew he was there, even though I didn't see him. And before he did that, he told me he was coming. If a person I had never met, but only heard of, came to speak to me while I was in a dark room or blind and told me who he was, I would probably believe him. But I wouldn't be able to assert the fact with as much confidence as I would if I had seen him with my own eyes. With this vision, without being able to see him, I could confidently claim that Christ was with me. He carves such deep knowledge into the soul that I could no more doubt it than if I had seen the Lord with my own eyes, even less. Sometimes our eyes play tricks on us, and we suspect that we might have imagined what we saw. In a vision like this, we might experience a flicker of skepticism, but it is quickly replaced by unshakable certitude. It's the same kind of knowing the soul has when God speaks to her without words. He uses the language of heaven, and it's difficult to translate to mortals. No matter how much we may want to understand, we won't really get it until the Lord teaches it to us through experience. He places what He wants the soul to know deep inside her, without images or words. It is worth deeply pondering the manner in which God gives the soul a clear understanding of His desires and truths and mysteries. God often explains the visions He gives to me in this ineffable way. There are a number of reasons why I think that the spirit of evil is least able to interfere in an experience of this nature. If these reasons turn out to be bad ones, then I must be mistaken about the whole thing. The kind of vision that comes without seeing and the kind of language that comes without hearing are so spiritual that the faculties of sense and reason are completely quieted. The spirit of evil has nothing to react against. Sometimes the faculties are momentarily suspended, but usually, I think, they are fully engaged. These visions and voices do not generally occur in the midst of contemplation. In fact, they almost never do. Yet, when they happen, I don't believe we have anything to do with it. It all seems to be the work of the Lord. It's as if food had been put into our stomachs without our eating it or even knowing how it got there. We know very well that it is there, but we have no idea what kind of food it is or how it entered our bodies. In the case of this sublime prayer, the soul doesn't know how it got there. She doesn't see anything or feel anything. She didn't even want anything. The intellect never knew that such a thing was possible. In the kind of spiritual voices I was talking about before, God brings awareness of the message to our minds whether we want to hear it or not.
we grasp exactly what is being said. It's as if the soul hears with other ears, and God makes her listen. She cannot be distracted. It's like this. Someone speaks in a loud voice to a person with good hearing. And the listener does not stop up his ears. He may not be interested in what he's hearing, but he participates by paying attention so that he will understand it. In the kind of spiritual voice I am talking about now, the soul does not play any part. She is relieved of even the minor responsibility of listening. She finds everything already prepared and eaten for her. She has nothing to do but savor it. She is like a person who never bothered to learn how to read or engage in the work of learning, and yet finds that she possesses all knowledge within herself. She has no idea how the knowledge got there. She never studied. She doesn't even know her ABCs. This feels to me like an apt metaphor for this heavenly gift. The soul sees that she has become wise in an instant. Such profound secrets as the mystery of the three divine persons are so clearly understood that the soul would boldly defend these wondrous truths against the arguments of any theologian on earth. She is utterly amazed. She sees that one favor from God is enough to change her completely. A single one of his blessings frees her from attachment to things and replaces it with love for the one who carves out the vessel of the soul so that she can receive such grace. She does nothing of her own volition to deserve this. She is filled with love for the friend who treats her with such sublime, loving kindness that she could never describe it in words. Some of God's favors are so wonderful that people may become suspicious when they see them being showered on a person who has done nothing to merit them. Someone who does not possess a living faith will be incapable of believing in them. So unless my superiors command me to elaborate on them, I intend to say as little as possible about the blessings God has bestowed on me. The only favors I will dwell on are certain visions that might do others some good, or at least prevent souls from being shocked and doubting the validity of their own experience when such things happen to them. If I can help people by explaining the path and the way that the Lord has led me, I will be fulfilling my obligations in writing this account. Back to our discussion of the special kind of understanding the Lord instills in the soul. It seems to me that he wants to convey some knowledge of what happens in heaven. I never knew this until God in his goodness allowed me to see it when he showed himself to me in a rapture. Just as in heaven souls understand one another without language, so it is in this kind of vision. God and the soul understand each other perfectly because this is his majesty's will. No other device is required for these two friends to manifest their love. Two people on this earth who love each other deeply and understand one another well do not require signs or techniques. The mere exchange of a glance is enough to communicate everything that matters. That must be the kind of love unfolding between the soul and her beloved in this kind of vision. Without the soul knowing how, the two lovers gaze directly at one another's face. It reminds me of the way the bridegroom speaks to the bride in the Song of Songs. 
At least I think that's where I have heard about this kind of seeing. Oh, how wondrous is God's loving kindness! He allows me to gaze upon Him with eyes as impure as the eyes of my soul. May this vision teach us, beloved, no longer to look at vile things. Let nothing other than you ever satisfy us again. Oh, how ungrateful mortals can be! What extremes you go to on our behalf, O oh Lord! I know from experience that what I'm saying is true. I know that whatever I say about you is only a tiny fraction of what you do for the soul you transport to such exalted states. Oh, you souls who have begun to practice prayer and have truth faith in your hearts, what good things can you still seek in this life that could compare with the least of these divine blessings? How, indeed, could any worldly pleasure measure up to the treasures of eternity? Reflect on this. God gives himself wholly to anyone who gives up everything for him. He loves everyone with no exceptions. I am living proof that God leaves no one out. Look how wretched I was. And look at the heights to which he has lifted me. Please note that this account is the abridged version of what has actually happened to me. I am telling you just enough to place the visions and other blessings God gives the soul into a meaningful context. I could never describe how the soul actually feels when the Beloved gives her knowledge of his secrets and wonders. This joy surpasses all understanding. It so far transcends any pleasure we experience here on earth that once we have tasted it, we can't help but disdain mundane things. All the sweetest earthly delights put together resemble a pile of garbage. I would find it unbearable even to attempt to compare these two kinds of happiness. Even if we were offered worldly pleasure without end, it would not come close to a single drop from the vast, overflowing river God has prepared for us. It's a shame, and I am certainly ashamed. If it were possible to be embarrassed in heaven, my embarrassment would be most acute there. Why do we crave all these blessings and delights and eternal glory at the expense of the good Jesus? Since we do not help him carry his cross with the Cyrenian, shall we not at least weep with the daughters of Jerusalem? How can we enjoy all the pleasures and distractions of this life when we know what it cost him in blood? It's impossible. Do we really believe that our petty aspirations for honor could possibly repay him for the persecution he endured, for the suffering he took on to allow us to prevail forever? Such a path goes nowhere. It's the wrong, wrong road. We will never arrive anywhere if we take it. You should shout these truths from the rooftops. God has taken the freedom to proclaim them away from me. I wish I could broadcast these teachings with every breath. As it is, I have been so slow in hearing and understanding God that it is embarrassing even to mention these things. You'll see what I mean. I'd rather remain silent. Instead, I will simply share what comes to my mind from time to time. May it please the Lord to bring me to the place where I might rejoice in the blessings I am writing about. What? 
unexpected glory the blessed ones will enjoy. What happiness they will feel when they discover that in the end, finally and at last, they held nothing back from God. According to their strength and state, they did everything they possibly could for Him. The more they had, the more they gave. He who has rejected all riches for Christ will find himself abundantly wealthy. He who has not sought honor for himself but instead has cultivated humility will find himself deeply honored. He who was thrilled to be considered crazy, since that's what they call wisdom herself, will find himself exceedingly wise. How few holy madmen are alive today! Our sins preclude this blessed madness. Such fools for God seem to be extinct. Where are the ones who would risk everything and perform heroic feats for love of Christ? O oh world, O oh world! How much of your honor is won by the small handful of those who truly know you? We think we serve God better by being wise and discreet. Maybe so, but I doubt it. We jump to the conclusion that we are failing to set a good example unless we act with somber dignity and carry out our duties with cool authority. We think it's weird if a monk wears old, patched robes, and we fear a scandal if a nun slips into ecstatic states. That's the way the world is today. We have forgotten the perfect love and the sublime raptures the saints experienced. In these troubled times we live in, I think this sober mentality causes far more harm than the discomfort created by spiritual teachers who counsel us to reject the things of the world and back up these teachings with action. The Lord converts such sacrifices into great blessings. If some people are scandalized by holy foolishness, it brings other people to their senses. Now more than ever before, we need living examples of what Christ and His apostles suffered for love. What a great example of a Christ-like life God has recently taken from us in the form of the blessed Pedro de Alcantara. The world is not yet ready to bear so much perfection. They say that times are changing and that our health is weaker than it used to be. This holy man lived in the present age yet he carried the expansive spirit of the old days. He thoroughly trampled this world underfoot. Maybe there are not many people who are capable of performing such radical austerities as Father Pedro, but there are many ways to practice detachment. When the Lord detects sufficient courage in us, He teaches us the right way. And what exquisite courage God gave to this great saint I'm talking about. As we all know, Father Pedro performed rigorous penances for 47 years. I'd like to say something about his practices because I know it's all true. He told the Holy Maria Daza and me about these things because he hid nothing from us. The reason Father Pedro confided in me was because he loved me so much. As I have said before and will say again, the Lord desired to forge such love between this holy man and myself so that Father Pedro would always come when I needed him most to encourage me and defend me. I think that Father Pedro told me that for 40 years he slept only an hour and a half each night, and that at the beginning, 
conquering sleep was his most severe trial. He practiced staying awake by always standing or being on his knees. When he did sleep, he did so sitting up, with his head propped against a piece of wood he had nailed to the wall. It is well known that he could not have stretched out even if he had wanted to. His cell was only four and a half feet long. No matter how hot the sun or how rainy the weather was during all those years, Father Pedro never pulled up his hood or put on sandals. The only clothing he had was a coarse serge robe that he wore tight against his body with a short cloak made of the same material. He told me that he came up with a technique for fooling his body into thinking it was warm enough. When the weather was very cold, he would take off the cloak and leave the door and the small window of his cell open for a few minutes. Then he would close them and put his cloak back on. The contrast made him feel warm again. He often ate only every three days. When I expressed my surprise, he said that these things were easy for anyone once you got used to them. One of his companions told me that Father Pedro once went without food for eight days. He must have remained in a state of prayer the whole time. Father Pedro was known for his frequent transports of ecstatic love for God, one of which I witnessed personally. During his youth, Father Pedro engaged in extremes of poverty and renunciation. He told me he lived in a monastery for three years, and the only way he recognized any of the other monks was by the sound of their voices because he never raised his eyes. He had no idea where anything was in the house. When he needed to go somewhere, he just followed the other brother's feet. He used the same method when he traveled. For many years, he never looked at a woman. By the time I met Father Pedro, he said it did not matter whether he looked or did not look. All was one to him. But he was very old by this time. He was so frail that he resembled the knotted roots of a tree. Yet, with all his holiness, he was very amiable. Unless someone asked him a direct question, he did not say much. But he had a very lively mind, and he was delightful to talk to. There are so many more things I could say about this man, but I'm afraid that you will ask me what all this has to do with anything. I will conclude by saying that Father Pedro ended his life as he lived it, teaching and enlightening his followers. When he saw that he was dying, he recited this psalm. I rejoiced when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Then he fell to his knees and died. After Father Pedro's death, the Lord was pleased for him to guide me even more effectively than he had during his life. Father Pedro's teachings continue to show me the way. I have often seen him in radiant glory. The first time he appeared to me, he told me that the penance that earned him this glory was a blessed thing. A year before he died, when I was traveling many miles away from here, he appeared before me. I knew that his death was near and told him so. Then, as he was dying, he came to me and told me that he was going to his rest. I did not believe it, but mentioned it to a few people. A week later, the news came that Father Pedro had died. Or to put it a better way, he had begun to live forever.
Look how a life of harsh austerities ended in such great glory. I think he comforts me more now than when he was still on this earth. The Lord once told me that he would grant me anything I asked him in Father Pedro's name. And many of the prayers I have offered up in his name have been fulfilled. May the Lord be forever blessed. Amen. I certainly have gone on and on, haven't I? May what I have said serve to inspire you to let go of the things of this world. As if you did not already know about this and weren't already determined to abandon all attachment and hadn't, in fact, already begun to, put this renunciation into practice. I see such spiritual decline in this world, that even if this writing accomplishes nothing more than tiring out the hand that wields the pen, I find it consoling. Everything I am saying is directed against myself. May the Lord forgive me for offending him in this and any other matter. And may you pardon me too. I do not mean to weary you. It's as if I were asking you to do penance for my sins by making you read all this. Chapter 28 His Hands Let's get back to our subject. I lingered for quite a few days with this vision of Christ continually before me. It was doing me so much good that I was reluctant to come out of it for even a moment, and so I remained in a state of perpetual prayer. I took care of whatever business I had to attend to in such a way that it would not displease the one I love, who I now knew was witnessing everything I did. Although the barrage of warnings I received from others sometimes scared me, I could not sustain this fear in light of the tender assurances that came from my Lord. One day, while I was in prayer, the Lord decided to show me just His hands. I could never begin to describe such beauty. The vision shocked me. I am always frightened when God gives me a new supernatural favor. A few days after this, he showed me his divine face, and I was completely absorbed. Since the Lord would ultimately grant me the favor of seeing him whole, I wondered why he chose to reveal himself to me little by little. Later, I understood that his majesty was giving me exactly as much as my delicate nature could handle. May he be forever blessed. Such a crude and lowly vessel as I was could never have contained such glory. The Lord, in His mercy, was preparing me to receive Him fully. Why, you may ask, does it require such strength to see some hands and a face? Glorified bodies are so exquisite that a mere glimpse of such supernatural beauty leaves a soul dazzled and confused. At first, this vision stirred intense fear in me, but the agitation soon melted into a sense of calm certainty and peace. Then one day, his most sacred humanity appeared to me in his risen form, whole and radiant. It was the feast of St. Paul, and I was at Mass. He looked like he does in the paintings, beautiful and majestic, even though this was an imaginative vision, I did not see it with the eyes of my body, but only with the eyes of my soul. 
I recall that you insisted I write about this when it happened, and I obeyed. But it is very difficult to put into words without ruining it. I made the best description I could at that time, and I see no need to repeat it here. I will only say that if there were nothing in heaven to delight our sight other than the exalted beauty of glorified bodies, this would be enough. Especially the vision of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if He sometimes reveals Himself to us here on earth in proportion to our ability to bear such glory, can you imagine what it will be like when we are given that blessing to enjoy infinitely and for all eternity? Those who know more about theology than I do say that an intellectual vision is more perfect than an imaginative vision, like this one. And an imaginative vision is more perfect than the kind of vision we see with the eyes of the body. This last kind, the corporeal vision, is the kind in which the spirit of evil can most easily meddle and delude us. I did not understand these distinctions at the time Christ revealed himself to me, in an imaginative form. I wanted to see him with my body's eyes so that my confessor would believe that I hadn't invented the whole thing. As soon as the vision passed, I wondered if I had imagined it. I was so concerned that I might have inadvertently deceived my confessor that it made me cry. I wish I had never mentioned it to him. So I went to him and tried to explain. Have you intentionally deceived me? he asked. Or have you, in fact, simply described the vision as you saw it? I told him the truth. I would never knowingly lie to you, not for anything in the world. He tried to calm me down. I know this very well. After that, I started to worry about having come to him with these speculations about deception I don't know how the spirit of evil drove me to torment myself with the thought that I had made up the vision. But then, the Lord bestowed the gift of this vision again and made it abundantly clear to me that it was real. This truth quickly dispelled any doubt about my having imagined it. In fact, afterward, I could hardly believe I had ever wondered about it. How foolish of me! If I had spent a thousand years trying, I would never even know how to begin, let alone succeed in imagining and conveying something so beautiful. In its luminous whiteness alone, it surpasses anything we could perceive here on earth. It isn't a dazzling radiance. It's a soft whiteness, an infused glow. It delights the eyes and never strains them. The brilliant vision of divine beauty does not weary the eyes either. The brightness of the sun seems tarnished in comparison with this light. It makes you never want to open your eyes again after it has passed. It's like the difference between sparkling, clear water flowing over a pristine crystal that shimmers in the sun and muddy, cloudy water oozing along the ground. This doesn't mean you perceive the sun or that the light resembles sunshine. In fact, the light of the vision seems like natural light, and sunshine seems artificial. It is a light that never gives way to darkness. Nothing disturbs it. Ultimately, it's ineffable. No matter how fine a mind a person may have, 
he could never come close to imagining the nature of this light, even if he tried all his life to understand it. God gives us this light so suddenly that we don't even have time to open our eyes. It doesn't even matter if our eyes are open or closed. When God chooses to give us this vision, we see it whether we want to or not. No distraction or resistance can fend it off. No effort or intention can make it happen. I have learned this through experience. I would like to say something about the way the Lord reveals Himself in these visions. I will not presume to explain how it is that such a powerful light is put into the deepest part of the soul or how such a vivid image is imprinted on the mind. This is a matter for men of learning to explicate. The Lord has not given me knowledge of how such things work. I am so ignorant and dull-witted anyway that no matter how hard these men try to explain the theological mechanisms behind the visions, I have trouble grasping them. It may appear to you that I have a sharp intellect, but I don't. Again and again I have discovered that I cannot understand a thing unless I am spoon-fed, as they say. Sometimes my spiritual directors have been astonished by my ignorance. To tell you the truth, I haven't really bothered to try understanding how God causes visions like this, even though I have had a great deal of contact with men of learning over the years and countless opportunities to ask questions about these things. If I had a concern about whether or not something qualified as sin, I would certainly bring it up. But I didn't feel compelled to analyze the rest. All I needed to know was that God is in charge of everything. I saw that there was no reason to be afraid of this vision and that my only task was to give him thanks for it. Challenges only seemed to increase my devotion. In fact, the more intense the difficulty is, the more my devotion flowers. All I can do is share what I have come to see through experience. You will be able to explain how the Lord works much more precisely than I can. You can clarify whatever remains obscure in my writing and articulate the things I didn't know how to say. What I know is that sometimes I would see an image, but in many other instances I did not. Instead, I perceived Christ Himself. He identified Himself with absolute clarity. Other times, the vision was vague, like a painting rather than a living presence. But even this is a poor comparison, for paintings like this do not exist on earth. No matter how perfectly rendered they may be, and I have seen some excellent religious art, it's ridiculous to believe that this vision is any more like a painted image than a portrait can be equated with the man it represents. No matter how skillfully it is painted, a portrait will never look so lifelike that it can be mistaken for anything other than dead matter. As nicely as this metaphor functions, it's time to leave it behind. Actually, the example I just used is more than a comparison, since comparisons are never completely accurate. This is the literal truth. The difference between the vision of Christ and a painting of Him is neither more nor less than the difference between a living man and His portrait. What we see in this vision may be an image, but it is a living image. It is not a dead man we are seeing, but the living Christ. 
He makes it clear that he is both man and God. He does not appear as he was in the tomb, but in his resurrected form after he left the tomb. Sometimes, he comes with such majesty that no one could doubt that it is the Lord himself, especially after receiving communion, since our faith teaches us that he is truly present in this blessed sacrament. Then, he reveals himself so clearly as the master of this dwelling that the soul seems to be utterly consumed in him. Oh, my Jesus, who could ever describe the magnificence with which you reveal yourself? O oh, Lord of the entire world and of the heavens, O oh, Lord of a thousand other worlds, of numberless worlds, O oh, Lord of the heavens that you might yet create, through the majesty with which you reveal yourself, the soul understands perfectly that it is nothing for you to rule supreme over this earth. In this vision, I clearly see your power, my Jesus. All the spirits of evil are powerless by comparison. Whoever truly loves you easily tramples all hell underfoot. I suddenly understand why the devils were afraid of you when you descended into limbo. They must have wished they had a thousand lower levels of hell into which to flee from such awesome splendor. I see that you want the soul to know how vast this glory is and to grasp the power that this most sacred humanity has when it is joined with absolute divinity. In this vision, the soul is given a glimpse of what it will be like on Judgment Day when she beholds the sovereignty of this king and witnesses the righteousness with which he disciplines the wicked. Once she has had such a vision, the soul can no longer ignore her own wretchedness, and she is left with true humility. It triggers deep self-examination and inspires her to genuinely repent her transgressions. Even though the soul sees that this God is the God of love, she feels so naked and exposed that she doesn't know where to hide. She is completely consumed. I would go so far as to claim that when the Lord chooses to reveal himself in all his grandeur and majesty, the vision has such intense power that it would be impossible for any soul to bear it unless he gave her supernatural assistance. He puts her into an ecstatic rapture, and the vision of him dissolves into a pure enjoyment of his presence. Could it be true that the soul forgets the vision once it has passed? No. The majesty and beauty remain so deeply imprinted on the soul that they are unforgettable. Sometimes, however, the Lord wants the soul to endure a period of aridity and solitude during which she even seems to forget God. Other than these divinely ordained dry spells, the soul is fully transformed from this vision and lives in a permanent state of absorption. She enters into a higher love a new and living love for God. While an intellectual vision, that is, a vision which the soul perceives God without form, is more perfect than an imaginative vision, a wondrous thing happens when the divine represents himself in our imagination. In proportion to our ability to withstand such glory, his presence lingers in our memory and perpetually occupies our thoughts. 
These two kinds of visions almost always come hand in hand. In an imaginative vision, we perceive the excellence, beauty, and glory of the most sacred humanity with the eyes of the soul. In an intellectual vision, we are given an understanding that God is God, that He is all-powerful and can do everything, that He commands all and governs all, that His love permeates all things. Such a vision should be cherished. In my opinion, it is immune from any contamination. From the effects of this vision, it is clear that the spirit of evil has no power here. I think the spirit of evil tried three or four times in the beginning of my spiritual path to masquerade as the Lord of Love, but I didn't believe it. He takes the form of flesh, but he cannot even come close to representing the true glory of God. He tries to invalidate the true vision the soul has seen, but the soul spontaneously resists his efforts. She feels defensive, restless, and nervous. She loses the devotion and delight she experienced when the vision came from God. She can't concentrate on prayer. The few times this happened to me early on, I knew something was wrong. Even if a person has only experienced the prayer of quiet, I think she will be able to deduce the difference between a false vision and a divine favor by their effects alone. It's obvious. I don't think the spirit of evil can deceive a soul who doesn't want to be deceived. If she walks in humility and simplicity, she will walk safely. Anyone who has had a true vision will almost immediately be able to discern a false one. Although a false one may begin with similar feelings of consolation and sweetness, the soul is repelled by it and has the urge to push it away. Even the sense of consolation is different. It isn't pure. It doesn't feel like sacred love. The spirit of evil is quickly unmasked. So, in my opinion, he can do no real harm to an experienced soul. Could such a vision be the work of the imagination? This is the most impossible of impossible things. It's utterly ridiculous to think it. The perfect beauty and pure luminescence of a single one of the Beloved's hands completely transcends the imagination. How could we instantaneously see things that we have never even thought about? Things so far beyond anything that we can comprehend here on earth that we could never have begun to invent them with our imagination. Even if we could create these things in our minds, they would never carry the lasting effects of a true divine vision. In fact, they would have no effect at all. The soul would be left exhausted by the effort. Say we want to fall asleep, but sleep won't come, so we lie awake. Sometimes we need to sleep. We feel the heaviness in our head and the urge to doze off, so we lie down. When we can't fall asleep, we think that we must be doing ourselves some good by just resting in bed. But if it's not true sleep, it will not sustain us or refresh our head. Instead, we will be even more tired than we were before we lay down. That's how a self-generated vision would make us feel the soul would be left exhausted. Instead of being fortified and nourished, she would find herself drained and unsatisfied. 
I cannot overemphasize the richness of a true vision. It can even restore health and comfort to the body. When I was repeatedly accused of inventing my vision or being deceived by the devil, I offered this analogy as evidence of the validity of my experience. The Lord gave me other comparisons as well, but it was pointless. These men were very pious. Compared to them, I was a lost soul. And because God was not leading them on this same path, my experience frightened them. Their own fear convinced them that what I was seeing must be the result of my sins. I hardly spoke to anyone except my confessor and a few people he ordered me to tell about my experiences. But somehow my confidentiality was violated and my secrets were spread around. Look, I said to them once, if you were to tell me that a person I knew well and had just finished talking to was not who I thought he was, and that I had only imagined that it was he, you can be assured that I would believe what you said and not what I saw. But, I went on, if this person left some jewels in my hand as tokens of his great love, I would not believe you even if I wanted to. Because where I was poor before, now I would find myself rich. I was trying to show them that these visions left jewels in my soul that changed me completely. Even my confessor admitted that I was transformed. The difference in me extended to every area of my life. I could not fake it. Everyone saw that it was real. Remember how wretched I was? I asked them. If the devil did this to deceive me and carry me off to hell, why would he do it by such uncharacteristic means as wiping away my vices and replacing them with virtues? Why would he fortify my spirit instead of weakening it? Why would he change me for the better? I found out that my confessor used this same argument to defend me. Father Balzatar Alvarez was, as I said, a very holy Jesuit. He was a discreet man and exceedingly humble. As it turned out, his humility brought me great trials. Even though he was extremely learned and deeply prayerful, God did not lead him along the path I was on, so he didn't trust himself to guide me. Father Balthazar also suffered terrible trials on my behalf. People warned him to beware of me and not to let the devil deceive him into believing anything I told him. They brought up examples of other people who had been deceived in this way. All of this worried me. It seemed like I was chasing everyone away and that there would be no one left to hear my confession. All I could do was weep. Thanks to divine providence, Father Balzatar chose to continue hearing my confession. He was such a great servant of God that he would have been willing to put up with anything for God's sake. He assured me that as long as I followed his advice and did not offend God, he would not give up on me. He always encouraged me and soothed my anxiety. He insisted that I not withhold anything from him, and I never did. Even if my vision did come from the spirit of evil, Father Balthazar reminded me I would be safe as long as I told him everything. Then, not only could the devil do me no harm, but the Lord would draw good out of the evil. 
This priest did his very best to perfect my soul. Since I lived with such trepidation, I strove to obey him, even though I did not always succeed. During the three years or so that Father Balthazar was my confessor, my trials caused him great suffering. I was persecuted terribly. The Lord allowed people to make very harsh judgments about me. They went to Father Balthazar with all of these issues, and he was often blamed for them. But he was innocent. If he had not been such a holy man, and the Lord had not supported him so much, he could never have endured such suffering. On the one hand, he had to deal with people who did not believe in him, people who were convinced that I was going to hell. On the other hand, he had to calm me down. Whenever God gave me a vision, the new experience would frighten me. Father Balthazar was determined to reassure me. But although he did what he could to dispel my fears, he sometimes accidentally intensified them. All these trials came to me because I was, and still am, a sinner. This priest was deeply compassionate and comforted me. If only he had trusted himself more, I would have suffered less. God showed him the truth in all things. I believe the simple sanctity of his office enlightened him. I had many conversations with the religious men who were having doubts about me. I guess I must have spoken carelessly because they completely misinterpreted my intentions. When I simply said exactly what was on my mind, they thought I was lacking in humility. This was particularly painful to me in the case of one of them, a man I loved very much. He was a profoundly holy person, and I was spiritually indebted to him. When I saw that even he did not understand me, I was crushed. I knew that he sincerely wished the Lord to light my path so that I would make real progress. Well, as I was saying, I spoke without reflecting on how it might come across, and this was interpreted as arrogance. Whenever they detected the slightest fault in me, and they saw many, they would condemn everything else out of hand. They would ask me things, and I would answer directly, without analyzing myself. They thought I considered myself wiser than they were, and that I was presuming to teach them. They truly thought they were doing what was best for me. They went to my confessor to inform him of my transgressions, and he would have to reprimand me again. This went on for quite some time. I felt like I was being attacked from every side. Only the favors the Lord was granting me enabled me to bear these trials. I'm telling you this so that you will realize what a terrible hardship it is not to have a guide who is familiar with this particular spiritual path. If the Beloved had not been blessing me as he was, I don't know what would have become of me. These troubles were enough to drive me out of my mind. Sometimes, I found myself so beset by tribulations that all I could do was lift my eyes to the Lord. The notion of a group of powerful men against one little woman as weak and wicked as I was may not sound like such a problem when I describe it here. But believe me, 
This was one of the most severe trials I ever suffered in a life of severe trials. May it please the Lord that I have been of some service to His Majesty by going through all this. I am totally convinced that the people who condemned me were serving God the best they knew how, and that all of this was ultimately for my greater good. Chapter 29 The Beautiful Wound Once again, I've wandered far from my topic. I was about to tell you the signs for discerning whether or not a vision is the product of the imagination. How could we create a picture of Christ's humanity in all its detail and conjure His great beauty out of thin air? If the image were to represent Him at all, it would take a very long time to generate. We are certainly capable of doing this. We could visualize Him, gaze upon His form and radiance, gradually refine the image and commit it to memory. Since this is the work of the intellect, who can stop us? But there is no way we could create the kind of vision I'm talking about here. We see what the Lord shows us when He wants us to see it and in the form in which He wants to show it to us. No matter how hard we try, we cannot produce it or remove it, add to it or subtract from it. We look at it whenever we want to see it, or look away when we don't feel like seeing it anymore. And if we try to focus on one particular feature, Christ disappears. God granted me this blessing frequently over the course of two and a half years. A little over three years ago, He replaced the vision with a more sublime favor, one that He has been giving me almost continually ever since. When I first began to receive visions of Christ, I was aware that He was speaking to me. I gazed at His great beauty and felt the sweetness of the words that came from His divine mouth. Even when they were stern, I desperately wanted to know the color of His eyes and how tall He was so that I could accurately describe them later. But I was never worthy enough to see these things, and striving to do so produced no results. In fact, the effort only made the vision vanish. Sometimes I see him looking at me with heartbreaking compassion. In general, the vision is so powerful that my soul cannot bear it and slips into a sublime rapture. I lose the vision so that I can more fully enjoy the vision. So it's not a matter of being willing or unwilling. It is clear that all the Beloved wants of us is humility and holy bewilderment. He wants us to accept what we are given and praise the one who gives it. This is true for all visions, without exception. There is nothing we can do about it, nor can we undo anything. We can't see more, and we can't see less than we are offered. The Lord wants us to be clearly aware that this is not our work, but His Majesty's. That way, we avoid spiritual pride. Instead, we are humbled and awestruck when we realize that just as the Lord takes away our power to see whatever we want to see whenever we want to see it, so He may remove any of the other favors and gifts, and we will be left utterly lost. As long as we live in this exile, we should always walk with trepidation. Our Lord almost always appeared to me in His risen form. 
It was the same when I saw him in the host during communion. If I were suffering some tribulation, he would occasionally show me his wounds to give me encouragement. Sometimes he appeared on the cross or in the garden. A few times I saw him wearing the crown of thorns. Sometimes he would be carrying his cross, depending on what I or other people needed. But his body was always glorified. I was persecuted terribly for speaking about these visions. I weathered innumerable insults and trials. The men who were observing me were so convinced that I was possessed by an evil spirit that some of them wanted to arrange an exorcism. This did not bother me much. What really upset me was when I saw that my confessors were afraid to hear my confession because of things that people were saying about me. In spite of the fears they filled me with, I could never manage to regret having seen these heavenly visions. I would not trade a single one of them for all the blessings and delights in the world. I have always considered a vision an offering of great mercy from the Lord. The Lord himself has assured me many times that visions are priceless treasures. I found my love for God growing stronger and stronger. Whenever I went to the Lord to lament my trials, I came away from my prayer feeling consoled and strengthened. I still didn't dare contradict my critics, though, because I could see that they would only interpret this as evidence of a serious lack of humility, and this would make things worse. I did discuss everything with my confessor. Whenever he saw that I was troubled, he made a sincere effort to comfort me. My visions began to increase in frequency and intensity. One of the members of the group of men who were scrutinizing me insisted that I was being deceived by the devil. This priest had sometimes heard my confession when my regular confessor wasn't available. Since you seem incapable of resisting these diabolical intrusions, he said, you must make the sign of the cross and thumb your nose whenever you feel a vision coming on. If you do this with conviction, he continued, the devil will leave you and never come back. He must have misread the distress on my face. Don't be afraid, he said magnanimously. God will protect you. But I didn't believe the visions came from anything other than God in the first place. It was excruciating for me to obey the command and make this rude gesture at my beloved. Nor could I possibly desire that these visions go away. But in the end, I did what I was told. With many tears, I persistently begged God to free me from any deception, both of whom were dear to me, since it was on their feast day that the Lord first appeared to me. Christ himself had told me that they would guard me against being deceived. I often clearly perceived them on my left. This was not an imaginative vision. These two saints were powerful protectors of mine. Thumbing my nose in the Lord's face caused me unbearable anguish. When I saw him there with me, I would not have been able to believe this had anything to do with the devil if they broke me into a thousand pieces. This mandate was a severe penance for me. I couldn't bear to make such a disrespectful gesture while I was having a vision of Christ. Since obeying it would have required my crossing myself and thumbing my nose every five seconds anyway, 
I started holding a cross in my hand instead. The situation reminded me of the way Christ was persecuted by his own people. I begged the Lord to forgive me. Whenever I thumbed my nose at him, I was only obeying the ministers he had placed in his church to represent him. He told me not to worry and reassured me that I did the right thing to obey them. He also said that he himself would show them the truth. When they prohibited me from practicing prayer, the Lord seemed to become annoyed. He told me to tell them that they were now crossing over into tyranny. He gave me clear signs for determining that a vision did not come from the spirit of evil. I'll say more about this later. The cross I carried was attached to a rosary. One day, as I was holding it, Christ took it from me with his own hands. When he gave it back to me, it was completely changed. Now the cross was composed of four large stones. They were incomparably more valuable than diamonds. Nothing can be compared to supernatural things. A diamond seems imperfect and fake next to the precious stones Christ handed to me. Christ's five wounds were inscribed on the jewels with the most intricate skill. He told me that from now on, I would behold the cross in this new way. And this is exactly what happened. I was never again able to see the wood from which the crucifix was fashioned, but no one else seemed to be able to see these precious stones. As soon as I tried to obey the command to reject these favors from God, they began to happen more frequently. My very effort to resist them seemed to propel me into a state of unceasing prayer. I even seemed to be praying in my sleep. My love for my Lord grew so intense that I complained to Him that I could not bear it. But no matter how much I tried, I could not stop thinking about Him. Although I strove to obey my superiors when I could, there was almost nothing I could do about it. And the Lord was no help. He kept me in a constant state of prayer. On the one hand, He told me to do what they said. On the other, He reassured me and taught me what to say to them. And He still does. The arguments He gave me to offer my critics were so sound that I have felt perfectly secure ever since. His Majesty soon followed through on his promise to make it abundantly clear to me that my visions came from him. He began to increase my love for God to such a degree that I didn't know where it came from or how to obtain it. This love was supernatural. I was dying with desire to see God. I didn't know where to seek the life I was longing for except through death. Such powerful impulses of love coursed through me that I didn't know what to do with myself. Nothing satisfied me. I couldn't stand to be with myself. It truly seemed like my soul was being torn away from me. Oh, Lord, you supreme trickster! What subtle artfulness you use to do your work with this miserable slave of yours! You hide yourself from me and afflict me with your love. You deliver such a delicious death that my soul would never dream of trying to avoid it. These impulses are so intense that it would be impossible for anyone who has not experienced them to imagine what they feel like. They do not disquiet the heart. 
They are not the same as those bursts of devotional emotion that commonly overwhelm the spirit. They are of a much higher order of prayer than these. I have found that the best way to handle impetuous spiritual stirrings is to gather them gently within myself and quiet my soul. This lower condition should be treated the same way you might deal with children who are having a tantrum. You know when they cry so hard that it seems like they're about to choke to death? The minute you hand them something to drink, the sobbing ceases. That's what this is like. Natural weakness is sometimes confused with true religious emotion. Reason needs to step in and take command of the situation. When we reflect on the rush of feeling more deeply, we may be surprised to see that it does not have a totally perfect source, but rather comes from the sensory part of the soul. Let this child be comforted with a gentle caress. Let us not bludgeon the child, but draw out his love with our love. Let us contain this love and not spill it like a pot that heats up too fast and boils over because we fed the fire too much wood. Let us moderate the source of the flame. Gentle tears regulate the fire. Passionate tears put the fire out. Their source is emotional and they can do us harm. In the beginning, I used to experience this kind of crying, and it always left my spirit so exhausted and my mind so confused that it took me a few days before I was fit to pray again. It's really important to cultivate discrimination during the early stages of the spiritual path. That way, everything will unfold smoothly, and the spirit learns to work on the inner planes. We need to strive consciously to avoid getting caught by external feelings. These higher impulses I am talking about are very different. We ourselves do not put wood on the fire. It is already burning, and we are suddenly thrown into it to be consumed. We are ablaze with anguished longing for God. We do not try to feel the pain of this wound caused by our separation from Him. We are overcome by it. Sometimes an arrow of love pierces the heart and penetrates the deepest core of the soul so that she doesn't know what has happened or what she wants, except that all she wants is God. It feels like the arrow has been dipped in a poisonous herb that makes her reject herself for love of him. She would gladly give up her life for him. It's impossible to explain the way God wounds the soul or to exaggerate the agony this causes. It makes the soul forget herself entirely. Yet this pain carries such exquisite pleasure that no other pleasure in life can compare to that happiness. The soul longs to die of this beautiful wound. The blending of pain and glory was very confusing to me at first. I couldn't understand how they could coexist. Oh, what a gift it is to behold a wounded soul. We need to understand her condition as a sacred one and recognize that she has been wounded for a sublime purpose. The soul did not make this love happen. Rather, it seems that a spark of the boundless love the Lord has for the soul has leapt out of the flame and landed on her, setting her on fire. Oh, how many times do I remember the words of David when I am in this state? As the deer longs for the streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. 
I seem to embody this passage literally. When these love longings are not quite as intense, they can be somewhat subdued. The soul tries to find some relief through certain penances because she does not know what else to do. But she no more feels the pain of these sacrifices than a dead body would feel its blood being shed. She is desperately seeking ways and means for dealing with the love of God that consumes her, but no self-inflicted bodily pain can mitigate this soul pain. Such low remedies as physical penances make poor medicine for such a high disease. They can alleviate the condition a little, and the soul can make do in this way while she begs God to give her a more permanent cure for her suffering. But she sees no real way out except by dying. Death feels like the only way the soul can fully enjoy her beloved. Sometimes, however, this pain is so severe that the soul is incapable of doing penances or anything else. The body becomes paralyzed. She cannot move her hands or feet. If she is standing, she drops into a sitting position. She is like a person being transported by others. She cannot even draw a breath on her own. She may utter a few sighs, but they are inaudible. She doesn't even make a sound. The sighing happens on the inside. While I was in this state, the Lord chose to give me the following vision. I saw an angel in bodily form standing very close to me on my left side. Although angels have appeared to me many times, I have rarely seen them in bodily form. Usually I see them without my eyes, like in those intellectual visions I was telling you about before. This time, however, God wanted me to see the vision like this. The angel was not large. He was quite small and very beautiful. His face was so lit up by flame, brilliantly lit, that I thought he must belong to that highest order of angels who are made entirely of fire. He didn't tell me his name, but I know there's a big difference between various angelic realms. I wouldn't know how to explain such things. I saw that he held a great golden spear. The end of the iron tip seemed to be on fire. Then the angel plunged the flaming spear through my heart again and again until it penetrated my innermost core. When he withdrew it, it felt like he was carrying the deepest part of me away with him. He left me utterly consumed with love of God. The pain was so intense that it made me moan. The sweetness this anguish carries with it is so bountiful that I could never wish for it to cease. The soul will not be content with anything less than God. The pain is spiritual, not physical. Still, the body does not fail to share some of it, maybe even a lot of it. The love exchange between the soul and her God is so sweet that I beg him in his goodness to give a taste of it to anyone who thinks I might be lying. On the days when this vision appeared to me, I wandered around in a kind of stupor for many hours. I didn't want to look at anything or say anything. All I wanted was to embrace my pain and hold it close. This was greater glory than any created thing could ever offer me. Sometimes, it was the Lord's will for these raptures to be so intense 
that I could not resist them, even if I was among other people. To my great dismay, people started talking about them. As time went on, the suffering that accompanied the visions grew softer. But in the beginning, the pain could be so excruciating that the Lord lifted my soul and carried her into ecstasy. In that place, there is no room for suffering. It is pure joy. May he be forever blessed. He has granted so many favors to one who has so poorly responded to his great gifts. Chapter 30 Fire and Water When I realized that there was little or nothing I could do to fend off these powerful visionary impulses, I grew afraid. I didn't understand how suffering and joy could go together. I already knew that physical pain and spiritual delight were compatible, but this intense combination of profound inner pain and exalted joy confounded me. I kept trying to resist my visions as I was ordered to do, but the effort was futile. It only exhausted me. I would pick up my cross to defend myself against the one who is the defender of us all. It was perfectly clear that no one understood me. But I didn't mention this to anyone except my spiritual director, since it would only have been interpreted as further proof of my lack of humility. The Lord was pleased to relieve the bulk of my trial by bringing the Blessed Father Pedro de Alcántara to the city of Avila. As you may recall, I mentioned him earlier and said something about his unusual self-sacrifice. Someone verified to me that he did, in fact, wear a shirt made of tin shavings for more than twenty years. Father Pedro wrote several books in Spanish about the practice of prayer. His work has become very popular. Since he lived what he writes about, his words are very helpful to people who are inclined to walk a spiritual path. He also rigorously followed the first rule of the Blessed St. Francis. Remember the wealthy widow I told you about? Doña Guillomar de Ulloa? Well, not only was she a good friend of mine, but she was a good friend to God. Guillomar knew all about my predicament. She had witnessed my great suffering and had been a tremendous source of comfort to me. Her faith was so strong that she was incapable of believing that my experiences were anything other than God-given. She did not agree at all with the men who insisted that my visions came from the spirit of evil. Guillomar was a very intelligent person and totally trustworthy. God gave her many favors in prayer. He also chose to enlighten her about matters of which learned men were ignorant. My spiritual directors allowed me to confide in her because she was extremely perceptive about certain things. Sometimes the Lord shared some of the favors he granted to me with Gyormar and accompanied them with words of wisdom that contributed to the growth of her own soul. When Gyormar heard that Father Pedro was in town, she obtained permission from my superiors to have me stay at her house for a week so that I could talk more easily with the holy man. She made these arrangements without even telling me about it so that all I had to do was show up and unburden my soul. During this time, Father Pedro came to Guillermar's house to meet with me, and I also spoke with him at some churches. 
Over the years, I spent a great deal of time with him on many different occasions. I gave Father Pedro as clear and honest a summary of my life and my spiritual path as I possibly could. Whenever I shared with anyone about my soul, I always tried to speak with transparency and truthfulness. I wanted them to know about my very first spiritual stirrings, and if there was anything I considered dubious, I would openly accuse myself. So I laid my soul bare to Father Pedro without duplicity or cover-up. Right from the beginning, I saw that Father Pedro understood me through experience. That was all I needed. I didn't even understand myself at that time. I didn't know how to put words around my experiences the way I do now. Later, God allowed me both to understand and describe the favors that His Majesty granted me. But back then, I needed someone who had been through it himself so that he could explain the nature of my experiences. Father Pedro's teachings about imaginative visions were especially enlightening to me. I had been having a great deal of difficulty understanding what I saw with the eyes of the soul. I thought that the only worthy visions were the ones we see with our bodily eyes, and I didn't experience any of those. This holy man explained everything to me. Don't worry, he said. Just praise God. He reassured me that my experiences were the work of the Spirit. Nothing could be truer or more reliable than these divine favors, he said, except for the teachings of our faith. I seemed to provide Father Pedro with some comfort as well. He was incredibly kind and helpful to me. From the time we met, he took an active interest in me and confided his own concerns and business matters. Father Pedro saw that the Lord had given me powerful desires for the things he had already obtained, as well as the courage to bring these longings to fulfillment. He genuinely enjoyed talking with me. For there is no greater pleasure for anyone God has brought to this state than meeting someone else in whom the Lord has begun to light the fire of love-longing. It was only just beginning for me then. God grant that I may be further along that path now. Father Pedro showed me the most touching compassion. You have already suffered one of the worst trials on earth, he said, when I told him how those good men had opposed me. But you still have a long way to go. You are very needy, and there's no one in this city who is capable of understanding you. He told me he would speak to my spiritual director and also to Don Francisco, who had caused me the most grief. It was only because of his great love for me that Don Francisco waged this war against me. He is a pious man, and since he saw that my soul had so recently been very wretched, he couldn't reconcile it with the divine favors I had suddenly begun to receive. The Holy Father Pedro assured these men that my experience was valid. He gave them many good reasons that they should feel safe and asked them not to bother me anymore. It didn't take much to placate my confessor, but Don Francisco wasn't quite convinced. It was enough, however, at least to stop him from terrorizing me so much. Father Pedro and I agreed that from then on I would document each of my experiences in writing. 
We promised to pray for one another. He was so humble that he valued the prayers of someone as lowly as I. This embarrassed me. He filled me with comfort and joy and infused my practice of prayer with new confidence. Try not to doubt that your prayer comes from God, he told me. But if doubts do arise, or if you want to be absolutely sure, check your experiences with your confessor. That should keep you safe. I appreciated his assurance, but I couldn't fully take them in. Mine was a path of fear. If people told me my experiences came from the spirit of evil, I was inclined to believe them. But there was no man on earth who could either frighten me enough or reassure me enough for me to believe him over the feelings that God himself had planted in my soul. So although Father Pedro's words soothed and calmed me, they didn't entirely banish my anxiety, especially when the Lord plunged me into the soul suffering I'm about to recount. Overall, however, Father Pedro did console me. I couldn't thank God enough for the gift of friendship with this holy man. I had often prayed to my glorious father, St. Joseph, as well as to Our Lady, since Father Pedro was the primary representative of an order of St. Joseph. I believed the glorious saint had brought him to me, so I thanked him too. Sometimes I would suffer so many bitter spiritual trials, compounded by such severe bodily pain and sickness, that I was left utterly helpless. This still happens even now, although to a lesser degree. At other times I grew seriously ill, but since I was not experiencing that soul-suffering, I bore it with great joy. It was only when all my afflictions were combined that I was reduced to such a miserable state. Then I forgot all the favors the Lord had granted me. They were like a dream. The only thing I could remember was pain. My mind was dulled and I was plagued by a thousand doubts and suspicions. It seemed as if I had never understood the spiritual life and had imagined everything that had happened to me. Not only had I been deluded myself, I concluded, but I had deluded good men. I considered myself so thoroughly wicked that all the evil that had ever befallen the world must have been my fault. This was a case of false humility. The spirit of evil invented all this to try and disquiet me and push my soul into despair. Since then, I have had a great deal of experience with the spirit of evil. He realizes that I see through him, so he doesn't torment me the way he used to. It's easy enough to recognize him through the effect he has on the soul. He begins by disturbing her, continues to agitate her throughout the time he is working on her, plants darkness and distress inside her, and leaves her so dried out that she has no inclination toward prayer or any other positive act. The spirit of evil seems to smother the soul and constrict the body, rendering them both powerless. It makes us feel so wretched that we hate ourselves. But these exaggerated thoughts of our own wickedness have nothing to do with true humility. True humility does not cause inner turmoil and spiritual unrest. True humility creates the opposite effect. It consoles the soul. It fills her with quietude, serenity, and light. 
True humility may carry an element of pain, but the soul experiences her suffering as a gift from God and hopes that her sufferings serves him in some way. It grieves the soul to see how she has offended her beloved, but at the same time, her spirit is relieved by his great mercy. She is enlightened enough to feel shame about her shameful behavior, but she is thrilled to see that God hasn't given up on her, and she praises him. When the spirit of evil creates a state of false humility, it banishes the light and obliterates all that is good in the soul. It seems as if God has wiped everything out with a flaming sword. The soul dwells on God's righteousness, but has trouble remembering his mercy. A spirit of evil is not powerful enough to make the soul lose her faith, but that faith no longer brings any consolation. Instead, when the soul does consider God's mercy, it only makes her feel worse because she thinks she should have done more to earn it. This kind of self-loathing is one of the spirit of evil's most insidious, painful, and deceptive tricks. I'm warning you about this so that if he tries to tempt you in this way, you will have the foresight to recognize it. Don't think it's a matter of academic learning or theological knowledge. Even though I am impoverished in these areas, the minute I escape from his clutches, it is obvious to me that I have been deceived and that my negative feelings were groundless. I have come to understand that the Lord allows the spirit of evil to test us in this way, just as he permitted the devil to tempt Job, although less severely because we are less saintly. Now, I'm going to tell you about another way the spirit of evil tempted me. It happened the day before the feast of Corpus Christi, to which I am deeply devoted, though not as much as I should be. Sometimes I struggle with this temptation for as many as fifteen days or even three weeks, maybe longer. But this time it only lasted until the feast day. It especially comes up during Holy Week when prayer is my refuge. My mind is suddenly caught up in a stream of trivial thoughts. These things are so ridiculous that at other times they would make me laugh. The spirit of evil invades the intellect, ties it up, and does whatever he wants with it. The soul is no longer master of herself, and all she can do is think absurd thoughts. These thoughts have absolutely no purpose. They neither engage her nor release her. They serve only to oppress the soul so that she feels as if she no longer fits inside herself. Sometimes it feels as if the devils are playing ball with my soul and she can't break free of their grasp. The soul's suffering during these times is beyond description. She seeks relief, but God will not allow her to find any. The light of reason remains, which overrides free will, but it is unclear, as if the eyes were covered with a film. The soul in this state is like a person who has so often taken a certain path that his feet remember the way even when it's dark out. He knows the places where he might stumble because he has seen them in the daytime. So he's on his guard for those spots. The soul, too, moves by acquired feel and so avoids offending God. Of course, this analogy does not take into account the fact that the Lord always holds the soul in his hands, which is what really matters. During these times, faith and all the other virtues are put to sleep, but they are not lost.
the soul never stops believing in the teachings of the church, but all she can do is pay lip service to them. She is miserable and numb. She knows God the way a person hears something far away in the distance. Her love grows lukewarm. When she listens to someone talking about God, she believes him only because the church tells her to, not because of any real memory of God's presence. Entering into solitude and prayer only increases the soul's anguish. She cannot bear the inner torment, yet she cannot identify its source. In my opinion, this experience is a mirror of hell. Actually, the Lord confirmed this for me in a vision. The soul is burning inside herself, and she has no idea who started the fire or where it came from, or how to get away from it or what to put it out with. When she tries to soothe herself with a good book, she feels as if she has forgotten how to read. I remember one time when I tried to read The Life of a Saint. I was hoping it would absorb me, and that seeing the way he suffered might offer me some solace. After I read the same few lines four or five times, I understood even less than I had at the beginning, so I put the book down. This happened to me often, although for some reason this particular instance stands out in my mind. It's even worse trying to carry on a conversation with someone. The spirit of evil puts me in such a foul temper that they all think I'm going to bite their heads off. I can't help it. I consider it an accomplishment just to be able to control myself. Actually, I know it's the Lord who keeps me under control. He holds me in His hands during times like this and prevents me from doing anything that might cause harm to my neighbors or offend God. It's absolutely useless to seek spiritual guidance when the soul is in this condition. This has been my experience, anyway. Even though the confessors I had at that time were very holy men and the confessors I go to these days are equally saintly, they spoke to me very harshly and scolded me when I most needed their compassion and support. When I told these men afterward how I felt about the way they had treated me, they were very surprised and claimed they were powerless to refrain from acting this way. They felt very sorry about the pain they caused me and tried not to do it again. Knowing how I had suffered in body and soul, they were determined to comfort me the next time I came to them with these problems, but they couldn't do it. They didn't exactly use bad words. That would have been an offense against God. But they used the strongest possible language allowed a confessor. Apparently, they meant to mortify me. And there were times when I was ready and willing to suffer that kind of mortification. But when I was undergoing this particular trial, I couldn't bear it. I also used to worry that I was misleading my spiritual directors, so I went to them and warned them that I was quite capable of deception. Of course, I knew that I would never deliberately lie to them, but I was so afraid of everything that I thought I might inadvertently say the wrong thing and they would end up with the wrong idea. One of these men was familiar with the kind of temptation I was struggling with. Don't worry, he said. Even if you wanted to deceive me, I'm too smart to let myself be deceived. This was very comforting to me. I almost always felt a peace after receiving communion. 
Sometimes, simply approaching the sacrament made me feel so good in body and soul that I was truly amazed. It felt as if all the darkness in my soul was lifted in a single moment, and by the light of that radiant sunshine, I could clearly see how foolish all of my negative thoughts had been. At other times, a single word from my beloved cured me completely. Such is the time I told you about when he said to me, Do not grow weary, do not be afraid. Or sometimes, after seeing a vision, it was as if there had never been anything wrong. I rejoiced in the Lord, and I also complained to him about all the torments I suffered. But he always repaid me afterward by pouring his mercies upon me with great abundance. My soul would emerge from this crucible like gold, purified and refined, shining with a new radiance that enabled her to see God inside herself. And so, although our trials may seem unbearable, they eventually grow light. We are willing to suffer them all again if it means we will serve God in this way. From this perspective, we understand that there will be more persecutions and tribulations ahead. But if we endure them serenely, without forsaking God, everything will work out for the best. I must admit, I have not always handled my own trials quite so perfectly. There are times when I seem to be utterly incapable of thinking a single good thought, let alone putting one into action. My body and soul feel heavy and useless. The other temptations and worries I told you about are replaced with a deep sense of dissatisfaction with everything and everyone. When I have suffered from this sort of temptation, I have tried to force myself to perform some good works just to keep myself occupied, but I felt powerless to do anything in the absence of grace. This was not as painful as other trials, because the awareness of my own unworthiness brought me some relief. There are other times when I cannot seem to formulate any concept of God. Even if I am alone, I am unable to practice prayer. Yet I still feel that I know God. The faculties of reason and imagination cause the trouble. The will remains inclined toward all that is good. But the intellect is out of control. Like a lunatic no one can hold down. I can't even control my wild mind for the amount of time it takes to recite the creed. Sometimes I have the ability to witness my own misery and laugh at myself. I watch this inner madman to see what he's going to do. Glory be to God. To my surprise, my thoughts do not rush after evil but turn to neutral things. My mind wanders here and there and everywhere in search of something to think about. This makes me realize what a great favor His Majesty is doing me when He holds the madman bound in perfect contemplation. I'd love to see what would happen if all those people who think I'm so holy could witness this insanity. I actually feel compassion for my poor soul when she's in this state. I see that she's in bad company, and I long to set her free. I turn to the Lord. When, my God? I ask him, when will I finally see the whole of my soul unified in praise of you? 
when will all my faculties come together to enjoy you at the same time? Do not allow my soul to be fragmented any longer. Each shard seems to pull me in a different direction. The scattering of the faculties happens to me often. Sometimes it seems obvious to me that this is the cause of most of my health problems. I also think that the legacy of original sin has something to do with our inability to enjoy all blessings in an integral way. Plus, my own transgressions exacerbate the problem. If I hadn't been so unconscious in the past, I would be more integrated now. Here is another terrible trial I suffered. I had read all the books on prayer and felt I understood them because the Lord had already given me such favors. I concluded that I did not need these books, so I focused on the lives of the saints instead. I considered myself severely deficient in the ways these men and women served God, and I hoped to gain wisdom and encouragement from them. Then it struck me that thinking I had attained any kind of advanced spiritual states demonstrated a shameful lack of humility. But since I could not persuade myself to dismiss the reality of these states, I was very distressed. Finally, the Blessed Father Pedro de Alcantara came along and told me not to worry about that. It is clear to me that I haven't begun to be of service to God. His Majesty has already granted me the kinds of blessings He gives to much more advanced souls. I am the very embodiment of imperfection. But I am well endowed with good desires, and my heart is full of love. I think the Lord has favored me with love longing so that I might have some way of serving Him. I really do believe that I love Him, but all my imperfect actions make me very sad. Then there are times when my soul suffers from what I can only call stupid attacks. I don't seem to be doing any harm, but I'm doing no good either. I'm just going along with the crowd, as they say. I'm not walking in pain, but I'm not walking in glory. I don't care if I die, but I don't mind if I keep living. Nothing pleases me, but nothing burdens me. I don't feel anything. My soul in this state is like a little dumb donkey grazing in a pasture. It is nourished because its food is provided, but it eats without even noticing that it's chewing and swallowing. The soul cannot help but feed on God's grace. She is content to live this humble life, but she doesn't experience any impulses or other effects that help her to understand herself. It seems to me now that the soul is drifting on a gentle breeze. She travels great distances without knowing how, in other stages of the spiritual journey, the effects can be so dramatic that the soul has no doubt that she is growing as a result. Her desire surges, but nothing satisfies her. It makes me think of small, flowing springs I have seen. They never cease heaving up the sand all around them. This is what it's like for souls who reach this state. Love is continuously stirring inside them. They cannot stop thinking of all the things they will do for love. Just as the water in a spring does not seem to fit in the ground and so the earth casts it out of itself, the soul cannot contain the love inside her. 
she is soaked in its waters. Since she has such abundance, she wants others to drink and join her in praising God. Oh, how many times have I remembered the living water that Christ told the Samaritan woman about. I have always been very fond of that gospel passage. From the time I was a little girl, I often begged the Lord to give me that living water long before I understood how good the water is. I kept a picture with me of the Lord coming to that well with these words inscribed beneath it. Sir, give me this water. This love is like water and also like fire. The fire is vast and always needs fuel to consume so that it will never go out. No matter how arduous the task may be, souls in this state will keep carrying wood so that the fire will not be extinguished. I'm even content if I only have pieces of straw to toss in. Often, that's all I have to offer. Sometimes I laugh at myself. Other times I grow so weary I could cry. An inner impulse moves me to offer some service, but I'm not good for much. I arrange branches and flowers before holy images. I sweep a hallway or tidy the chapel. There are a few other tasks, but they are so trivial that it embarrasses me to mention them. Even when I performed some small penance, I knew it was meaningless unless the Lord counted the intention behind the act and discounted the act itself. I couldn't help but make fun of myself for my petty efforts. When God so bountifully gives the fire of His love to a soul who lacks the physical strength to do anything useful for Him, it can be a terrible trial to her. Her grief is intense. If she is not strong enough to throw a little wood on that fire, she is terrified that it will go out. She is dying with longing and cannot do anything about it. I think a soul in this state consumes herself and turns to ash. She dissolves in tears and melts away. It is a severe torment, yet it is also a delightful one. Let the soul who has evolved to this point praise the Lord with all her heart, especially if He gives her the strength to sacrifice herself a little for His sake. Those to whom God has given the education, talents, and freedom to teach and bring other souls to Him have no idea what a blessing this is unless they have experienced what it's like to be unable to do these things and yet still be the recipient of such lavish gifts from God. May He be blessed forever, and may the angels glorify Him. Amen. I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing to put down so many details here. Ever since you sent me your most recent message, telling me not to worry that I'm saying too much and to be sure not to leave anything out, I'm writing everything I can think of as clearly and truthfully as I can remember. I can't help but leave out a great deal, but I would be wasting even more time if I covered every little detail, and I have so little time available as it is. Even if I had more time to write, I doubt I could add anything worthwhile. Chapter 31 Holy Water The temptations I've been telling you about were internal and private. 
Now I'd like to describe some of the more public ways the spirit of evil chose to torment me. It was impossible not to recognize his presence in these incidents. One day, when I was in the auditory, the spirit of evil appeared to me in a hideous form at my left side. Since he was speaking to me, I couldn't help but focus on his mouth, which was terrifying. A huge flame leapt from his body. It was very bright and cast no shadow. Truly, you have freed yourself from my clutches, he roared. But I will seize you with them again. I was very frightened. The minute I began to cross myself, he disappeared. But he immediately came back again. This happened twice. I didn't know what to do. Then I noticed a vial of holy water. I threw some in his direction, and he never returned. On another occasion, he tormented me for five or six hours with racking external physical pains and harrowing internal mental anguish. I didn't think I could bear it for a minute longer. The sisters who were with me had no idea how to help me, and I was totally incapable of helping myself. Normally, when I'm ill or in pain, I make it a practice to offer up my suffering to the Lord. If what I am going through might be of any service to His Majesty, I ask Him to give me the patience necessary for me to endure it until the end of the world. The agony was so severe that day that it was all I could do to maintain my resolve to give it to God. The Lord must have wanted me to recognize that the devil was causing this trouble, because suddenly there appeared an abominable, dark creature beside me. He was snarling, as if he was frustrated that he had lost what he had been trying so hard to win. When I saw him, all my fear drained away, and I laughed. But the sisters who had witnessed my suffering didn't understand what was going on. They couldn't figure out how to alleviate my pain, and they felt helpless. The spirit of evil made me thrash around and bang my head and limbs against the floor. I was powerless to stop it. The inner turmoil was even worse. I wanted to ask them for holy water, but I was afraid they would realize what was going on, and I didn't want to alarm them. In my experience, there is nothing more frightening to demons than holy water. It makes them run away and never come back. They flee from the cross too, but they return. Holy water must be incredibly potent. It has a powerfully refreshing quality that I could never adequately describe. I notice a singular consolation in my soul whenever I come into contact with holy water. It is an inner delight that thoroughly permeates my being. This is something that has happened to me not once, but many times. I have paid close attention to its effects. It's as if a person were very hot and thirsty, and someone handed him a cup of cold water. His entire being feels refreshed. Everything that is blessed is important, but I think there must be something especially sacred about the prayer that so vastly differentiates ordinary water from water that is blessed. That particular day, the torment just wouldn't let up. So finally, I said to the sisters, If you wouldn't laugh at me, I'd ask you for some holy water. 
They brought the holy water and sprinkled it on me, but it didn't do any good. I threw some in the direction of the evil spirit, and he vanished. In that moment, all the sickness left me, as if someone had scooped it out of me by hand. The only lingering symptom was a pervasive ache, as if I had been severely beaten with a stick. It made me think about what the spirit of evil would do to a soul he managed to capture for his own. Look at how much harm he did to one who does not belong to him. It renewed my desire to distance myself from such negative forces. This happened to me one other time, not long ago. I was alone, but I cried out for help. Two nuns rushed in with holy water. The evil spirit had already departed but the sister smelled a foul stench like sulfur in the room. I didn't smell anything, but these women are both very trustworthy and they would never tell a lie. The odor lingered long enough that other people detected it too. Another day, I was in the choir when I felt a strong urge toward recollection. I left the choir so that the other sisters would not notice the state I was entering but they all heard a loud crash in the place where I had just been kneeling. I heard the sound of nasty voices close to my ear, as if the evil spirits were plotting something, but I couldn't make out the words. By that time, I was so absorbed in prayer that I didn't perceive anything else, and I was completely unafraid. This kind of thing also happened every time the Lord granted me the favor of guiding some soul along the path that leads home to Him. I am about to tell you something that I can assure you really did happen. There were several witnesses. One of them is my current confessor. He saw it described in a letter and knew exactly to whom it pertained without my even telling him. A certain person came to me who had been engaged in grave spiritual error for two and a half years. It was one of the most serious transgressions I have ever heard of. He had not confessed his sins or made amends during this entire time, yet he continued to say Mass. How could I confess something so ugly, he asked me. This priest had a deep desire to give up his sinful behavior, but he couldn't help himself. I felt deep compassion for him, and it caused me great sorrow to see how he was forsaking God in this way. I promised that I would beseech God with all my heart to help him and that I would recruit some other people who are more spiritually evolved than I am to pray for him also. I sent letters to the priest through a certain person whom he trusted to deliver them. As it turns out, as soon as he read my first letter, he went to confession. I suppose having all those pious people praying for him had some effect. I am a miserable wretch but I approached his problem with tremendous care. It seems that God wanted to grant this soul his mercy. The priest wrote to me that he was doing much better. I haven't sinned for days, he said. Yet, temptation continued to torment him so severely that it sounded as if he were living in hell. He asked me to keep praying for him. I, in turn, asked my sisters to pray for him, and they took his situation deeply to heart. Still, nobody could guess the identity of the secret sinner. 
I implored his majesty to take away his torment and send those demons to me instead, as long as they would not cause me to offend my God. It was during that month that I suffered from the severe afflictions and diabolical intrusions I just described. I wrote to tell him what I was going through during this time, and he wrote back to tell me that it was working. The evil spirits had left him. His soul was fortified, and he felt truly liberated. He could not thank me enough, although he had nothing for which to thank me, and he praised God with all his heart. Knowing that God had granted me spiritual favors seemed to inspire him. When he read my letters and saw what I had suffered so that he could be saved, it motivated him to change for good. I was amazed myself. I would gladly have endured years of pain if it meant that this beautiful soul would be set free. May the Lord be praised for everything. The prayers of souls who serve him, like the sisters who live in this house, are powerful. I supposed it enraged the spirits of evil to see me seek these prayers, and they made me pay for it. I'm sure my own wickedness had something to do with my torment as well. Another strange thing happened during this period. One night, I woke up and couldn't breathe. I thought they were choking me. The sisters came and sprinkled a lot of holy water all around my cell. Suddenly, I saw a large crowd of evil spirits rushing past, as if they were on their way to throw themselves off a cliff. There are many times when these demons still try to torment me, but I am no longer afraid. I know that they have no power except what God allows them to have. It would bore you to hear about the many little ways they have beleaguered me. I would bore myself to recount them. I pray that what I have written so far is of some help to the true servants of God. Pay no attention to the scarecrows the spirit of evil sets up to frighten us. Remember, every time we ignore them, they grow weaker and we gain more mastery. We always benefit in some way from these encounters. I won't elaborate on that now or I'd be off on another long tangent. I'll just tell you about one thing that happened to me on the night of all souls. I was in the oratory and had just finished reciting a nocturne. I was starting to repeat the deeply devotional prayers that come next in our prayer book. Suddenly, a demon swooped down and actually landed on my books that I couldn't finish reading the prayer. I crossed myself and he went away. But the minute I began praying again, he came back. I think this happened three more times. It wasn't until I threw holy water at him that I was finally able to complete my prayer. At that moment, I saw several souls emerge from purgatory. Their period of purification must have been almost up, and the spirit of evil had been trying to prevent their release. I have not seen the devil in physical form many times, but I have often perceived his presence. I want to tell you about another thing that really frightened me. One day, on the Feast of the Holy Trinity, I was sitting in the choir of another monastery and had slipped into rapture. In this heightened state, I witnessed a great battle between angels and devils. I did not understand what the vision meant at the time, but less than two weeks later, a bitter conflict erupted between some sisters who were deeply devoted to the practice of prayer and some who were not at all prayerful. 
suddenly that vision made sense. This dispute caused a great deal of harm in the house. It lasted for a very long time and shook everyone up. There were other times when I saw a crowd of evil spirits gathered around me, but I was enveloped in light and they could not touch me. I could tell that God was watching over me and keeping them away so that they could not make me forsake him. Knowing who I am, this was a real danger. Since then, I have come to understand that as long as I do not set myself up against God, the spirit of evil has almost no power and I have very little to fear. Unless they encounter cowardly souls who give in to them, demons have no strength. Sometimes I suffered from such compelling temptations that it seemed as if all the vanities and weaknesses of my past were reawakening inside me. I had to pray hard to get through it. This experience made me question all over again whether the favors I had received from God actually came from the spirit of evil. It seemed to me that someone who had experienced the blessings I had experienced shouldn't have the tiniest twinge of a bad thought ever again. But my confessor set my mind at peace about this. Another thing that tormented me then and continues to torment me now is when people put me on a pedestal. It especially disturbs me when highly prominent people speak of me with great respect. I have suffered terribly from this kind of esteem. Look at the life of Christ. Look at the lives of the saints. Did they evolve through flattery? No. They attained their station by being subjected to contempt and insults. My life is the opposite of theirs. I'm like someone who does not dare raise her head for fear of being noticed. I feel better when I'm being persecuted. Then my soul walks with her head held high. My body may suffer and I may experience certain kinds of emotional pain, but my soul is master of herself. I don't really understand how this works, but that's how it is. At times like this, the soul seems to be ruler of her own kingdom. Everything rests beneath her feet. There is another temptation I have grappled with. Sometimes it lasts for many days. It tries to disguise itself as the virtue of humility. But a very learned Dominican friar clearly explained to me that it is a trap. Whenever I considered the possibility that the favors the Lord was granting me might become public knowledge, I suffered intensely. My soul became so disturbed that I would have preferred to be buried alive than have people find out about my spiritual experiences. Since I was incapable of resisting recollection and rapture, even when they happened in front of other people, I would always emerge from one of these deep states, feeling so ashamed that I was reluctant to go out where anyone might see me. Once, when I was especially worried about this, the Lord spoke to me. What are you afraid of? He asked. Only one of two things could come of it. People will either criticize you or praise me. He explained that people who believed in the experience would praise him, and those who didn't would condemn me. It wasn't my problem. Either way, the outcome would benefit me, so I shouldn't be anxious. This calmed me a great deal. I still feel comforted when I think about it. But at that time, the temptation reached such an intense degree that I wanted to pack up and move to a place 
where nobody knew me. I had heard about a convent that was far more cloistered than the one in which I was living. I had heard great things about that community. It belonged to my own order, and it was many miles from Avila. I would have felt much better being anonymous, but my confessor wouldn't let me leave. This fear seriously encumbered my freedom of spirit. I finally realized that it was not a sign of true humility. It caused too much anxiety. Besides, the Lord taught me this truth. His blessing is not some good thing reserved for me alone. It belongs to God. I must be absolutely certain of this. Am I sorry when I hear other people praised for their holiness? On the contrary, it gives me comfort and joy to see that God has revealed himself in them, and so I should never be troubled if he displays his works in me. Whenever a person seemed to see something good in me, I had a tendency toward another extreme. There was a special prayer I had composed for just such an occasion in which I besieged His Majesty to reveal my sins to that person. That way, the person wouldn't mistakenly believe the favor I was receiving correlated with any merit on my part. It is very important to me that people understand how undeserving I am of God's abundant grace. My spiritual director advised against this special prayer, but until very recently I found it difficult to stop. I always seek roundabout ways to advertise my transgressions when it looks like someone is starting to think highly of me. Even though it gives me relief to do this, my confessor does not approve, and he has made me more circumspect about this behavior. It turns out that these feelings did not arise from humility, but were a subtle kind of temptation. I was obsessed with the notion that I was deceiving everyone. And while it is true that they were mistaken about my goodness, I certainly did not intentionally delude them. The Lord had his own reasons for making them think such things. I even tried to stop discussing the issue with my spiritual guides unless it really seemed necessary, because I recognized that I had a tendency to make too much of it. Now I understand how these guilty little fears that masquerade as humility come from a lack of spiritual development. A soul who has surrendered herself into God's hands doesn't care whether people say good things or bad things about her. God has given her the gift of understanding that nothing she has belongs to her alone. Let the soul trust in the one who has given her this gift, and she will discover why he has given it to her. Let her be ready for persecution, for in times like these, it is guaranteed that the minute people begin to hear that a certain person is being granted divine favors, the person will be condemned for it. There are a thousand eyes fixed on such a person, while a thousand other people go entirely unnoticed. There are perfectly valid reasons to be afraid, but my qualms stem from simple faint-heartedness. A soul whom God leads along an open path before the eyes of the whole world should be prepared to be martyred. If she does not willingly die to the world, the world itself will surely kill her. There is nothing in this world that pleases me except its basic refusal to tolerate faults in good people. By criticizing them, it perfects them. I say that it is easier to suffer a quick martyrdom than to follow the way of perfection. 
Unless the Lord chooses to grant the special privilege of perfecting a soul all at once, perfecting generally comes very slowly and requires tremendous courage. When the world sees that someone has started out on that path, it demands that she be perfect right away. The world thinks that it detects a fault in someone from a thousand miles away, when what it perceives might actually be a virtue. Maybe that same behavior is actually a vice in the person who condemns it, and he judges others the way he should be judged himself. Souls on the path to perfection are hardly allowed to eat or sleep or even breathe. The more highly they are esteemed, the more they are expected to forget they have a body. No matter how perfect a person's soul might be, or how successfully she may have trampled the world under her feet, she still lives on this earth and is subject to its miseries. Such a soul must be very brave. She has barely begun to walk, and they are trying to make her fly. She still hasn't conquered her passions, and they are insisting that she be unmoved in the face of great temptation. They have read how the saints behaved after having been confirmed in grace, and they expect this poor soul to act the same way. There is great cause to praise the Lord here, but there is equally ample reason to grieve. Many souls turn back at this point because they don't know how to help themselves. I believe my own soul would have turned back if the Lord himself, in his mercy, hadn't done everything for me. Before that, as you will see, all I could do was fall down and get up again and fall again. I wish I knew how to express this. I know I have used this comparison before, but I think it's worth repeating because I see so many souls suffering unnecessarily. They have been deluded into thinking they are supposed to fly before God has even given them wings. They start off with fervent desires and powerful determination to evolve in virtue. Some of these souls have severed all their worldly attachments. Then they notice other souls who have grown in perfection and engage in highly virtuous actions. They read all the books on prayer and contemplation and hear about the things we need to do to rise to that exalted state. And they become thoroughly dejected as a result. There is someone who seems to be happier when people speak badly about him than when they speak well of him. He doesn't care about his reputation. There's another who has distanced himself from all of his old relationships because the people are not interested in prayer and it wearies him to converse with anyone who isn't on a spiritual path. This troubled soul doesn't realize that God is the one who gives us these gifts we cannot cultivate them independently. These virtues are supernatural. That is, they transcend our natural inclinations. Let these souls drop their anxiety. Let them trust in the Lord. Let them simply practice prayer and do the best they can. His Majesty will take their highest desires and turn them into action. Our nature is weak. It is very important to cultivate confidence and not lose heart. We should not give in to the doubt that our sincere efforts will lead to victory. Since I have so much experience in these matters, I'd like to offer a little advice. 
Don't think that you have gained virtue unless you have been tried by its corresponding vice. We must always be vigilant and never take our growth for granted as long as we live. We have not yet been given the grace to understand the true nature of everything. There are many dangers in this life, and it's easy to get attached to worldly things. A few years ago, I thought I had achieved the virtue of detachment from my relatives. Since many of them did not practice prayer, distancing myself from them was not difficult. The truth is, I could hardly stand to have a conversation with them. They bored me. Then a very important business matter came up, and I had to go stay with my younger sister Juana for a while. I had been very fond of her before, but now I didn't feel any rapport between us, even though she was a better person than I. She was married, and we had very little in common. We didn't talk about the things I would have liked to discuss, so I spent most of my time alone. I noticed, however, that listening to her marital troubles upset me and worried me far more than they would have if I had been hearing about the tribulations of a neighbor. I came to realize that I was not as free as I thought. I saw that if I wanted the seed of virtue the Lord had begun to give me to flower, I would have to avoid the opportunity to be attached. With His help, I have tried to do this ever since. When the Lord begins to instill a certain virtue in the soul, she should tend it well and never take the risk of losing it. This is especially true of attachment to what other people think. Do not assume that those of us who believe we are detached actually are. We have to be exceedingly careful about this. Anyone who wants to make progress on the path but is concerned about his reputation needs to listen to my advice. Strive to detach. Attachment is like a chain no file can cut. Only our sincere prayers and earnest efforts, combined with God's grace, can set us free. Attachments are like shackles on the spiritual path. I am astounded by the harm they can cause. I see certain people who impress everyone with the righteous and sacred acts they perform. God help me. Why are souls like that still on earth? Why haven't they reached the summit of perfection? What is this? What would be holding someone back who has done so much for God? I'll tell you. Attachment to what other people think. What's even worse is that these men have no idea they are attached. This is because the spirit of evil sometimes makes us think that we are entitled to receive honor. Let these men believe me. Let them, for the love of God, believe this little aunt who has something to say. The Lord wants her to say it. If you do not pick off the caterpillar of attachment, it probably won't destroy the whole tree because other virtues will compensate for it. But the tree will be worm-eaten. It will not flourish. It will not be beautiful. It won't even allow the trees around it to thrive. The fruits of good example they offer to others will not be healthy and will quickly wither. I often say that no matter how small a point of honor may be, it is not worth fighting for. Concern about what other people think is like striking the wrong chord on the organ or playing a song when the timing is off. The music is dissonant and ugly. 
This attachment to reputation is a problem in any context, but it is especially toxic on the path to perfection. We are striving for union with God. We are seeking to follow His teachings, which have come through Christ, who was falsely accused and burdened by His wounds. And we also want our honor and reputation to remain intact? These two desires are mutually exclusive. If we take different roads, how can we expect to meet God? The Lord comes to the soul when she has made a voluntary effort to surrender her rights in every possible arena. But I don't have any opportunities to practice detachment from my rights, you might say. Or I have nothing to give up. Remember, the Lord wants you to attain the highest good. If you are determined to break your attachments, I do not believe He will stand in your way. His Majesty will arrange so many occasions for you to practice detachment that you may wish you had never asked. All hands to the task. I like to mention some of the little nothings I used to care about when I first embarked on the path. Among my many other faults, I neglected to learn all the prayers in my prayer book or the various duties we were expected to perform in the choir. I was too busy engaging in vanities and trivialities. But there were other novices who were capable of teaching me these things. Did I ask for help? No. I was afraid they would discover how little I knew. Plus, I didn't want to set a bad example. What a cheap excuse. Soon enough, God opened my eyes a little. Then, even when I actually did know what I was doing, I would ask the youngest girls for guidance. I didn't lose any honor or credit by doing this. In fact, the Lord seemed to give me a better memory from then on. I didn't know how to sing very well either. Whenever they entrusted me to lead a song and I failed to practice adequately, I panicked. It wasn't that I was afraid of making a mistake in front of the Lord. That would have been a virtuous qualm. I was concerned about the opinions of the people who were listening to me. And so, for purely egotistical reasons, I became so agitated that I ended up doing far worse than I should have. Later, when I was unsure of my part, I took it upon myself to ask someone. This was very painful for me at first, but eventually I came to enjoy it. It turned out that the less I came to care about what people thought of what I knew, the better I sang. Whereas the more I tried to protect my miserable honor, the more I failed in performing what I considered to be a true honor. Honor. That word means different things to different people. With the combined energy of all these little nothings, which really do amount to nothing, and the utter nothing that I am, since such nothings bothered me so much, my efforts began to pay off. His Majesty values every little thing we do for Him. Then He helps us do bigger things. So I was thinking about the problem of humility. I could see that everyone in the house was making progress in this area except me. I had always been good for nothing. It occurred to me to gather up all the sisters' mantles after they had left the choir. This made me feel like I was serving the angels who were praising God there. This went on for quite some time. Then somehow, and I will never know how, they found out what I was up to. This embarrassed me terribly. 
not because I had grown so virtuous that I was willing for people to know my secrets, nor was it a matter of humility. Rather, I was afraid they would laugh at me because the things I was doing were so trivial. Oh, my Lord, I am ashamed of so much wickedness. Here I am, reporting on some grains of sand I still couldn't lift from the riverbed to serve you. Everything I did came wrapped in a thousand miseries. The water of your grace was not yet flowing beneath my sands to raise them up. Oh, my Creator, amid so many evils, who could find anything worthy to talk about? What do I have to offer compared to the great favors you have given me? But so it is, my beloved Lord, and I don't think my heart can bear it. I don't know how anyone reading this can fail to hate me. Look how poorly I have repaid such wondrous blessings. And in the end, I shamelessly claim the services I have offered you as my own. Yes, I am ashamed, my Lord, I really am. But since I have so little to say for myself, I elaborate on my lowly beginnings. My hope is that anyone who actually does great things right from the start will take heart from my poor example. It is clear the Lord took my meager efforts into account. Surely he will value theirs all the more. May it please his majesty that I not get stuck at the beginning forever. Amen. Chapter 32 A Glimpse of the Underworld One day while I was in prayer, I suddenly found myself plunged into hell. The Lord had long ago begun to grant me exalted states of prayer. I didn't know how I had ended up here. Then I realized that the Lord wanted me to catch a glimpse of where a life of sin leads. The whole experience only lasted for the twinkling of an eye, but it made such an impression on me that I don't think I could ever forget it even if I were to live for many years. The entrance to hell looked like a long, narrow alley or a low, dark furnace. The floor was covered with filthy mud that emitted a noxious stench. It was swarming with disgusting vermin. There was a small hole like a cupboard, scooped out of the wall at the end of the alley. I found myself stuffed into it. Compared to what I felt then, what I had been seeing was pleasant. I cannot exaggerate what it was like. I experienced a fire in my soul that I could never begin to describe. I have suffered grave physical ailments in this lifetime. During that time when I became paralyzed, all my nerves were constricted. Doctors have told me that the excruciating pain I have endured is the worst a human being can bear here on earth. And the devil has also caused me terrible suffering but nothing compared to what I experienced in hell. The thought that this pain would go on without end and never cease compounded my suffering. Yet even this paled compared to the anguish of my soul. I was strangled and suffocating. The agonizing despair was so intense that it's impossible to find words strong enough to describe it. It would be inadequate to say that it's as if the soul were being unrelentingly torn from the body. 
That would make it sound like someone else was stealing the life from the soul. The truth is, the soul herself is tearing herself into pieces. I simply don't know how to convey the fury of that inward fire and hopeless misery. It far exceeds the most intense pain and torment we could imagine. I felt as though I were being crushed and scorched, yet I couldn't see who was inflicting this on me. But the worst part, as I said, was the inner fire and despair. I found it impossible either to sit or lie down in the horrific hole. The walls, hideous and cramped, seemed to be closing in on themselves, blotting out everything. There is no light in that place. Everything is enveloped in the densest darkness. Yet everything that is painful to see was fully visible to me. I don't understand how this can be so. It was not the Lord's will for me to see any more of hell at that time. Since then, I have had other frightening visions that depicted what would happen if I continued to indulge in certain vices. But even though these things seemed more dreadful, they were not accompanied by that racking physical pain, so they did not terrorize me as much. In the vision of hell, the Lord wanted me to experience the spiritual torments and afflictions in a visceral way, as if my body were actually involved. I don't know how such a thing can be true, but I believe the Lord was doing me a big favor by giving me this glimpse of the underworld and letting me see with my own eyes the fate from which His mercy had delivered me. Reading an account of this is nothing compared to the reality of the experience. Sometimes I have purposely tried to think about certain torments, like demons tearing off my flesh with their pincers or various other forms of torture I've read about. But I don't do well with fearful thoughts. Still, nothing comes close to the excruciating pain I felt in hell. It is altogether different from anything that can be experienced on earth. Being burned alive here in this world is nothing compared to blazing in the fires of that world. This experience left me terrified. I still feel horror now, almost six years later. As I write about this, a chill creeps into my bones and makes me tremble. Looking back, I cannot think of a single trial I have experienced in this lifetime that can measure up to that fleeting taste of the underworld. We have no reason to complain about mundane problems. The Lord did me a big favor when He plunged me into hell. It helped put the tribulations and contradictions of this life into perspective for me. It gave me the strength to suffer these things. It also renewed my gratitude toward God, who liberated me from everlasting torment. Everything else seems easy now. It astonishes me that even after I had read books that described the horrors of hell, I didn't take them seriously. What was I thinking? How could I possibly have found pleasure in anything that was leading me to that dreadful place? Oh, my God! May you be forever blessed. It is clear to me now that you loved me more than I loved myself. How many times, my beloved, have you freed me from that dark prison only to have me defy you by locking myself up all over again? This is what makes me so sad for all the souls who have fallen into disgrace. I want to help them return.
especially those who have been baptized and are already lovers of Christ. I would willingly suffer a thousand deaths if it meant I could set even one such soul free from such terrible torture. Think about it. Whenever someone we love in a special way suffers here on earth, our very nature moves us to compassion. If their trial is severe, we ourselves suffer. Who, then, could bear to see any soul suffer the never-ending fires of the underworld? No heart could possibly endure this without breaking. In this world, we know that life is finite and any affliction will eventually be relieved by death. Yet we are still moved to deep compassion by the suffering of others. How can we rest knowing that so many souls are facing endless agony in that other world? How can we stand by while the spirit of evil carries away so many souls every day? This vision also makes me wish that we would all do everything in our power to avoid this outcome for ourselves. Let us neglect nothing, and may it be the Lord's will to give us the grace to serve Him in all ways. It strikes me that no matter how badly I sometimes behaved, my intentions were always good. I cared deeply about being of service to God. I didn't do certain things that I see other people do so carelessly, as if they didn't mean a thing. Plus, I have suffered grave illnesses very patiently. Of course, the Lord Himself gave me this patience. I was not inclined to gossip or criticize other people. I never wished anything bad on anybody. And I don't remember ever being so envious that my feelings would be offensive to the Lord. There were several other good things I did, because even though I was wretched, I was always in awe of God. Yet, in spite of all this, look where the evil spirits took me. And my transgressions probably earned me an even worse fate than the one I glimpsed. The torture was unbearable. It is a dangerous thing to become self-satisfied. It's too easy to fall into grave error with every step. For the love of God, we constantly need to be vigilant about missing the mark. The Lord will help us. He helped me. May it be God's will never to release me from His hand. We know where I will end up. Being who He is, may He keep me from falling. Amen. The Lord, in His mercy, showed me this and other secret things. It was His will for me to understand the glory He gives to the good and the pain that the wicked must endure. I was anxious to find out how I could make amends for the bad things I had done and earn back the goodness I may have forfeited. I had this urge to get away from people and completely withdraw from the world. My spirit was restless, yet it was a delightful kind of disquiet and not a disturbing one. It was obvious that this gentle anxiety came from God. His Majesty was heating up my soul so that I could more readily digest the tough meats He was feeding me. I was thinking about what I could do for God. It occurred to me that one of the first things would be to follow the call to the monastic life His Majesty had given me more authentically and try to honor my vows as perfectly as possible. There were many servants of God at the Incarnation who were sincerely dedicated to Him. Nevertheless, to the extent that was appropriate to their religious vocation, 
Sometimes they needed to stay somewhere else for a while. Our community was poor, and the sisters endured constant hardship. Also, our convent did not strictly observe the rules of our order, but then neither did the rest of the order. It seemed to me that our monastery was quite comfortable. It was spacious and pleasant. I think the ease of life there was a disadvantage. I was just as inclined to leave as anyone. But this was because there were certain nuns our superiors found it impossible to refuse, and they liked to have me near them. When the superiors were cajoled into it, they would often order me to go along. Thus, as a result of my vow of obedience, I wasn't home very much. I suspect the spirit of evil had something to do with this. Since I was sharing the things I was learning about the spiritual path with some of my sisters, he was trying to thwart the good that came from this. One day, I was talking with a small group of women about the lack of spiritual depth at the Incarnation. We expressed our yearning to live and practice prayer like the ancient desert fathers and mothers. If we can't go to the desert, Maria said, why can't we found a little monastery of our own with just a few sisters, where we could live an austere life of prayer together? Maria's question echoed my own desires. I began to discuss the idea with Doña Guilmar, the widowed lady I have mentioned, because I knew she shared this vision. She immediately set about trying to secure the funds necessary to establish the new house and provide it with a modest income. I see now that our initial plan did not have much chance of materializing, but our longing made us think it was a viable one. The truth is, I was perfectly content at the Incarnation. All my needs were met, and my cell was just the way I liked it. So I think I was holding back a little from making such a radical move. Still, we agreed to pray about it with deep intention and see what God had in mind for us. One day, after communion, His Majesty spoke to me. You must strive with all your might to make this dream of a new monastery come true, he said. I promise it will not fail to thrive, and it will be of great service to me. He told me we should call it St. Joseph's. St. Joseph will keep watch over one door, he said, and Our Lady at the other. Christ will live among you. This place will be a star that will radiate its light everywhere. The Lord went on to remind me that even though we were correct to strive for radical simplicity, Conventional monasteries were not bad places. They served him, too. What would become of the world, he asked, if there weren't people willing to detach from material pursuits and assume a life of prayer? Finally, he commanded me to tell my confessor what he had ordained. He said I should make it clear that God did not want Father Balthasar to go against the plan or prevent me from acting on it. This vision had a powerful effect on me. God's voice was so clear that I could not possibly doubt he had really spoken to me. He had partly revealed the severe trials and trouble that founding a new monastery would cause me, and the thought of facing all this caused me intense pain. I was very happy at the Incarnation. Until this vision, I had treated the idea somewhat casually. I had not approached it with the determination and confidence necessary to bring it into being. I felt as if a heavy burden was being placed on my shoulders. 
when I realized that my calm life was about to be shattered, I didn't know what to do. But the Lord returned again and again to speak to me about this new monastery. He gave me so many clear reasons and explanations that I could no longer doubt that it was His will for me to carry it through. This gave me the courage to write a letter to my confessor, telling him everything that had happened. Father Balthasar did not dare to tell me to forget the whole thing, but he did not consider it feasible. From a strictly rational standpoint, he did not believe it would work, since Doña Guiomar, who had offered to support the new house, did not have the practical means for doing so. He told me to speak with the Provincial of Castile about the matter. My companion, Doña Guiomar, spoke with the Provincial instead. The Provincial of Castile was very sympathetic to the contemplative life. He loved the idea and offered her his unconditional support. He said he would be happy to have such a monastery under his jurisdiction. They discussed the income the house would require. For a number of reasons, we decided our monastery would never have more than 13 residents. Later, we ended up lifting the restriction on numbers. Before we went any further, we consulted the holy friar Pedro de Alcántara. We informed him of everything that was happening. Do not give up on this, he urged us. He offered his advice on how to found a monastic community. No sooner did word of our plans spread through the city than persecution came raining down on us. It was so intense that I cannot begin to describe it. People spread all kinds of gossip about us. They ridiculed us. They declared the idea absurd. They said I should just leave things as they were and they gave my companion such a hard time that it completely wore her down. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't help but wonder if they were right. Weary to my core, I prayed to God, and His Majesty began to console and encourage me. Now you can see the suffering the saints who founded religious orders had to endure, he said. There is much more persecution still to come. You must not let it bother you. And then he told me some things to convey to my companion. What amazed me most was how his words instilled such deep comfort in us that we found the courage to stand up to all the abuse. There was hardly a person throughout the greater spiritual community who was not hostile to our cause. In fact, the whole city seemed to be against us. Everyone seemed to think the project was completely foolish. The outcry and negative talk from my own monastery was so excessive that the provincial decided it would be imprudent to oppose them. So he changed his mind and withdrew his support. The income is too small, he explained, and the opposition is too great. All things considered, he seemed to be right. So our most influential advocate abandoned the project and refused to sanction it. For those of us who had already been the target of violent blows, this was a painful rejection, especially for me. With the provincial behind me, people had taken me seriously. As for my companion, they threatened that unless she abandoned the idea, they would refuse to give her absolution. They blamed her for creating a scandal. Terribly upset by these accusations, Doña Guiomar confided in a very learned Dominican named Pedro Ibáñez. Actually, she had been giving him a full account of our plans and soliciting his advice from the beginning, 
even before the provincial turned his back on us. He was one of the only people who did not dismiss our project as a mere whim. Doña Guillermar shared all the details with Father Ibanez, including how much income she could expect from her estate. She told him she had nowhere else to turn, and she fervently hoped he would help us. After all, she said, he was the most learned man in all of Avila. Then I told Father Ibanez all the things we were thinking of doing and explained the reasons behind them. I avoided mentioning anything about my revelations and relied on the rational arguments for our case. I saw no cause for complicating things with the supernatural source of my impulse. I will give you an answer in eight days, he told us. And then he asked, Are you determined to do whatever I tell you? Yes, said Doña Guchmar. Yes, I said. I agreed to this because I knew there was no other way to go forward with the project. But in truth, I never doubted for a moment that the monastery would be founded. My companion had even more faith than I. Nothing anyone said could have dissuaded her from our cause. I simply found it impossible to consider the notion of giving up. Since the vision did not in any way go against sacred scripture or break any of the religious rules we were compelled to observe, I believed it must be a true revelation. Although I was certain we were dealing with a divinely ordained venture, I'm also certain that I would have obeyed the Dominican if he had come to the conclusion that we would be offending God by following through on our plan. All he would have needed to do was tell me we were doing something that defied the demands of good conscience, and I would have sought some other way to respond to the urgings of my Lord. But my Lord did not offer any alternative. This great servant of God later admitted to me that he was fully determined when we came to him to insist that we give up the foundation. He had heard too many rumors and was convinced that the project was untenable. When a certain important gentleman found that you had come to me, he went on, he warned me to be careful of you and advised me to refuse to help you. But as Father Ibanez began to search his own soul and consider what kind of an answer he would give us, he reflected more deeply on the matter and turned his attention to our true motivation. He realized how determined we were to live a deeper spiritual life and saw that our foundation could not help but be of great service to God. So, after the eight days, Father Ibanez said, Go ahead and found that monastery and do it quickly. He told us how to bring the project to fruition. Your resources may be limited, he said, but you have to trust in God for something. Then he said, If anyone tries to stop you, send them to me. I'll deal with it. And Father Ibanez never did let us down. His reply was very comforting to us. A number of very pious people who had been in opposition to us revised their attitude because of Father Ibanez's support. Some of them even helped us. Among them was that saintly gentleman, Don Francisco, who changed his mind and decided that the impetus could come from God. His only concern had been one of practicality. He couldn't see how we would pull it off, but he knew that prayer was our entire basis for wanting to found this monastery. Because he was so holy, he recognized that even though it was likely to be terribly difficult, 
our plan carried the potential for great perfection. It seems that the Lord himself transformed Don Francisco's opinion, and he did the same thing for the learned cleric Gaspar Daza. Father Daza is one of the men I mentioned with whom I had spoken at the beginning. Everyone in Avila looks up to him. God keeps him there as a positive example to help guide many souls. He, too, stepped up to help me with this endeavor. Now, with the assistance of many prayers, we had arrived at a crucial junction. We made an offer on a house in a good section of town. It was small, but that didn't trouble me. His Majesty had told me to get started and simply do the best I could. Soon you will see what I will do for you, he said. And how well I have seen it. So although I was well aware that we had almost no money, I believed the Lord would help us and arrange other ways for us to thrive. Chapter 33 Divine Disobedience The business of founding a new monastery was about to be concluded. The deeds were drawn up and ready to be signed. Suddenly, our father provincial changed his mind again. In retrospect, I see that this was meant to be. Powerful prayers were being offered up for this foundation. The Lord seemed to be using these prayers to perfect the work and bring it about in another way. Once the provincial refused to sanction the new monastery, my confessor ordered me to let the whole project go. Only the Lord knows the hard labor and suffering it had cost me to bring things to this point. It was the provincial himself who had commanded me to do everything I had done so far. Yet, the prevailing opinion seemed to be that this notion of a new monastery was nothing more than the foolishness of women. When the project was so abruptly dropped, it intensified the rampant criticism and gossip about me. My desire to found a more strictly enclosed house made me very unpopular throughout the Incarnation. They accused me of many things. I was insulting them. I could serve God just as well where I already lived, since there were many women here who were much holier than I. I had no loyalty to my own convent. I should be busy raising funds for my own house rather than founding a new one. Some said I should be thrown into a prison cell. Others tentatively defended me. But not many. I accepted the possibility that my opponents were right in many respects. Sometimes I tried to explain myself to them, but mostly I remained silent because I could not mention the most important factor, that the Lord himself had charged me with this task. I didn't know what to do next, so I simply waited for his guidance. God granted me the grace to be unperturbed by all this, I gave up the plan with ease. I was as content as if the whole thing had cost me nothing. No one could believe this, not even my companions in prayer. They were sure that I must be very upset and ashamed. Even my confessor was puzzled by my calm. The truth is, I knew that I had done everything I could to fulfill what the Lord had ordained for me to do and that I was under no obligation to do more at this time. So I stayed at the Incarnation and was satisfied there. Still, I never stopped believing that the monastery would eventually happen. I just couldn't see the means or the timing. 
What did cause me terrible anguish, however, was a letter my confessor wrote to me. He spoke as if I had opposed his will. I supposed the Lord noticed that I hadn't been tested enough in the area that was the most painful to me, and he sent me this trial. I had always counted on Father Balthazar to comfort me in the midst of persecution. Instead, when I needed him most, here he was scolding me. From what has happened, you must realize by now that the whole project was a dream, he wrote. You should make amends and not speak about this thing or act on it again. You see what a scandal you have caused. He said many other things, all equally painful for me to hear. This letter distressed me more than everything else put together. Had I really led other souls astray? Had I offended my God? Had these visions of a new monastery been delusions? Had all the prayer I had experienced been nothing more than self-deception? Was I utterly lost? These self-doubts weighed on my heart and plunged me into confusion. But the Lord did not let me down. He consoled and strengthened me throughout my many trials. There's no reason to enumerate them all here. Do not be troubled, he said. You have been of great service to me and have not offended me in any way. For now, do what your confessor tells you. Remain silent. The time will come to return to our task. This message left me deeply comforted. I felt so happy that the criticism being hurled at me seemed like nothing at all. Through this suffering, the Lord taught me what a blessing it is to endure persecution for His sake. I watched the love of God blossom in my soul to such an extent that I was amazed. It made me desire even more trials. My silence made people think that I was deeply ashamed. And I would have been ashamed if not for the fact that the Lord was showering me with His grace. The impulses of love for God began to surge more powerfully in my soul, and the raptures grew more intense. Still, I stayed quiet and didn't mention these blessings to anyone. Father Ibanez, the Holy Dominican Friar, remained as certain as I was that the monastery would come into being. He understood that I didn't wish to go against my confessor by involving myself in any plans, so he conferred instead with my companion Doña Guilhmar. They rode to Rome and started negotiating for the foundation. Around this time, the spirit of evil began to spread the word from person to person that I had received some kind of revelation about this work. People who cared about me were alarmed. They reminded me that we were living in treacherous times and that I was at risk of being reported to the Inquisition. This amused me, and I laughed. I was not afraid of being denounced. I knew myself. And anyone who paid attention would see that I would rather die a thousand deaths than go against a single ritual of the Church or article of faith in Holy Scripture. Don't worry about these accusations, I reassured my companions. It would be pretty bad for my soul if she harbored something that would make me fear the Inquisition. If I believed I had something to fear, I myself would seek out the Inquisitors and turn myself in. And then, even if they found me guilty, 
the Lord would free me and I would gain from the experience. I discussed this with my Dominican father. He knew so much about so many religious matters that I felt fully confident with whatever he told me. I disclosed all the details of the visions and voices. I described the nature of my prayer and the great gifts the Lord had given me. Please, I begged him, consider all this carefully and tell me what you think. Let me know if there's anything in it that is opposed to sacred scripture. Father Ibanez relieved me of all my concerns, and something about our exchange seemed to benefit him as well. He had always been a good man, but from then on he devoted himself almost exclusively to the inner life. He retired to a secluded monastery of his own order where he could maintain more solitude and engage more deeply in the practice of prayer. He remained in that place for more than two years. But because he was so badly needed by so many souls, obedience called him back into the public sphere to his grave disappointment. I missed Father Ibanez terribly when he went away. But even though his leaving was a great loss to me personally, I did nothing to prevent him from going. That's because when I was feeling sad about losing him, the Lord consoled me. Do not be troubled, he said. Father Ibanez is being well guided, and his soul is flourishing in the place where he has gone. Indeed, Father Ibanez made such dramatic spiritual progress that when he returned, he told me he would not have given up his time there for anything in the world. I couldn't help but affirm the beneficial effects. Before his retreat, he had consoled me through his intellectual knowledge. But now, he did so through the things he had learned from spiritual experience. He was beginning to receive an abundance of supernatural blessings, and God brought him back to me at the precise moment when he could be of most help in the work of founding the monastery His Majesty wanted. Well, I kept quiet for five or six months. I did not speak about the matter to anyone and avoided getting involved in any of the details. The Lord gave me no further guidance about what to do, so I did nothing. I wasn't sure why, but I could not get it out of my head that this foundation was eventually going to happen. At the end of this period, the director of the local Jesuits was transferred and replaced by a deeply spiritual man named Gaspar de Salazar. Father de Salazar had great courage, profound understanding, and an impressive background in theological studies. He brought all these things into my life during a time when I was in dire need of them. Since my confessor, too, was a member of the Society of Jesus, that made Father de Salazar his superior. The Jesuits share this extreme characteristic. They do not dare move a muscle unless it conforms to the will of their superior. So, although Father Baltazar thoroughly understood my soul and wanted it to grow, he was reluctant to take any action on his own, and for good reason. My spirit was weathering tremendous impulses of love at this time, and although the effort to hold myself back made me feel like I was in jail, I did not disobey his orders. One day, when I was especially distressed about the fact that my confessor did not believe in me, the Lord spoke to me. Don't worry, he told me. Your troubles will be over soon. I rejoiced deeply.
because I thought this meant that I was about to die. It made me happy to think of it. Afterward, it became obvious that these words were referring to the arrival of the new Jesuit director who greatly alleviated my distress. Father de Salazar did not restrain my confessor with regard to my soul, but instead told him to console me. He told Father Balthasar that there was no reason to fear and that he should not lead me by such a restrictive path. He insisted that my confessor allow the Spirit of the Lord to work in me. Sometimes these spiritual impulses took my breath away. This new director came to visit me at the Incarnation. My confessor had advised me to feel free to speak to him with perfect candor and directness. Normally, I was repulsed by the prospect of talking about myself. But the moment I entered the confessional, I experienced something I don't remember having felt with anyone else before or since. I don't know how to describe the experience either literally or metaphorically. A wave of spiritual joy washed over me. A certainty burgeoned within my soul that his soul would completely understand mine, and mine would be in perfect harmony with his. I don't know how such an experience is possible, but that's what happened to me. I had never spoken to the man before and had heard nothing about him in advance. There was no logical reason for my heart to be filled with such hope. Later I discovered that my spirit had not been deceived. My conversations with Father de Salazar have greatly contributed to the growth of my soul. He works skillfully with people whom the Lord has already brought fairly far along the path. Instead of forcing them to keep walking step by step, he encourages them to run. He does this by getting them to detach in every possible way. The Lord has given him a great gift for this, as well as for many other things. When I started to converse with Father de Salazar, I quickly understood what kind of person he was and the special way he was guiding souls in his care. I saw that his own soul was pure and holy and that this gave him a unique talent for discerning spirits. He was very consoling to me. Not long after I met Father de Salazar, the Lord once again began to urge me to take up the monastery project. He armed me with plenty of reasonable arguments to present to my confessor and his rector about why they should not stand in my way. Some of these reasons frightened them. Father de Salazar had never doubted that I was being prompted by the Spirit of God. His concern was about practical aspects of the plan, which he had considered carefully. Ultimately, neither of these two men dared to prevent me from going through with it. My confessor gave me permission to throw myself back into this task with all my energy. I felt very much alone and had no income of my own. I entertained no illusions. This project would bring me severe hardship. We agreed that it would be best if we pursued this work in total secrecy. So I prevailed upon my sister Juana to procure a house for us and fix it up as if it were for herself. Juana lived outside the city of Avila in Alba. We used the money the Lord had pulled together to buy something modest. How did the Lord provide for us during those early days? It's a long story.
I had to be careful not to violate my vow of obedience. I knew if I mentioned anything about our project to my superiors that we would lose everything all over again, only this time it would be worse. I made arrangements to procure the money, sign the contracts, acquire the house, and furnish it. Looking back, I am amazed that I was able to endure the many trials and problems I suffered during this process. I did some of it completely by myself, although my companion tried to help where she could. But there wasn't much she could do besides lend her name to the transaction and give her approval. All the details fell on my shoulders. Sometimes I called out to God, My Lord, why do you command me to do things that seem impossible? If only I were free, even if I am a woman. As it is, I am thwarted on every side. I have no money and no means of raising any. I can't obtain the required papers or anything official. What can I do, Lord? Once, when I couldn't pay some workmen for a job we desperately needed done, I was feeling particularly helpless. That's when St. Joseph, my dear father and lord, appeared to me. He revealed that I should hire the men and the resources would not be lacking. So I did. I didn't have a penny at the time, but my brother Lorenzo, who was living in Ecuador, sent me some money just when we needed it. The house seemed too small to me. I didn't see how we were going to turn it into a convent. I wanted to buy the house next door, which was also very small, and make it into our church. Of course, I had no money for this, so I wondered what to do. One day after communion, Christ spoke to me. I have already told you, move ahead as best as you can. Then to emphasize his message, he said, Oh, the greed of humanity! You think there will not be enough room for you on this vast earth. How many times did I sleep out in the open because there was no other place for me to lay my head? His voice brought me to my senses, and I realized he was right. I went to the little house, really looked at it, and drew up the plans. I saw that even though it was small, it was perfect for a convent. So I gave up the idea of buying more property. Instead, I arranged to have the place fixed up so that it was livable. It was rough and simple, but it was adequate for a healthy lifestyle. Things should always be approached with an open mind. On the feast day of St. Clair, I was on my way to communion, and the saint appeared to me in all her dazzling beauty. Have courage, she said. Continue what you have begun. I will help you. A profound devotion to St. Clair blossomed in my heart that day. What she told me has since come to pass. A nearby convent of poor Clares helps to sustain us even to this day. Not only that, but this blessed saint has contributed to refining and perfecting my desires to such a degree that we now practice in our house the same rule of poverty observed in their order. We are living on alms. This has not been easy. Living simply is not the hard part. It's convincing the Holy Father to back up our vow of poverty with His authority so that no one can change it or force us to collect revenue. But the Lord is doing this and even greater things for us now 
thanks in part, I am certain, to the intervention of this sweet saint. For His Majesty provides everything we need without our even having to ask. May He be forever blessed. Amen. Around that same time, I was celebrating the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady at the Dominican Monastery of St. Thomas here in Avila. I was sitting in the Christ Chapel, reflecting on all the sins of my past that I had confessed in this same church and thinking about how wicked I have been for most of my life. All of a sudden, I was seized by a rapture so intense that it nearly lifted me out of myself. I sat down. As I recall, I could no longer see the altar or hear the Mass. Later, I felt a little ashamed of this. I seemed to see myself cloaked in a great white robe of shimmering light. At first, I couldn't see who was dressing me in this radiance. Later, I saw Our Lady on my right side and my father, St. Joseph, on my left. They were putting this robe on me. In that moment, I understood that they were cleansing me of my transgressions. After they had finished clothing me in this way, I felt the most marvelous joy and glory. Then Our Lady took my hands in hers. You make me very happy by serving St. Joseph, she said. Please believe that what you are striving for will come to be. This new monastery will be of great service to our Lord Jesus Christ, to St. Joseph, and to me. Then the Blessed Mother told me that even if obedience was painful to me at this time, I had nothing to fear, for the three of them were watching over me. Hasn't my son already promised you he would be with you? She reminded me. As a symbol of this truth, she said, I give you this jewel. Then she seemed to slip an exquisite gold necklace over my head. A very valuable cross dangled from the chain. This gold is incomparably more precious than any gold that can be found on this earth, and the stones far exceed the worth of any gems that have ever been seen. Their beauty is completely different than anything we can imagine here. As for the robe, the intellect could never grasp its nature. The imagination cannot conceive of its whiteness. Any attempts to compare it to anything here on earth would amount to nothing more than a sketch made with ashes. Even though I could not make out many details, I could see that the beauty of Our Lady was extraordinary. I was able to perceive the general form of her face and the amazing splendor of her garment. It was not a blinding white, but rather a soft luminosity. I did not see the glorious St. Joseph as clearly, although I knew he was definitely there, as in those visions I told you about where one sees without seeing. Our Lady appeared to me as a very young girl. They stayed with me for a little while, and I basked in a state of grace. I had never experienced any joy quite like it and wanted it to last forever. But then it seemed to me that I saw them ascend to heaven with a vast multitude of angels. Their departure left me feeling profoundly alone. At the same time, however, I was so comforted and uplifted 
that I entered a state of deep recollection and prayer and was unable to stir or speak. I was beside myself, overcome by a passionate yearning to melt into God. No matter how hard I tried, I could not doubt that this vision came from the Spirit of God. Among its many glorious effects, it left me deeply consoled and in great peace. It had been troubling me to withhold my allegiance from my order, but the Lord had told me when it was not appropriate to obey my superiors. This is what the Queen of Angels meant when she mentioned obedience. Christ had given me clear reasons why it would not be suitable to obey my superiors in the matter of the new monastery. But he gave me a particular way to petition Rome directly and assured me that he would take care of the results. And so it came to be. I made the petition to the bishop, Don Alvaro de Mendoza, exactly the way the Lord had taught me, and it was granted with ease. Until that time, we had been entirely unsuccessful in obtaining permission through our own efforts. It turned out to be very fortunate that we had obeyed the bishop. But at the time, I was not acquainted with the man and had no idea what he was like. As it is, Don Alvaro was a wonderful person. It was the Lord's will for this bishop to be very supportive of our foundation. This was important, since we were faced with such violent opposition to our cause. He helped bring our house to its current state. May the one who really does everything be blessed. Amen. Chapter 34 Secret Preparations No matter how much I tried to keep this work secret, there were always people who managed to uncover something. Some believed what they heard, some did not. I was very worried that someone would inform the provincial about what we were up to when he next came to town. That would have been the death of the whole project, but the Lord circumvented this danger in an unexpected way. It turns out that a grieving widow who lived in Toledo, more than 60 miles from Avila, had called for me. Doña Luisa de Celda was of high nobility. The death of her husband nearly a year earlier had plunged her into a state of inconsolable sorrow for which she could not seem to recover. Her grief had reached such an extreme degree that her loved ones feared for her life. Somehow, Doña Luisa had heard of this miserable little sinner and had taken it into her head that I would be able to help her cope with her loss. The Lord had arranged things so that she heard only good reports of me. As it turns out, many blessings flowed from that favorable beginning. Doña Luisa was well acquainted with the provincial. She knew that I lived in a convent where the nuns were allowed to come and go. Her urge to see me was so powerful that she found it irresistible. And since she was a person of the aristocracy, she knew she could arrange to bring me to Toledo. So she wrote to the provincial, who was far away, to initiate the process. On Christmas Eve, I received an order from him. Go immediately, he wrote, and take a companion with you. Because I was under a vow of obedience, I had no choice but to do as I was told. The only thing that bothered me was that this woman was under the illusion that there was something good about me. 
Knowing the truth about myself, I could not bear this thought. I prayed earnestly to God about it, and my prayer triggered a deep rapture that lasted throughout matins. Go, the Lord said to me. Pay no attention to all the opinions on the matter. Very few people have wise counsel to offer. He told me that even though this journey would not be without trials, God would be well served by it. He said that it was appropriate for me not to be home when the contract for the new monastery arrived. The spirit of evil was preparing a cunning plot for the provincial's homecoming. Do not fear, the Lord said to me. I will help you with this. These words very much strengthened and comforted me. I told the Jesuit director about it. Then, do not hesitate to go, he said. Other people were insisting that I not go to Toledo. They advised me to ignore the provincial's letter. They warned that this whole trip was a ploy of the devil and that something terrible was going to happen if I left. They urged me to write back to the provincial and inform him that I wasn't going. But it was Father Ibanez I listened to. Strengthened by what I heard in prayer, I went without fear. I continued to feel embarrassed about why they had called me to Toledo, however, since I knew that they were mistaken about what I had to offer. All I could do was beg the Lord to be with me. It made me feel better to learn that there was a Jesuit house founded by Father Francisco de Borja there, and that I could rely on the priests to guide me away from home. It was the Lord's will for Doña Luisa to improve dramatically within a short time of my arrival. For some reason, my presence consoled her. She seemed to be more at peace every day. Her grief had been such a heavy burden that this improvement was a great relief to her. I'm sure it helped that there were a lot of pious people praying for my success in this matter. Doña Luisa was a deeply spiritual person who was in awe of God. Her goodness and her love of Christ seemed to compensate for my shortcomings. She developed a great affection for me. When I saw how much integrity the woman had, I became very fond of her in return. But everything else was a cross for me to bear. The comforts I was given were nothing but a torment and the way they all fussed over me made me nervous. My soul had such misgivings about all the luxury and kindness that I grew hypervigilant. But I did not need to be so watchful, since it turned out that the Lord Himself was watching over me. While I was in that house, God granted me the most sublime blessings in prayer. They released me of any attachments to material things and gave me contempt for the opulence I saw all around me. The greater the favors, the more I despised these things. Although I knew it was an honor to serve such great ladies, I never treated them as anything other than equals. That's how free God made me feel. I had an important insight there, and I shared it with Doña Luisa. I realize we should not envy the nobility because noble women are human and therefore just as much subject to passions and weaknesses as the rest of us, only they are expected not to succumb. The higher their status, the greater their trials. I observed how careful these women had to be 
to maintain their composure under all circumstances. It was as if their station did not allow them to live. I saw that the ladies were forced to eat in accordance with prescribed timetables and not in harmony with their physical constitution, and the foods they ate had more to do with their rank than with their actual appetite. Why would I ever want to be a lady of nobility? God, deliver me from phony composure. The truth is, I have met few women as humble and as deeply simple as Doña Luisa, who happens to be one of the most noble in the kingdom. Whenever I saw how she was forced to go against her own inclinations to fulfill the duties of her state, I felt deep compassion for her. Her servants were no help. She had some good ones, but most of them could not be trusted. God forbid you spoke to one more than another. Everyone else started to hate the one you favored. Aristocracy is nothing but subjugation. It is a lie to call these people master when they are slaves to a thousand things. It was the Lord's will for the people who lived in that house to be of greater service to God when I was around. Of course, the love the lady bore me caused some envy and brought me some trials. There were people who seemed to think I was vying for some personal advantage. I suppose the Lord challenged me in this way, as well as in other ways, to keep me from becoming enchanted by all the luxury I experienced there. To my soul's great profit, he chose to extricate me from all this. While I was in Toledo, a very noble person showed up in that city. He was a priest, and we had been in touch many times over the years. I was attending Mass at a monastery of his order near the house where I was staying when I caught sight of him. I had this overwhelming urge to speak to him. I wanted to know the condition of his soul, since I longed for this man to be a great servant of God. So I got up to talk to him. But since I was in a deep state of recollection and prayer, this impulse suddenly struck me as a waste of time, so I sat down again. Who was I to meddle in his interior life? I think I went through these motions three times, rising, returning to my pew, standing again, sitting back down. Finally, the good angel won out over the bad. I went to him and asked him to meet me in the confessional. It had been many years since we had seen each other, and we began to ask each other questions about our lives. I mentioned that there had been innumerable trials that had plagued my soul. Tell me about them, he urged me. No one is supposed to know about these things, I said. I probably shouldn't have brought it up in the first place. Don't worry, he said. Pedro Ibanez, the Dominican father you mentioned, is a good friend of mine. I will get the story from him. But the truth is, this priest could not resist the temptation to keep pressing me for details, and I could not resist sharing them. I didn't feel any of the characteristic shame and terror I usually experienced when I spoke of these things. Rather than suffering distress, I felt unburdened. I discussed these matters within the privacy of the confessional. I had always believed that this priest had a very good mind, but now he seemed wiser than ever. I recognized the special talents and gifts he had and saw the good he could do if he gave himself entirely to God. 
I have had this experience many times over the years. Whenever I like someone very much, I am filled with nearly unbearable longings. I want to see this person utterly surrender to God. While I want everyone to serve God, my yearning is especially acute when it comes to the people who please me most. Thus, I fervently beseech the Lord on their behalf. This is what happened to me when I met with the priest I am speaking about. He asked me to pray wholeheartedly to God on his behalf. But he didn't need to ask. I was already so filled with prayers for him that I could not have done otherwise. I went to my usual place for solitary contemplation and became instantly and profoundly recollected. I began to talk to the Lord in that silly way of mine. I don't know what I'm saying when this happens. It's love that's talking. My soul becomes so transported that I can no longer tell any difference between her and God. Love knows that it already possesses the Beloved. It forgets all about the individual soul and thinks she is one with him. Free of all distinctions, she speaks pure nonsense. I remember that day when I tearfully begged God to take the soul of that priest into his committed service. I already considered him a good man, but this wasn't enough for me. I wanted him to be even better. Lord, you must not refuse me this favor. I said to His Majesty, I have a feeling it is going to be very important to have this good man as our friend. Oh, the great goodness and loving kindness of God! You do not look at our words, but at the desires and the will that animates them. How do you put up with someone like me who speaks so boldly to Your Majesty? May you be blessed forever and ever. I recall that at one point during that night of fervent prayer, a great sadness washed over me. I started wondering if I had alienated myself from God. How could I tell if I was in a state of grace or not? It wasn't that I wanted to know, it's just that I wanted to die. Only in death would I find myself in a life where I wouldn't wonder whether or not I was dead, since there was no death more terrifying to me than not knowing if I had forsaken my beloved. The pain of wondering overwhelmed me. I was overflowing with tears, dissolving in tears. Please, God, I beseeched him, do not let me be separate from your grace. Then it struck me that the sure sign that I was in grace was the boundless love for him that filled and spilled from my soul. This consoled me immeasurably. Look at all the divine favors and holy feelings he had given me in the past few years. Could such blessings coexist in harmony with a soul and mortal sin? Of course not! I rested in the confidence that His Majesty would do what I asked Him to do for the priest. Then the Lord gave me some words to tell the man. I hate it when God does this. I don't know how to convey these things. It embarrasses me to deliver messages from the Lord to a third party, especially in this case. I didn't know how this priest would take it. Maybe he would make fun of me. I became very distressed about it, but God was so persuasive that I finally agreed to tell the man what God said.
to mitigate my shame, I wrote it down and gave it to him in a letter. Well, the words definitely seemed to come from God because they had an amazing effect on this man. He resolved to dedicate himself wholeheartedly to the practice of prayer, even though it took him a while to follow through on this intention. The Lord used me as a conduit to transmit some truths to this man because he wanted his soul for his own. Without my even knowing it, these things were so relevant that it astonished him. The synchronicity convinced him that the messages indeed came from God. Wretched though I may be, I earnestly implored God to transform this man completely in himself and make him reject the shallow gratification and petty things of this world. It worked. May God be praised forever. The priest turned so completely toward God that every time he opens his mouth to speak to me now, I am in awe. If I had not witnessed this myself, I would have had trouble believing that God would have granted any souls so many and such powerful favors in such a short time. He is so full of God that he seems to be empty of any worldly attachment whatsoever. May his majesty protect him. This man seems to be so well-grounded in self-knowledge that if he continues to advance at this rate, he will become one of God's most cherished servants and lead a multitude of souls to the way of perfection. This man has gained a great deal of spiritual experience in a very short time. These are gifts God gives when and how He wills. They do not depend on time, and they are not compensation for services rendered. It's not that time and services are unimportant. It's just that sometimes the Lord gives the grace of contemplation to one person within a year of starting out on the path and does not give it to another person who might have been practicing prayer for 20 years. His Majesty knows the reason why. Here's where we make our big mistake. We think that years of study should yield an understanding that can only come through direct experience. Many guides are mistaken in believing that they can discern spirits without having spiritual experience themselves. I'm not saying that someone who has not had spiritual experience should refuse to direct a soul who has, as long as the director is at least a man of learning. But he should limit himself to making sure that when he is dealing with both interior and exterior matters, he is following the natural path of reason. When it comes to supernatural experiences, all he needs to do is check to see if they are congruent with sacred scripture. As for the rest, he shouldn't kill himself trying to figure it all out. He should never presume that he understands it either. Above all, he must not repress the spirit. The soul is being guided by another greater master, and he has no authority in that case. Oh, you spiritual directors, do not be surprised by this. Don't think that such things are impossible. All things are possible for the Lord. Your only task is to humble yourselves and bolster your faith. So what if the Lord gives some little old woman deeper knowledge of the sacred science than he gives to a very learned man? 
continuously cultivating humility will make that man much more useful both to other souls and to himself than trying to be a contemplative if he is not one. I'll say it again. If he has neither direct spiritual experience nor the humility to admit that he does not understand the experience of the soul he is guiding, he will be of little benefit to himself and even less to the people he's dealing with. Just because he doesn't understand something doesn't mean that the thing is impossible. If the guide is humble, he should not fear that the Lord would allow either of them to be deceived. The Lord made this Dominican friar very humble in a number of different areas. He has dedicated himself to finding out everything he can about the things he has not experienced. He is a great scholar, so if he doesn't know something, he investigates and finds someone who does. The Lord supports him by giving him a deep faith. He has grown immensely in this way and has been a big help to other souls, including mine. As it was, His Majesty was about to call home to himself a couple of great men who had been guiding my soul, Pedro of Alcantara and Pedro Ibáñez. But he replaced them with other guides to help me through some very difficult times, and they did me a great deal of good, like the priest I am telling you about. God has transformed this man almost completely. He hardly recognizes himself. Where he used to be weak and sickly, the Lord has given him the strength to undergo rigorous penances. He has the courage to do things he never dared try before. He seems to have received a very special calling from God. May he be forever blessed. I believe all these benefits have come to him through the blessings he has been receiving in prayer. Such goodness cannot be counterfeited. The Lord has already challenged him in certain areas, and he has emerged from these trials like an adept who knows the blessings that come through persecution. I hope that great good will come through him to members of his order and to the whole of the order itself. Actually, people are already beginning to realize who this priest is. I have seen great visions, and the Lord has told me some very important things about this man, as well as about the Jesuit director of whom I have spoken, and two Dominicans. God has already revealed some great things about one of these Dominicans in particular. Before that, I was the only one who knew about the dramatic spiritual progress he had been making. But the one God has told me most about is this priest of whom I've been speaking. Now, I want to tell you about something. One day, I was sitting with this man in the parlor. My soul became aware of such a powerful love of God burning inside his spirit that it almost transported me beyond myself. Simply reflecting on the glory of God, who had elevated that soul to such a high state in such a short time, was enough to send me into rapture. But it also embarrassed me. There he was, listening with such humility to the things I had to say about prayer. Who was I to be speaking of such things to a person like this? I guess the Lord put up with it because of the passion I had to see this soul make ultimate spiritual progress. Being with him did my soul so much good 
that it seemed to revive the flames of my own longing to serve the Lord. Oh, my Jesus, how much a soul can accomplish when she is on fire with your love. How highly we should value such a soul and how fervently we should pray to God to let this soul remain with us here on earth. Anyone who shares this love longing should follow such souls wherever they go. Isn't it a wonderful thing when a sick person encounters someone afflicted with the same malady? How comforting it is to know that you are not alone. The two wounded souls become a powerful help to one another. They inspire each other to risk a thousand lifetimes for God. In fact, they welcome the opportunity to die and die again for Him. They are like warriors willing to go into battle because they know they will come away with great treasure. They cannot become rich unless they fight. It is their supreme duty to labor and suffer and triumph. Oh, what a marvelous thing it is when the Lord sheds His light on the mind so that we realize how much we gain when we suffer for Him. Until we abandon everything for Him, we will not understand this. Clinging to something is a sign that we are attached to it. If we are attached, it causes us grief to give it up. This clinging only leads us astray. Remember the saying, He who goes after what is lost gets lost himself? That fits perfectly here. What greater spiritual ruin is there? What greater blindness? What greater misfortune can there be than to cherish something that is nothing? Well, to get back to what I was saying, as I sat contemplating that soul, I was filled with deep joy. It seems that the Lord wanted me to see clearly the treasures He had placed there. When I realized the favor He had granted me by making me the instrument of this spiritual blossoming, I knew I didn't deserve it. But I valued the blessings the Lord had given to this soul more than if He had given them to me. In fact, I considered them to be more my own than those that were actually mine. I praised His Majesty for hearing my prayer and fulfilling my great desire that He awakened souls like this. And then my soul reached its full capacity for joy and went out of itself. Lost in this way, I had all the more to gain. All reflections evaporated, and I forgot them. Now, the Holy Spirit was doing the talking. Hearing that divine language, my rapture deepened. It only lasted a short time, but it almost made me lose my senses. Then I saw Christ. Radiating awesome power and glory, he expressed his pleasure over what was happening. You see, he said, I am always present in conversations like these. He wanted me to understand the great delight it gives him when people find their great delight in speaking of him. Another time when this priest was far away, I saw him, lifted up by the angels in great glory. This vision taught me that his soul was making excellent progress. Soon after this, someone spread cruel slander against the priest's honor. 
He had provided a remedy for his accuser's soul at a time when the man's own reputation was at stake. The priest cheerfully endured this betrayal. He performed other acts and suffered other persecutions that were of great service to God. I don't think it makes sense for me to say anything more about this now. You know all the details yourself. If you think it is appropriate, you can write them down later for the glory of God. By the way, everything I said about the prophecies concerning this monastery, as well as other prophetic visions I'll tell you about later, were fulfilled. Some of them came to pass three years after they were revealed. Others took more time, still others less. I always shared these prophecies with my confessor and with Doña Guillermar, in whom I had permission to confide. I know that she told them to other people, so I have proof that I am not lying. May God never permit me to speak anything but the whole truth on any subject, especially in such a serious matter as this. Around this time, a brother-in-law of mine died suddenly. I was deeply grieved because he hadn't gotten a chance to go to confession before he died. Then I was told in prayer that my sister, too, would die this way, and I should go to her immediately so that she could prepare herself. When I told my confessor about it, he didn't let me go. So the message kept coming to me from God. When my confessor heard about this, he told me to go there, since he couldn't see that any harm would come of it. Maria lived in that little village where I had stayed during my illness so many years ago. Without mentioning the spiritual voices, I enlightened her as much as I could on every relevant subject. I got her to tend her soul with the greatest care and to confess frequently. Maria was a good person, and she did all this willingly. She was conscientious, and these customs soon became ingrained in her. Four or five years later, my sister also died alone without the opportunity to cleanse her soul formally. Fortunately, since she had developed the habit of confessing her transgressions, she had taken care of her soul in this way only a week before she died. It brought me great joy to hear news of her death. She did not linger in purgatory. Within a week, the Lord appeared to me after I had received communion. He wanted to show me how he had brought Maria to glory. In all those years, from the time the Lord predicted my sister's death until the day she died, I never forgot what he had revealed to me. Neither did my companion. When Maria died, Doña Guillemar came to me amazed about how the revelation had been fulfilled. May God be praised forever. He takes such good care of souls so that they won't get lost. Chapter 35 Holy Poverty Well, I stayed with Doña Luisa for more than six months. While I was there, a lay sister of our order found out about me and decided to come and meet me. She lived 200 miles away and went substantially out of her way to speak to me. It turns out that God had inspired this woman to found a radically simplified convent 
during the same month of the same year he had first spoken to me about it. As soon as His Majesty gave her the summons, she sold everything she had and walked barefoot to Rome to obtain the required documents. Sister Maria de Jesus is a woman who practices rigorous austerities and deep prayer. Our Lord has granted her many favors. Our Lady appeared to her and commanded her to perform this task. Sister Maria was so far ahead of me in serving God that I was ashamed to sit in her presence. She showed me the letters of endorsement she had brought from Rome. During the fifteen days she stayed with me, we planned out the details of the monasteries. Until Sister Maria brought it to my attention, I didn't realize that our order had drifted away from the primitive rule. We were originally never meant to own anything. Although I longed for the simplicity reflected in that ideal, it had not occurred to me to found a monastery without any money. My goal was that the sisters not be distracted by worrying that our needs would be met. I hadn't taken into consideration the serious distraction it can be to own property. This blessed woman did not even know how to read, and yet she understood very well what I, who had read our constitutions many times, did not. This is because the Lord himself taught her what is important. What she told me made a great deal of sense to me, although I was not at all confident that our superiors would agree to it. I was afraid they would say that not only were we, the founders, being foolish, but that we would make others suffer. If I had been alone, I wouldn't have hesitated for a moment to embrace poverty. It would have brought me great joy to follow the advice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who advocated living simply and had already given me a profound desire for poverty. I did not doubt that this was the best path for me personally. I had been wishing for a long time that I could give up my house and all of my things and go begging for love of God. But I was afraid that if the Lord did not give this desire to others, they would indeed be miserable under such circumstances. I had also observed that in certain poor monasteries, scarcity of resources became the primary focus, and people were not becoming recollected in prayer. I failed to realize as I reflected on this that their absence of recollection was not an artifact of their poverty, but the other way around. A lack of prayer impoverished them. Distraction does not make us rich, and God never fails anyone who serves Him. My faith was weak compared to the clear convictions of this holy sister Maria. Of all the men I had consulted, I found no one who really thought the path of poverty was a good idea. They leveled so many arguments against the notion that I didn't know what to do. And now that I knew it was a sanctioned element of the Carmelite tradition, I believed more than ever that observing poverty as a community would be a more perfect practice. I couldn't persuade myself to arrange for an income. Every once in a while, they managed to convince me of their position. But the moment I returned to prayer, I came back to my senses. All I had to do was contemplate Christ on the cross.
so poor and so naked, and I could not patiently bear the idea of being rich. Tearfully, I begged him to ordain things so that I could be poor like him. It became so clear to me that having an income would be a serious impediment to our cause that all I did was argue with learned men. I strongly felt that possession of revenue would create nothing but disquiet and distraction. I wrote to Father Ibanez, the Dominican who was helping us. He sent back a two-page letter enumerating his objections on both sides of the paper and giving me complex theological reasons why I shouldn't do it. I have studied the matter very carefully, he told me. I answered that I wasn't interested in theology if it didn't support my vocation. I had taken a vow of poverty. I had a calling, and I intended to follow the counsels of Christ. In this case, he was doing me no favors with all his learning. It made me very happy whenever I found anyone who was willing to help me. Doña Luisa, for instance, was very supportive. There were people who would tell me they thought it was a good idea at first, and then changed their minds. They claimed that when they reflected on it, they saw too many disadvantages, and they reverted to trying to talk me out of it. Since you are so quick to alter your opinion, I responded, I think I'll just stick with your original one. My hostess had never met the holy man Pedro de Alcantara, so I took it upon myself to make arrangements for him to visit to her house while I was there. Father Pedro knew the treasures that lay at the heart of poverty. He was a great lover of this practice and had observed it for many years, so he was a big help to me. You must not fail by any means to go through with your plan, he insisted. I valued his opinion above all others, since he had lived our ideal through vast experience. I made up my mind not to go seeking any more points of view on the matter. His was sufficient. One day, while I was praying intensely to God about this, the Lord spoke to me. Don't let anything stop you from founding this monastery in poverty, he said. This is not only my will, but the will of our Father. I will help you. This encounter with Christ was accompanied by such deep rapture and so many other remarkable effects that I could not doubt that the impulse came from God. On another day, he told me that money disquiets the mind. He said other things in praise of poverty and assured me that whoever observes this holy practice will not lack what she needs to live. As I said, I never feared deprivation for myself. Eventually, the Lord changed the mind of the Dominican who had been advising me, the one who had written to me with all the reasons why I must not found a monastery without income. I was thrilled to hear this. Various other opinions in my favor began to come in. It seems to me that I was being rewarded for my determination to live by the love of God. My heart was so filled, I felt that I truly possessed all the riches in the world. Around this time, there was a pending election at the Incarnation. My provincial lifted my vow of obedience to stay with the noblewoman in Toledo and let me decide whether to return to Avila or remain with Doña Luisa for a while. Someone sent word that many of the sisters were recommending that I be chosen as their prioress. 
The mere thought of such a thing was a terrible torment to me. Yes, I was determined to suffer any martyrdom for my beloved, but please, not this one. It's not only that it would be a tremendous amount of work to be the superior of a convent with a hundred and fifty nuns, but there were other reasons I resisted the idea of holding a formal office. For one thing, I thought that being a superior would not be healthy for my conscience. I praised God that I was away. I wrote to my friends in Avila and told them not to vote for me. When I was feeling most satisfied that I was not there in the midst of all the turmoil, God spoke to me. You must go home, he said. You have professed a desire to carry the cross. A perfectly good one is waiting for you back in Avila. Do not reject it. Go with courage. Go right away. I will help you. I became very upset, and I couldn't stop weeping. I thought the cross meant that I was about to be elected superior. I knew that holding such a station would not be good for my soul. I didn't think I was qualified for the job either. I talked to my confessor about all this, and he told me I should try to get back to Avila. It would be the most perfect thing to do, he said. But it's very hot right now for traveling. Why don't you wait a few days so that you don't get sick? You'll still get there in time for the election. But it turned out that the Lord had something else in mind. I was extremely restless inside. I couldn't practice prayer. I was afraid that I was forsaking my Lord's command to me. Here I was in this luxurious place, taking advantage of its comforts, when there was real work to be done at home. Was I only good for lip service? I had to ask myself. If Avila was the more perfect place for me to be, why was I hesitating to go there? If I was going to die, then I would die. Along with this inner turmoil, a heavy oppression fell over my soul. The Lord dried up all the gratification I had grown to expect in prayer. My spiritual condition worsened to such a degree that I finally asked the lady if she would be good enough to let me go home. When my confessor saw me in this state, he concurred that this would be a good idea. God moved him as he moved me. Doña Luisa was so reluctant to see me go that her sorrow became another torment for me. It had not been easy for her to bring me there in the first place. She had gone through a great deal of trouble to get permission from the provincial to have me stay with her, and it was just as difficult for her to let me leave. She was terribly sad, but she also loved God, and I told her that my departure might enable me to render greater service to the Beloved. I also told her that I might be able to come back and see her again. With brave resignation, she released me. I was no longer sorry to go. I realized that I could be of more perfect service to God in this way, even if only through my joy, since it made me so happy to serve Him. This gave me the strength to endure the regret in leaving that lady who seemed to feel the pain of separation so acutely. It was also hard to leave other people there in Toledo to whom I owed a debt of gratitude, especially my Jesuit confessor, who had become a true friend. The more aware I became that my suffering was for the sake of God, the more easily I embraced it. 
I didn't understand how it was possible that losing my consolation made me so happy. Why would I be happy and pleased and consoled about something that weighed so heavily on my heart? Weren't these two feelings mutually exclusive? I had been very content in Doña Luisa's house. I had time for long hours of contemplative prayer there. I knew that I was about to plunge into the fire back in Avila. The Lord had already told me that I was going to have to bear a great cross. That cross turned out to be far greater than I had ever imagined. Still, I was happy to move on. Since the Lord had wanted me to go, I felt badly about delaying the battle as long as I had. So His Majesty sent His strength to bolster my weakness. I thought about the seemingly contradictory feelings that filled my soul and came up with an analogy. Say that I owned a jewel or some other treasure that gave me great happiness. Then I found out that someone I love and want to please more than I want to please myself desired that object. If giving that thing to the person I loved made him happy, then my happiness in living without it would far exceed the pleasure I derived from owning it. Because the happiness I experienced in pleasing my beloved would surpass my original happiness, it would cancel out any pain I might have felt in sacrificing the cherished object. I wanted to feel upset about leaving the people I had grown so close to. I hated the idea of being separated from them. I am, by nature, a grateful person. Ordinarily, it would cause me terrible distress to walk away from a place where the people had been so good to me. Yet now, even though I wished I could feel those qualms, I couldn't. The business of this holy house was so important that I don't know how I would have pulled it off if I had delayed a minute longer. Oh, how great God is! I am perpetually amazed when I reflect on all the specific ways His Majesty wanted to help me found this little dwelling place of the Divine. That's what I think it is an abode in which His Majesty takes great delight. Once, when I was in prayer, He said to me, This house is a paradise of glory for me. It seems as if His Majesty has selected the souls He wants to live in this monastery. I am humbled just to be in their presence. I would never have known how to ask for such companions, so prayerful and so pure so dedicated to silence and simplicity. They bear their poverty so joyfully and with such genuine gratitude that not one of them can believe she deserves to be in this house. The Lord called some of them out of a world of pomp and vanity where it would have been so easy for them to conform to the laws of the world and be perfectly satisfied. But the Lord has doubled their delight by bringing them here. They clearly see that for every pleasure they left behind, He has given them a hundred joys. They cannot thank Him enough. Many were already good, and God made them better. To the young, He gives fortitude and knowledge. He helps them see that detaching from all their worldly desires gives them a life of deep calm and helps them maintain equanimity in earthly affairs. To the elderly, He gives vitality and strength. He helps them bear the same austerities and penances as the rest. Oh, my beloved, your power is boundless. We have no need to find reason to justify your will. 
You transcend all natural reason and make all things possible. Over and over, you show us that all we have to do is love you and leave all the rest up to you. That's when you make everything easy, my beloved. They say that you pretend to make your law difficult, Lord. But I don't see it that way. They say that the path home to you is narrow, but that's not my experience. What I see is not a rough trail, but a royal road. It is safe for any traveler to take this road. Much safer than not taking it. The pitfalls of sin are in the distance. Those are the narrow mountain passes and loose rocks that make us fall. Worldly paths have a deep gorge on one side and a precipice on the other, into which the soul can plummet the minute she loses focus and then shatter into a thousand pieces. He who truly loves you, my supreme good, walks securely on a broad and royal road. The abyss is far away. As soon as he begins to stumble, you steady him with your own hand. If he loves you more than he loves this world, then falling down from time to time will not do him any harm. Even falling a lot will not hurt him. He travels through the valley of humility. I cannot understand why people hesitate to set out on the way of perfection. May the Beloved, being who he is, help us realize how illusory the security of following the crowd really is. The perils of that path are so obvious. May he help us realize that our safety lies in striving to walk on God's road. Let us turn our eyes to him and not be afraid of the setting of the sun of justice. If we do not abandon him, he will help us walk safely, even through the darkest night. We will not go astray. What the world calls honors and pleasures, I call lions. People are not afraid to walk among such wild beasts, any one of which would be more than happy, it seems, to tear off a piece of them. Yet here, on this royal road, the spirit of evil makes us afraid of mere field mice. This misplaced trepidation has amazed me a thousand times, and my own blindness and wickedness has amazed me ten thousand times. I long to cry myself empty. I yearn to shout the true story of my unconsciousness from the rooftops if doing so would wake other souls up. Please, through God's great goodness, open your eyes, and may he never allow mine to close again. Amen. Chapter 36 Founding St. Joseph's After leaving Toledo, my spirits lifted, and my journey back to Avila was pleasant. I was determined to accept God's will in whatever forms it manifested. The same night I reached the city, the documents authorizing the new foundation arrived from Rome. What a coincidence! I was amazed by the timing. So was everyone else involved in this project, for they knew how the Lord had made me return very quickly, and now it was clear why. I was needed here. The bishop was waiting for me, along with the saintly Pedro de Alcantara and a gentleman with whom the Holy Friar was staying, who was also a great friend to God. 
This gentleman regularly gave protection and support to God's servants. The two men convinced the bishop to sanction the new monastery. This was not easy since the poverty issue was such an unpopular one. But anyone who was determined to serve God was dear to this bishop's heart, and we soon won his support. It was really Father Pedro who made everything happen. The elderly holy friar believed so strongly in this foundation that he went around gently urging all the right people to help us. If it hadn't been for the extraordinary coincidence of my arriving on that very night, I don't think the monastery ever would have been founded. As it turned out, Father Pedro was not going to be with us for much longer. He was very sick at that time, and God brought him to himself eight days later. It seems that His Majesty purposely preserved Father Pedro until the business was taken care of. He had already been dying for almost two years. We did everything under a veil of secrecy. Otherwise, I don't think we could have pulled it off. So many people were against our project, which became increasingly evident later. Around this time, the Lord ordained that my brother-in-law, Juan, who was in Avila to finish negotiations for the house they had purchased for our new monastery, became ill. Since my sister Juana was not there, it fell on me to take care of him. With this excuse, I was able to leave the Incarnation and attend to the business of the Foundation without anyone suspecting anything. Well, that's not exactly right. Some people were accusing me of hatching a plot, but my superiors did not listen to them. The amazing thing is that my brother-in-law's illness only lasted as long as it took to complete our business with the new foundation. As soon as I needed to be free of my duties as caregiver, Juan got better and moved back to Alba. This also freed up the house he had procured for us. Juan himself was amazed by how the Lord brought all this about. I had a lot of trouble at different times from different people who opposed the foundation of this new monastery. I also had trouble with my sick brother-in-law. Then there were the workmen. There was so much to do to convert the house into a convent, and it all needed to be done quickly. Plus, my companion, Doña Guilhmard, was away at Toro. That was intentional, though. It seemed to us that we would have more luck concealing our activities if she was not there. For many reasons, I saw that everything needed to be taken care of in a hurry. One reason was that with every passing hour I was away from the Incarnation, I was afraid they were going to demand that I return. There were so many challenges happening at the same time that I couldn't help but wonder if this was the cross to which the Lord had referred. But it all seemed like a light burden compared to the heavy one he had led me to expect. It was August 24th, St. Bartholomew's Day. Everything was ready. The Blessed Sacrament was in place. The first group of sisters received the habit. Antonia del Espíritu Santo, Maria de la Cruz, Ursula de los Santos, and Maria de San José. Thus, with all due authority and power, this monastery of our most glorious father, St. Joseph, was founded in 1562. I was present for the receiving of the sacred robes, along with two other sisters from the Incarnation. Remember, my brother-in-law had bought the house we converted into the monastery so that we could keep our project a secret while we were fixing it up.
so I had permission to be there. Plus, I had consulted so many learned men along the way that I was confident I had not compromised my vow of obedience one iota. The men who supported me saw many reasons why this foundation would be beneficial to the whole Carmelite order. They told me to proceed with the plan, although I did everything in secret so that my superiors would not find out. If they had discovered a single real imperfection in anything I was doing, I would have willingly given up founding of a thousand monasteries, let alone one. This is beyond question. Even though I was dying to radically withdraw from everything and live simply, focusing exclusively on prayer, what I wanted most was to be of service to God. If I had found out that I could have served Him better by not living in strict enclosure, I would have abandoned the entire project with complete peace and calm as I had done before. Well, it was like heaven for me to see the most holy sacrament reserved in our new monastery and four poor orphans, who happened to be four great servants of God, come together to support each other in following the way of perfection. This is what I had always envisioned, that the people who would join this community would live by their example of prayer and integrity. They would be the foundation on which we could build to attain our goal. All I cared about was that we would work together to achieve what I knew in my heart would be of service to the Lord and would honor the Blessed Mother. It also made me happy to have followed the directions of my beloved and dedicated a new church to our glorious Father, St. Joseph. Not that I ever thought I really had anything to do with it. Everything was the work of God. What small part I played, I performed so imperfectly that I found far more cause to blame myself than to congratulate myself. Still, it gave me a great delight to see that he would use someone as flawed as I am to be an instrument of his wondrous work. My joy was so intense that it transported me beyond myself and put me into a state of profound prayer. But then, around three hours later, the spirit of evil paid me a little visit and instigated a spiritual battle within me. Maybe what you have done is wrong, he said. Maybe you actually did violate your vow of obedience to make a foundation without your provincial's consent. He hit a nerve here. I was concerned that the provincial might be angry that I hadn't told him what I was doing ahead of time and that I had arranged things so that the bishop would be in charge of us. On the other hand, he was the one who had refused to sanction it. But I had never changed my plans. Why should he care that we went ahead without him? Maybe the sisters who live in this house will be unhappy with such rigorous austerity, the spirit of evil went on. What if they don't get enough to eat? Isn't this venture simply foolish? What business is it of yours anyway? You already have a convent to live in, and a perfectly good one. All the commands the Lord had given me, all the good advice I had solicited and received, all the unceasing prayers of the past two years vanished from my memory, as if they had never happened. I could only remember my own decisions. My faith and all my other virtues were paralyzed. I had no strength to reactivate my useless virtues or defend myself against these unrelenting blows. 
How could you even think about shutting yourself up in a strictly enclosed monastery when you have so many health problems? The spirit of evil demanded. How could you leave such a pleasant and spacious monastery where you have been so content to live, where you will have to endure such penance? And what about all your friends at the Incarnation? What if you don't like your new companions? And you have taken on so many obligations. It's a setup for despair. Maybe the spirit of evil was trying to steal my inner peace and quiet so that I wouldn't be able to concentrate on prayer and would then lose my soul. He mixed up all these thoughts together in my mind so that I was powerless to think of anything else. I cannot possibly exaggerate the state of confusion. It plunged my soul into deep darkness. Finding myself in this wretched condition, I made my way to the Blessed Sacrament. I was incapable of praying, so I just sat there in my pain. I felt like a person must feel in the death agony. And there was no one I could speak to about it because I had not yet been assigned a spiritual director. Oh God, help me. What a hard life this is. There is not a single joy that lasts, and nothing that does not change. Only a short time ago, it seemed to me I would not trade my happiness with anyone on earth. Now the very reason for this happiness so thoroughly tormented me that I didn't know what to do with myself. Oh, if only we would consciously observe the events of our lives, we would see what little cause they really give us for either happiness or unhappiness. I truly think this was one of the most difficult episodes of my life. It was as if my soul were having a premonition of everything I was going to have to endure. Still, none of the trials to come would prove to be as severe as this night of suffering would have been if it had continued unabated. But the Lord did not let his poor servant suffer for very long. He never does. He always gives me comfort in my tribulations. In this case, he cast a little light to help me see that the spirit of evil was causing all the trouble. I realized that the spirit of evil was using lies to try and scare me away. Once I saw what was going on, I was able to remember my powerful resolution to serve God and my desire to suffer for Him. I realized that if I were to act on these lofty intentions, I couldn't go around seeking ways to rest. If trials came my way, I would earn merit by withstanding them. If I experienced unhappiness and offered it up in service to God, it would purify my soul. I had nothing to fear. The greater the opposition, the greater the gain. Why didn't I have the courage to serve the one who had given me so much? With the help of these reflections, I got myself back under control. I vowed before the Blessed Sacrament to do everything in my power to obtain permission to come live in the monastery I had founded. I promised I would commit myself to a strictly cloistered existence as soon as I could do so in good conscience. The moment I made this vow, the spirit of evil fled. I instantly felt calm and happy and have remained that way ever since. All the seclusion and austerities that we practice here have turned out to be extremely easy for me. My joy is so complete that I wonder sometimes what else could possibly bring me this much delight. 
I am starting to think that this life of radical simplicity is also contributing to the general increase in my health. Maybe the Lord wants to give me this consolation so that I can observe the austerities required of those who live here, since it is necessary and correct for me to do whatever everyone else has to do. Sometimes these things are hard for me, but for the most part, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. All the people who know about my chronic health problems are amazed by my ability to adhere to these standards. Blessed be the one who gives us all things and by whose power all things can be done. This conflict with the spirit of evil left me utterly exhausted, but I chuckled to myself to see that it had all been an illusion. This was the first time in my twenty-eight years of being a nun that I had regretted my monastic vocation even for a moment. I think the Lord allowed this conflict to help me see what a favor He had granted me and what torment He had saved me from. Also, now I wouldn't be surprised if someone who was unhappy as a nun were to come to me. Instead, I would have compassion for her and know how to console her. After the turmoil had passed and we had eaten dinner, I wanted to get some rest. I had hardly slept all night, and I had been working late or else worrying for many other nights. Plus, my days were so filled with work that I was almost always tired. But then, my superior sent for me to return to the Incarnation immediately. Word of what we had done had spread through the city and created a public outcry. This negative reaction seemed to bear considerable weight with the priors of the Incarnation. As soon as I received her orders, I left my nuns, who were very sad to see me go, and returned to the Incarnation. I could tell that I was going to be confronted with many obstacles, but I wasn't too worried because at least our new monastery was now established. I prayed to the Lord to protect me. I prayed to my father, St. Joseph, to bring me home to his house very soon and I offered up to God whatever suffering I might yet have to endure. I was pretty sure they would throw me in a prison cell the moment I arrived at the Incarnation. I was quite happy about the upcoming opportunity to suffer for my beloved and to serve him. Actually, I thought it might be pleasant to be incarcerated for a while. I wouldn't have to talk to anyone, and I could get a little solitude for some badly needed rest. I was worn out from having to deal with people so much. When I gave an account of our activities to the prioress, she was somewhat placated. They resolved to send everything to the provincial and let him decide. When he came, I went willingly to receive whatever judgment he had for me. I was happy to know that I would be suffering something for the sake of my beloved. I couldn't find it in my heart to believe that I had committed any offense either against His Majesty or against the Carmelite Order. On the contrary, I was doing everything in my power to contribute to the positive growth of that order. My desire for our order to fulfill its mission perfectly was so intense that I would have eagerly died for it. I thought about Christ's trial and saw that my own persecution amounted to nothing at all. I accused myself of being at fault and acted as if I were very much to blame. To anyone who didn't know the reasons, this appeared to be perfectly true. The provincial reprimanded me severely, although not as severely as the transgression deserved, at least according to what so many people had told him. 
I had no desire to defend myself. I had been determined to do what I did. I simply asked for his forgiveness and invited his punishment. Please don't be angry with me, I added. It was clear to me that some of the things they blamed me for were not my fault. For instance, they said I founded the monastery so that I would become famous and people would revere me, which was far from the case. But in other matters, they were speaking the plain truth as when they said I was no better than anybody else and, in fact, much worse. If you couldn't even observe the monastic rule of your own house, they asked me, what makes you think you'll be able to keep an even stricter one? They accused me of creating a scandal and promoting innovation. None of this bothered me that much, but I acted as if it did. I didn't want to give them the impression that I was not taking what they were telling me to heart. Finally, the provincial ordered me to go explain myself to the nuns, which I did. I felt a sense of deep inner peace, and I knew the Lord was with me. I expressed myself to my sisters in such a way that no one there could find anything for which to condemn me. Afterward, when I was alone with the provincial, I was able to speak more freely with him. He was quite satisfied, and he promised to sanction the new foundation. Let's let the commotion in the city die down a little first, he said. Then if all goes well, I promise to help you. But the opposition was fierce. After three days of deliberation, some of the city councilmen and the mayor unanimously declared that they could not by any means grant their consent to our new foundation. To do so, they said, would bring significant harm to the greater community. They ordered the immediate removal of the Blessed Sacrament from the house and commanded that all work related to the Foundation come to an absolute halt. Then they convened a meeting between two learned representatives from each religious order so that everyone could voice their opinion on the matter. Some of the representatives condemned the new Foundation. Others remained silent. The final consensus was that the monastery should be dismantled right away. They were furious. Only one man, the Dominican Domingo Bañez, spoke up to say that the foundation should not be suppressed, but rather should be more carefully considered. The only thing he objected to was the rule of poverty. He said there was plenty of time to reconsider, and that it was really the bishop's business anyway. His words had a calming effect and prevented the group from storming in to shut us down that day. In the end, the foundation had to continue because the Lord was pleased with it. All those men together couldn't do a thing against God's will. This did not stop them from persecuting me, however. They stated their case with righteous zeal. Without offending God, they managed to make everyone who was associated with the project suffer for it. The town was in such an uproar that it was all people could talk about. Everyone was condemning me. They were petitioning my monastery and appealing to my provincial. What they were saying about me caused me no more pain than if they hadn't said anything at all. In fact, I think that the negative things people said about me made me very happy. The only thing that concerned me was whether or not they would succeed in having us shut down. Also, even though I didn't care about my own honor, it disturbed me to realize that the reputation of people who were helping me 
were being damaged. If I had had a little faith, I don't think I would have felt so conflicted. But a small lack in one of the virtues seems to put them all to sleep. During the two days they were holding those meetings in town, I was deeply troubled. At the height of my distress, the Lord spoke to me. Don't you know that I am omnipotent, he said? What are you afraid of? He assured me that the new monastery would not be dissolved. This was very comforting to me. The assembly sent an official denunciation to the royal council. When the reply came, it simply asked for an account of exactly how the new monastery had been founded. This led to a lawsuit. The city of Avila sent its delegates to the royal council. Then we had to find someone to go and represent us. But I had no money for legal assistance. I didn't know what to do. The Lord provided, however, and my provincial never ordered me to give up my involvement with the foundation. This man is so sympathetic to any virtuous cause that even though he didn't actively help us, he didn't stand in our way. But he waited to see what the outcome of the lawsuit would be before he gave his permission to move to St. Joseph's. So my sisters, those great servants of God, were left on their own in the beginning. They accomplished more through their prayers than I did with all my negotiations. Still, the legal affair demanded a great deal of effort on my part. Sometimes it seemed that nothing was working, especially when the priors of the Incarnation came to me the day before the provincial was scheduled to arrive and ordered me to have nothing more to do with the new monastery. This meant abandoning everything I had worked so hard to achieve. I went to God and said to him, Lord, this house is not mine. It was founded for you. Now that there's no one to manage its business, you're going to have to take over. I felt so calm and at ease after this that it was as if the whole world were managing everything for me. From that moment on, I knew I was in good hands. Father Gonzalo de Aranda, a great servant of God, went to the royal council to advocate for us. This priest was dedicated to the way of perfection, and he had always been very good to me. And that saintly gentleman who had been through so much with me, Francisco de Salcedo, did everything he could to assist us. He suffered innumerable trials on our behalf, but he always treated me as his own daughter and is still like a father to me. Everyone who helped us found themselves blessed by a sense of deep connectedness to the cause. Each one considered the matter integral to his own life and treated it as if his personal honor depended on it. What mattered most to them was that this foundation was about serving God. It seemed clear that His Majesty was assisting Father Gaspar Daza, the priest who had been such a tremendous help to me. The bishop sent Father Daza as his representative to a major meeting about our foundation. He stood alone against all the rest and ultimately won them over by recommending certain procedures that would buy us some time. But none of this was enough to throw the men off course. They seemed intent on suppressing the foundation, as if its termination were a matter of life and death. This priest was the same one who had officiated at the ceremony where the First Sisters of St. Joseph's received their robes. 
He reserved the Blessed Sacrament there and was vehemently persecuted for it. The attack on us lasted six months. It would take far too long to recount in detail the horrendous trials we endured during this time. It was amazing to me that the spirit of evil would bother to stir up so much trouble against a few poor little women. And I couldn't believe that the people of Avila would consider a dozen cloistered sisters and their prioress such a threat to the community at large. If the foundation turned out to be a mistake, it might cause harm to the sisters who lived there. But how could it hurt the city? It just didn't make sense. Not to me, anyway. But it apparently made good enough sense to our adversaries that they fought with all their might to oppose us and felt thoroughly justified in doing so. They finally offered a compromise position. We could found the new monastery, but only if we had an income. At this point, I was so weary of all the struggles that I considered giving in. I felt worse about the trials of the people who were helping me than about my own. Maybe it wasn't such a bad idea to allow for an income until our opponents settled down. We could always relinquish it later. Maybe this is what the Lord wanted, since it didn't seem as if it would work out any other way. Being what I am, these are the thoughts I entertained. The night before the matter was supposed to be resolved, I was in prayer. I was already in the process of acquiescing to the demands of the city, and we had begun to discuss the details. Then the Lord spoke to me. You must not give in to them, he said. If you accept an income in the beginning, they will not let you renounce it later. That same night, the holy friar Pedro de Alcantara, who was already dead, appeared before me. Before he died, Father Pedro had written me a letter telling me that he rejoiced in the intense opposition and persecution we were suffering to bring this new foundation into being. He knew what we were going through and considered it a sign that the Lord would be served by it, since the spirit of evil was going to so much trouble to thwart it. In the letter, he also urged me, three or four times, not to accept an income under any circumstances. If you follow my advice, he wrote, everything will turn out the way you desire. I had seen Father Pedro two or three times since his death and had experienced his great glory, so I was not afraid when he appeared to me that night. Rather, it made me very happy to see him. He always manifested in his glorified body, filled with glory, and it filled me with glory to behold him. I recalled what he had told me the first time he appeared to me. My joy is utterly sublime, he said. The penance I performed on earth has yielded an abundant reward. I think I have already told you about these glorious appearances, so I will not say any more about them here. But this time, his countenance was severe. He repeated that I should by no means accept any revenue. Why do you refuse to take my advice, he asked. Then he vanished, leaving me startled. At my first opportunity the next day, I confided in my old friend Don Francisco. Since he was now the man who was most involved in the project, I turned to him with everything. I told him about my vision and instructed him that we absolutely must not accept an endowment. Let's let them go ahead with the lawsuit, I said. 
But Don Francisco was already more convinced of the importance of poverty than I was. This news made him very happy. Later, he told me he had only agreed to that compromise with the most severe reluctance. Then, just as the negotiations were about to result in a settlement, an overly zealous servant of God stepped forward to say that the entire matter should be placed in the hands of some learned men. This worried me. Some of the people who were helping me actually capitulated to that proposal. This new snarl, the spirit of evil tied in our project, proved to be the most difficult of all tangles to unravel. The Lord helped me with everything. It would be impossible for me to describe all that happened in a summary like this. Although the entire two years between the founding of the monastery and the resolution of the litigation was a difficult time, the first and last phases were the most labor-intensive. Well, once the city of Avila was somewhat mollified, Father Ibanez, the Dominican who had been helping us from afar, came to our rescue in an important way. The Lord brought him to us just when we needed him most. This priest later told us that he had not intended to come to Avila, but had ended up there by accident. When he heard of our plight, he stayed long enough to convince the provincial to let me come to the new monastery, along with a few other sisters from the Incarnation, to recite the divine office and teach it to the sisters here. It was almost impossible to believe that he could pull this off in such a short time, but he did. The provincial granted us his permission. The day we first went to St. Joseph's to recite the divine office was a day of profound consolation for me. Before I entered the new monastery, I sat outside in the church to pray. As I slipped into a nearly total state of rapture, I saw Christ. He seemed to be receiving me with great love. He placed a crown on my head and thanked me for everything I had done for his mother. On another occasion, we were all praying in the choir after Compline, and Our Lady appeared to me in all her glory. She was clothed in a white mantle, and it seemed as though she were sheltering all of us beneath it. I saw this as a sign of the high degree of glory the Lord would give the sisters who lived in this house. Once we had initiated the liturgical practices, people began to grow deeply devoted to the new monastery. We accepted more nuns, and the Lord began to inspire our most vigorous persecutors to become our most enthusiastic supporters. They approved the very thing of which they had disapproved, and they even gave us alms. Eventually, they dropped the whole lawsuit. They admitted that the house must be the work of God, since His Majesty had brought it into being against all odds. There is no one left who thinks the new foundation was a bad idea, and they provide us with charity to keep us going. We don't have to beg or even ask for anything from anybody. The Lord moves them to send us money. We get along very well and do not lack any necessities. I trust in the Lord that we never will. There are so few of us, and as long as His Majesty continues to give us the grace to serve Him, as He has done so far, I am sure we will never need to be so anxious that we become a burden or a bother to anyone. The Lord will provide for us. It is a supreme joy to find myself living with such detached souls. All they talk about is how they can serve God better. 
They take comfort in solitude, and the only people they want to see are those who make the fire of their love for their beloved burn brighter. Otherwise, the thought of being with other people, even their own relatives, is a burden to them. They do not entertain idle visitors. And so, people do not come to this house unless they come to talk about love. The language of love is the only vocabulary the sisters know. They don't understand anyone who does not speak the same language, nor could anyone who doesn't know that language understand a word these lovers say. It seems to me now that all the trials we suffered were well worth it. We live with severe austerity. It's true. We follow the original Carmelite rule. We are strict vegetarians, except by necessity. We observe an eight-month fast and other rigors. We engage in some other aesthetic practices that we feel help us live the rule more perfectly. But all of these sacrifices feel small to the sisters. All I can do now is hope in the Lord that what has begun to blossom will continue to flower as His Majesty has promised it will. The Lord has also showered blessings on the other house founded by the Holy Sister Maria de Jesus. Sister Maria, too, was confronted with horrendous opposition and suffered severe trials. Her monastery has been established in Alcala, and they also conform to the primitive rule of our order. May it please our Lord that everything we do for His glory and praise and the glory and praise of His Blessed Mother, the Glorious Virgin Mary, whose robes we wear. Amen. I suspect that the long history I have given of the foundation of our monastery may be a little tedious to read. But believe me, in light of the many trials we suffered and the wonders we enjoyed, it's very short. There are many witnesses who can attest to the marvels the Lord worked for us, so I beg you, even if you tear up all the other parts of this account, please preserve anything that pertains to this monastery. When I am dead, please give this document to the sisters who live here. I have a feeling it will serve as an important encouragement to those who come after us. When they see how His Majesty orchestrated so many things to establish this place, using such a flawed creature as myself as an instrument, it will inspire them to be of even greater service to God. May they never let what has been created here fall into decay, but rather help it to flourish forever. The Lord has very specifically blessed this foundation. It seems to me that we would be committing a punishable offense if we were ever to slacken the way of perfection that has been established here. Since we bear this tradition with such ease and everything runs so smoothly, He obviously favors it. The single requirement for maintaining this equanimity is to rejoice in Christ, our Beloved. This must be our sole aim, to be alone with Him. And we must strive to have no more than 13 members living here. I have been told that this is an appropriate number and have had this confirmed through experience. If we are to preserve our spiritual life and survive on charity without begging, we cannot sustain a large number. Let us always trust the One who, with the many prayers and willing surrender of many souls, made everything work out for the best. We have experienced such happiness and delight during our years here. 
Our burdens have been light. Our health has been better than ever. These things testify to the correctness of our small numbers. Anyone who thinks life here is harsh should blame her own lack of spirituality and not our practices. If women who are sickly or have delicate constitutions observe the rule so gracefully, why shouldn't these others be able to endure it? Those who are not ready for this way of life should go to some other monastery where they can find salvation in accordance with their own spiritual natures. Chapter 37 Divine Friendship How could I possibly say any more about the blessings the Lord has granted me? It must already be too much for anyone to believe that He has given such gifts to someone like me. But both the Lord and His earthly representatives have commanded me to write this account. So, I will say a few more things in praise of God. May it please His Majesty that some soul may be inspired to serve Him more, simply to see that He has given such mercy to a soul as lost as mine. What, then, will He grant to someone who truly serves Him? May everyone everywhere be motivated to please His Majesty who, even in this lifetime, bestows such wondrous tokens of His love. The first thing to understand is that there can be different degrees of glory in different divine favors. It has amazed me to observe how the consolation and delight in some visions far surpasses the joy that comes from other visions. Sometimes, the ecstasy God gives a soul in rapture is so perfect that she cannot imagine that there is anything left on earth to desire, so she asks for nothing more. Ever since God first showed me how even in heaven different souls experience different levels of happiness, I have seen how here on earth, too, there is no limit to what the Lord can give. And so I wouldn't want to measure out what I offer up to the Lord. I want to engage the full extent of my life force, my health, and my strength to serve Him. I wouldn't want to risk losing a single crumb of my ultimate reward through some fault of my own. If someone were to ask me whether I would be willing to bear all the trials in this world until the world itself comes to an end, if it meant I would experience a little more glory in the next world, or else live without any trials and so not ascend as high in heaven, I can honestly say I would eagerly choose all the trials. I am yearning to rejoice in the knowledge of God's greatness. I see that whoever understands Him best loves and praises Him most. I don't mean to imply that I wouldn't be happy or count myself incredibly blessed to attain even the lowest level of paradise. Since I have deserved the bottom spot in hell, His Majesty will be showing me enormous mercy to bring me to heaven at all. May it be His will that I go there. May He not take my sins seriously. What I am saying is that, with God's grace, I want to work very hard not to lose my chance to go to paradise through my own unconsciousness. Scoundrel that I am, I have already committed so many errors and forfeited such grace. Fortunately, I have learned something from every mystical favor the Lord has granted me. With each new vision or revelation, my soul has grown. In some cases, the benefits have been remarkable. The vision of Christ, 
left me with an indelible impression of his supreme beauty. I carry this beauty with me always. If one incident has such a powerful and lasting impact, imagine how much more deeply he imprints himself on my soul when he reveals himself to me again and again. Here's one benefit I derived from my vision of Christ. Before he appeared to me, I had this troubling tendency to become very attached to anyone I thought liked me. As soon as I began to detect that someone had fond feelings for me and I myself found them attractive, I would start thinking about them all the time and recalling every detail of our encounters. I had no intention of forsaking God, but I was very happy whenever I got to see these people. I loved to think about them and reflect on all the positive qualities I perceived in them. This habit was becoming a serious problem and leading my soul astray. After I had seen the extraordinary beauty of the Lord, no human being could compare with Him or take His place in my thoughts. All I had to do was turn my gaze slightly inward to behold the image imprinted in my soul, and I was instantaneously free from all mundane attractions. In fact, Everything here on earth looked ugly to me compared to the excellent attributes I had glimpsed in this glorious beloved of mine. And his speech. There is no worldly wisdom and no human solace I can think of that could amount to anything compared with a single word uttered from those divine lips. Imagine how much more meaningful to hear many whole sentences. Unless the Lord were to punish me for my transgressions by erasing my memory of Him, I think it would be impossible for me to become so entangled by thoughts of another person that I couldn't extricate myself with the gentlest effort to return my attention to the Lord. I experienced this kind of liberation in the case of one of my confessors. I have always had a tendency to develop a deep fondness for the men who guide my soul. I believe they stand in God's place in a very real way, so my thoughts of them are intimately entwined with my thoughts of God. Because I feel safe with them, I express my affection. This often seems to make them uncomfortable, being God-fearing servants of the Lord. They are afraid that my love for them, even if it is a very spiritual love, might become a dangerous temptation for me, so they have treated me harshly. It never happens until I enter into a relationship of obedience to them. As soon as I begin to obey them, I grow fond of them. Sometimes when I saw how they were misinterpreting my feelings for them, I would laugh to myself, but wouldn't let on to them how unattached I really was to any human being. But I did reassure them, and as they got to know me better, they realized that my primary attachment was to the Lord. These misunderstandings usually only occurred at the beginning of our acquaintance. Once I had seen this beloved of mine and discovered how easily and how continually I could converse with him, my confidence in the divine friendship increased. I saw that although he was God, he was also a man, and the frailties of the human condition didn't surprise him. He understood our nature. He knew that our tendency to fall was because of the original fall, and that was exactly what he had come to repair. Even though he is Lord, I can speak with Christ the way I would talk to a friend. I know he isn't like the lords we have here on earth, whose authority is entirely artificial. 
They have designated times for speaking and designated people to whom they speak. If some poor little person has some business with such a lord, she has to go through all kinds of roundabout routes to get to him. She has to beg favors and endure insults just to have a moment of his time. Imagine if this person were trying to get an audience with the king. Poor people don't have a chance. Unless a supplicant comes from the upper class, she can't get close. Instead, she has to ask his assistance for help. And believe me, these aides are not men who have trampled the world underfoot. Those who have severed their worldly attachments are not afraid to speak the truth. They are not obligated to anyone. They are not suited for palace life because they cannot be who they are in such places. If a person like this were to see something he thought was wrong in the kingdom, he would have to hold his silence. He wouldn't dare speak out or even think about it for fear he would fall from royal favor. Oh, glorious king! Oh, lord of all kings! Your sovereignty is not plagued by trivialities. Your kingdom has no limits. Of course we do not need intermediaries to reach you. All we need is a fleeting glance, and we immediately see that you alone deserve to be called Lord. You don't require an entourage or armed guards to prove that you are king. Here on earth, a king would not be recognized as king if he were all alone. No matter how much he wanted his status acknowledged, no one would believe him. He would look like everyone else. It is only outward displays of power and authority that convince people of his royal station. Stripped of these trappings, he commands no one's esteem. The appearance of power has nothing to do with the man himself, but with the artificial display of authority that others confer upon him. Oh, my lord, oh, my king, who would ever know how to describe you? How could we ever fail to see that you are in yourself a great emperor? A mere glimpse of your majesty strikes the heart with awe. Look how graciously you blend magnificence with humility. The more I see the love you pour on such a miserable creature as I, the more awestruck I become. Still, once the first wave of fear from beholding your majesty passes, we feel free to engage in intimate conversation with you. We can say anything we like. Even though the fear of offending you grows stronger, it is not punishment we are afraid of. Punishment is nothing compared to the possibility of losing you, my beloved. Here are some of the benefits of this vision. For one thing, a vision that comes from God leaves marvelous effects when its light strikes the soul. But sometimes... It's the Lord's will for a soul to remain in darkness and not see the light. There are good reasons for a soul who knows herself, as I know myself, to be a little afraid. Just recently, I spent eight days feeling spiritually dry and empty. I lost all sense of gratitude toward God and couldn't get it back, no matter how hard I tried. I couldn't remember any of the blessings He has given me. My soul had sunk into a terrible stupor, and I had no idea how it had gotten there. I wasn't having bad thoughts, but I seemed incapable of having any good ones either. I couldn't help but laugh at myself. It amused me to see how low a soul can sink when God is not working in her every minute. 
This trial is not nearly as severe as others I have endured, because I don't doubt that God is still with me. But in a state like this, no matter how much wood the soul piles on the fire, no matter what else she does by her own effort, the flames of love will not burn. Through God's great mercy, she sees the smoke, so she knows the fire is not completely dead. The Lord will come back to rekindle it. Even though the soul bruises her head trying to blow on the embers and rearrange the wood, all she seems to succeed in doing is stifling the flames even more. I believe the best thing for the soul to do in this situation is to surrender totally. She needs to accept the fact that she can do nothing and occupy herself by being of service to others. Maybe the Lord takes the soul away from her customary state of prayer so that she will engage in charitable works and realize that by herself she can do nothing anyway. I have to admit, today I was delighting with my beloved in prayer, and I grew very bold. Why isn't it enough for you, my Lord, I complained, to keep me bound to this miserable life? For love of you, I endure all this and resign myself to living in a place where everything hinders me from enjoying you. Here I have to eat and sleep and conduct business and carry on conversations with everyone. It torments me, my Lord, but I suffer it all for love of you. In the few moments I have left over to enjoy your presence, how could you hide from me, my beloved? Is this compatible with your compassion? How can your love for me allow this? I believe, Lord, that if I were able to hide from you as you have hidden from me, your love for me would make it impossible for you to endure it. But you are always with me, and you see everything I do. Do not put up with this separation a moment longer, my beloved. I beg you to see how much you are hurting the one who loves you so much. It occurred to me to say many other things to my beloved, knowing perfectly well how merciful he has been to me compared to what I deserve. But sometimes I become so crazy with love that I don't know what I'm saying. With the full energy of my mind, I launch these complaints against my Lord, and he puts up with it all. Praise be to such a good king. We wouldn't dare say these things to an earthly king. We would have good reason to be afraid of such a man and of his representatives, too. The way the world is these days, our lives would have to double in length for us to have any hope of learning all the fine points of etiquette and all the new social rules and still have some time left over for paying attention to God. When I see what's going on, I bless myself. The thing is, I still had not learned how to live when I entered the monastery of St. Joseph's. I failed to treat certain men any better than I felt they deserved. I did not take their social status seriously enough. Important people do not take such carelessness lightly. They consider it a personal affront, and then you have to make an effort to prove that your intentions are good. Even then, please God, they believe you. Really, I did not know how to live. My poor soul was worn out. The men told her that she must keep her thoughts fixed on God. They insisted that her only hope for salvation was for her to devote her attention entirely to Him. Yet she also received the message that she had better not miss a single point of worldly honor that might compromise the reputation of people whose status was based on such details.
these rules wearied me. I was constantly apologizing. Although I studied the matter, I couldn't help but make many mistakes. And as I say, in a world like this, errors of etiquette are no laughing matter. Shouldn't monks and nuns be exempt from strict observance of these worldly customs? Well, apparently we aren't. Instead, monasteries are expected to be charm schools. We are supposed to know all the nuances of social etiquette. I, for one, cannot understand this. I thought the masters had taught us that monastic life is where we learn to be courtiers in heaven. The world has it all backward. Our focus needs to be on pleasing God and rejecting the world. If we care about the spiritual path, how can we be equally careful to keep up with all the ever-changing rules about pleasing important people in the world? I mean, if we can learn a list of rules once and for all, that would be fine. But the simple task of finding the proper titles with which to address a letter requires a university chair to deliver a lecture on how it is to be done. Sometimes you're supposed to leave a margin on one side of the page, sometimes on the other. Sometimes a man who is not even called magnificence is expected to be addressed as illustrious. I don't know how any of this is going to turn out. I am not even 50 yet, and I have already seen so many changes that it makes my head spin. I don't know how to live anymore. What's going to become of the people who are being born right now and will live for many years to come? I have deep compassion for spiritual people who are, for one reason or another, obligated to live in the world. All these rules of correct behavior must be a heavy cross for them to bear. If only they could make an agreement among themselves to remain ignorant of this silly science. They should insist on their right to such ignorance. It would save them a great deal of trouble. But what nonsense I've been talking. I meant to speak of the greatness of God, and instead I've delivered a diatribe about the pettiness of the world. Since the Lord has graciously allowed me to renounce the world, I will leave these things behind now. Let those who are in love with trivial things attend to them. Please, God, we will not have to pay for these things in the next life, where everything is unchanging. Amen. Chapter 38 Flight of the Spirit One night, I felt so ill that I had to excuse myself from the communal practice of silent prayer. I took my rosary with me so that at least I could occupy myself with vocal prayer. Since I was sitting in an oratory, it probably appeared that I was in a recollected state, but I was trying very hard not to let my mind become absorbed. Such techniques are of little use, however, when the Lord wills otherwise. I had not been there for very long when such a forceful rapture seized my soul that I was powerless to resist it. It seemed to me that I was carried to heaven, where I was greeted by my father and mother. In the short amount of time it takes to recite an Ave Maria, I saw so many wondrous things that I remained utterly transported. The blessing felt too great to bear. Although it seemed as if it was over in a fleeting moment, the experience may have lasted much longer, 
I'm not sure. The vision felt totally real, but I started to worry that it might be a delusion. I didn't know what to do. I was embarrassed to go to my spiritual director about it. I didn't think this was a matter of humility. I think I was afraid he would make fun of me. You're a regular little St. Paul, aren't you, with your heavenly visions, he might say. Or, look who thinks you St. Jerome. The fact that these glorious men had experienced similar visions made me worry even more. All I could do was cry. I didn't think I could possibly deserve to see what saints see. Finally, I overcame my resistance and went to my director. No matter how much I disliked talking about these things, I knew it was dangerous to remain silent about them, since I am often plagued with the fear that my experiences might be delusional. When he saw how distressed I was, he comforted me. He said all the right things to disengage me from my troubled thoughts. Over time, the Lord showed me other great secrets. He continues to do so. It is impossible for the soul to behold more than God reveals to her. No matter how much she may have sometimes wished to see beyond what God was manifesting, my soul saw exactly what she needed to see every time. And the truth is, the smallest part of what he revealed to me was so vast that it was enough to leave my soul in awe and put all the insignificant things of this life into perspective. I wish I could say something about even a fraction of what I came to know, but I find it impossible to express. If I try to use the analogy of light, it falls short. There is light here and there is light in that other place, but the latter so totally transcends the former that any comparison becomes meaningless. Next to the divine light, the light of the sun looks dull. However keen the imagination may be, it can never succeed in describing or illustrating this light or in conveying any of the other things the Lord taught me. Along with the knowledge he gives, the Lord bestows an ineffable delight. It is so sublime that a thousand words cannot describe it. All the senses rejoice. The absolute exultation it produces defies all language. And so, it's better to say nothing. Once, the Lord spent more than an hour revealing these wondrous things to me. It seemed that he never left my side that whole time. Finally, he said to me, Do you see, my daughter? what those who reject me lose? Please do not fail to tell them about it. Ah, oh, my beloved, unless your majesty gives them light, what good could I possibly do for those who are blinded by their own actions? There are some people who have already glimpsed your light. They may well be in a position to profit from hearing about your grandeurs. But not when the words come from the likes of me. As soon as I mention that you have revealed your mercies to such a flawed person as myself, they will refuse to believe me. May your name be blessed. May your merciful name be blessed. I, for one, have seen dramatic improvement in myself. After you had blessed me, I wanted to remain in that state forever and never return to the mundane world. Direct contact with you, my beloved? left me with contempt for everything earthly. The things of this world felt like nothing but dung to me after that. 
I have seen how easy it is for those of us who dwell here to get caught up in empty concerns. Once, when I was staying with Doña Luisa de Cerda, I was suffering from severe pains in my chest. I used to have serious heart trouble, but I don't anymore. Since she was a very charitable woman, she had some elaborate gold jewelry and some very precious stones brought out to show me. One of the diamonds in particular was extremely valuable. She thought it would cheer me up to see them. Recalling what the Lord has in store for us in the next world, I couldn't help but laugh at what people value here. I feel sorry for them. I realized how impossible it would be for me to cherish these objects even if I tried. The Lord would have to expunge the things he has shown me from my memory. A soul who has been given mastery of her own desires has a huge advantage. But she does not bequeath this dominion to herself. It is a gift from God. Someone who does not have this kind of detachment cannot understand what it's like. It's not a matter of willful self-control. It comes naturally, without any labor on our part. God does it all. And He does it by revealing His truths in such a way that they are imprinted on our souls. It is obvious to us that this detachment is a divine gift, because we never could have acquired it so quickly and easily on our own. I used to be terrified of death. Not anymore. Since the visions, dying feels like the easiest thing in the world. In the moment of death, the servant of God finds herself released at last from this prison. Finally, she is free to rest. I think these raptures must be similar to the experience of the soul leaving the body. When God transports me like this, he carries my spirit away and reveals such sublime things to me that it seems as if I see everything that is sacred and excellent all at once. We don't need to talk about the pain that happens when the soul and the body are finally separated from one another. This is insignificant, and it passes quickly. Besides, I have a feeling that death comes gently to those who truly love God and are unmoved by the trappings of this life. The other thing these visions gave me is the gift of recognizing that we are pilgrims in this world, and our real home lies beyond this one. It is wonderful to be given the chance to see the place where we will be living. If someone had to go and live forever in another country, it would make the hardships of the journey much easier for him if he knew that he was going to a place where he would be living in comfort and ease. The visions have also helped me keep my attention focused on heavenly things. It's easier to keep my conversations on a spiritual track. Cultivating this awareness has many benefits. Sometimes, just glancing toward heaven is enough to recollect the soul. Since the Lord has graciously revealed a glimpse of what it's like, the soul has something on which to concentrate. There are times when the beings that live in that other world are more real to me than those who inhabit this one. They are my companions. They're the ones I turn to for real comfort. They feel truly alive while those who live here on earth seem so dead. There are times when I think there is no one in the whole world to keep me company. I especially feel this way when the raptures come over me. Everything I see with the eyes of this body 
seems to be a dream or a joke. I desire what I have already seen with the eyes of my soul, but it feels so far away, and this life is like death to me. Overall, I know that the Lord is doing us a great favor when he grants us these visions. But even as he is helping us, he is giving us a heavy cross to bear, since nothing in this life pleases us after seeing what he has shown us. Everything here feels like an impediment. Mercifully, the Beloved allows us to forget from time to time. Otherwise, I don't know how we could live. May God be blessed and praised forever. May it be His will by the blood His Son shed for me that what happened to Lucifer never happened to me. That fallen angel lost everything through his own fault. I have already learned something about God's great blessings and have begun to enjoy them. May God, being who He is, not allow me to lose what He has given me. Sometimes I become very afraid about this, but mostly God's mercy makes me feel safe. He has freed me from so many transgressions that I cannot imagine He would ever let me out of His hands again. I beg you to beg God never to let me go astray. None of those favors were as powerful as the one of which I am about to speak. Although the greatness of each blessing is incomparable, especially when considered in and of itself, this particular experience is remarkable for the way it fortified my soul. One day, on the eve of Pentecost, I went after Mass to a secluded place where I liked to pray. I began to read about this holy day in the Carthusian book called The Life of Christ. I read about the signs that demonstrate to beginning, adept, and perfect practitioners of prayer whether the Holy Spirit is with them. It made me realize that, as far as I could tell, He was with me. I praised the goodness of God and remembered that the last time I had read this same passage, I lacked much of what I had now. I had been well aware of this deficiency at the time, just as I was now conscious of how far I had come. So I understood what a great favor the Lord had granted me. I began to reflect on the punishment I deserved for the bad things I had done and gave thanks to God. I could hardly recognize my soul. The changes He had made in me were so radical. While I was musing on this, a powerful energy abruptly swept over me. It seemed that my soul didn't fit in my body anymore and wanted to get out. She couldn't wait a moment longer to attain such goodness. This impulse was so extreme that there was nothing I could do to help myself. It felt very different from other transports. My soul was so stirred up that she didn't know what had happened to her or what she wanted. I was sitting down, but my natural strength drained out of me so quickly that I had to lean against the wall to keep from falling over. In the midst of this state, I saw a dove above my head. It was very different from the doves of this world and much larger. It didn't have typical feathers. Instead, the wings seemed to be made of tiny shells that sparkled with intense brilliance. I thought I could hear the sound the dove made with the movement of its great wings. It fluttered over me for the space of an Ave Maria, but my soul was so transported that I lost myself. I lost sight of the dove. 
Ordinarily, such a dramatic experience would have frightened and agitated me, but instead my spirit was soothed by the presence of such a good guest, and I relaxed into the vision. My soul lingered in rapture, and I was filled with a joyous quietude. The glory of this rapture was exceedingly great. For the rest of Pentecost, I remained spellbound and stupefied. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was bewildered by my capacity to receive such an exalted gift. I could hardly hear or see anything, yet I basked in a wondrous interior delight. I noticed that from that day forward, I made tremendous progress on the path. My love of God increased dramatically, and my virtues grew much stronger. May He be forever blessed and praised. I saw that same dove on another occasion. This time, it was hovering over the head of the Dominican friar Pedro Ibanez. Its great wings and the rays of light that radiated from them extended much further than when I saw it over my own head. I understood that the soul of this man was meant to bring many other souls to God. On yet another occasion, I saw Our Lady drape a bright white cloak over Father Ibanez's shoulders. I am giving this to him because of the service he has rendered us in helping found this house of prayer, she said. This cloak is a sign that I will keep his soul spotless from now on. He shall never fall into grave error. And I am certain this is so. Father Ibanez died a few years later. His life was so pure and his death so holy that insofar as we on earth can know such things, there is no way to doubt the Blessed Mother's promise. A friar who was present at the deathbed told me that just before Father Ibanez died, he told the friar that St. Thomas was with him. He died with great joy. He was excited to be freed from this exile. Since his death, Father Ibanez has appeared to me several times in resplendent glory and told me a few things. By the time he died, his practice of prayer had reached such a high level that even though he wanted to avoid contemplative prayer because of his weak health, his raptures kept carrying him away. Father Ibanez wrote to me shortly before he died. What should I do? he asked. Often, when I finish celebrating Mass, I slip into a rapture and there's nothing I can do to stop it. At the end of his life, God rewarded Father Ibanez for the great service he had offered throughout his life. I also witnessed some of the wondrous blessings God bestowed on Gaspard de Salazar, the Jesuit director I've written about. I will avoid mentioning these things here so that this account will not be too long. Father de Salazar once experienced a terrible trial in which he was being unfairly accused and persecuted. He found himself in a state of deep affliction. One day, as the host was elevated during Mass, I saw Christ on the cross behind Father de Salazar. Christ told me some comforting words to convey to the priest. He said some other things that foretold what was to come and reminded the priest of what Christ had suffered for him, even as he announced that Father de Salazar should prepare himself to suffer. This message gave him courage and solace. Everything turned out the way the Lord had told me it would. 
I have seen many other great things concerning the Jesuit order. Sometimes I have seen its members in heaven, carrying white banners in their hands, and the Lord has shown me other wonderful things about them. That's why I admire the Society of Jesus so much. Every contact I have with them further reinforces my certainty that their lives conform to what God has told me about them. One night while I was in prayer, the Lord began to remind me how bad my life used to be. His words filled me with shame and dismay. Although he did not speak harshly, it triggered an all-consuming regret and grief in me. But a single word from him stimulates more dramatic progress in self-knowledge than many days of reflection on our own wretchedness. The divine message bears the indelible stamp of truth. The Lord recalled for me the extremely superficial friendships I had cultivated in my youth. He told me that I should be happy that my will, which had been so badly occupied with vanity, was now fixed on Him. He promised to honor my desire to be with Him. Remember when you used to consider it an honor to defy me? He asked. While you were dealing me the harshest blows, I was showering you with blessings. The Lord helped me to recognize my debt of gratitude to Him. I am truly blessed. I know I am. Whenever I am doing anything wrong, His Majesty makes me so conscious of it that I am reduced to nothing. Since I have so many faults, this happens frequently. Sometimes after my confessor has chastised me, I seek consolation and prayer, but that's where I receive the real reprimand. As I was saying, I felt terrible about myself that night. It seemed as though I had made little progress, and this thought made me weep. Then, in the midst of my tears, I began to wonder if the Lord was about to grant me some blessing, since He often precedes His favors by humbling me so thoroughly that I have no illusions about being entitled to His grace. No sooner had I thought this then my soul was swept up in such a powerful rapture that I seemed to be entirely disconnected from my body. I saw the most sacred humanity clearer and more glorious than I had ever seen it before. With a penetrating understanding, I watched the Father enfold the Son in His heart. I don't know how to describe this. Without seeing anything, I somehow saw that I was in the presence of the Divine. I was so completely shocked by this encounter that it took me several days to return to myself. It seemed to me that wherever I went, I was accompanied by the majesty of the Son of God. This aftermath wasn't as powerful as the initial experience, but I understood that a vision of this magnitude engraves itself so deeply on the imagination and no matter how swiftly it passes, it leaves its impression for a long, long time. This impression is very comforting. It is a great blessing. I have seen this same vision three other times. Of all the visions the Lord has granted me, I think this one is the most sublime. It carries marvelous benefits. It seems to purify the soul removing any attachment to sensual gratification. It is a powerful flame that burns away all worldly desires, 
for even though I did not desire any typical vain things, glory be to God, this experience helped me to see clearly how all this life is vanity. How vain, how truly vain are the distinctions of this world. A vision like this becomes a powerful tool for elevating one's desires to pure truth. It fills the soul with a sense of deep reverence that I wouldn't know how to put into words. It is very different from anything we experience here on earth. The soul is awestruck to realize how she or any other soul could dare forsake such an extraordinary majesty. Remember, different visions have varying degrees of impact on the soul. The beneficial effects of this particular vision are immense. As I approached the altar to receive communion, I was flooded with the memory of the extraordinary majesty that I had seen. When I considered the presence of the divinity in the blessed sacrament, which I had so often beheld in the host, my hair stood on end. The whole experience seemed to annihilate me. Oh, my Lord! If you did not hide your greatness, who would dare to keep reaching for union with you? Who could ever consider herself worthy to become one with you? May the angels and all the creatures praise you. You measure out everything according to our weakness. We can rejoice in your supreme blessings without being overwhelmed by your awesome power. You do not scare us away from enjoying you. What once happened to a certain laborer could happen to us. He found a treasure that far exceeded any value he could comprehend. He became so consumed with worry about what to do with it that his anxiety gradually killed him. What if he hadn't found it all at once? What if the treasure had been handed to him bit by bit? Since he was so poor, it would have sustained him, and he would have lived happily. Instead, the discovery cost him his life. O oh, wealth of the poor! How beautifully you sustain our souls! You reveal your great riches to us gradually, rather than letting us see everything at once. I am astonished to see such extraordinary majesty concealed in something as small and humble as the host. When I reflect on this afterward, I marvel at such profound wisdom and wonder how the Lord gives me the courage to approach Him. All I know is that the one who gives me such blessed favors is the one who also gives me the strength to receive them. I cannot possibly hide this knowledge. I cannot resist proclaiming it to anyone who will listen. Listen! God is great! What will a wretch like me feel when she approaches this majestic Lord, knowing that he has invited her into his presence? I am weighed down with shame. I have wasted my life and forgotten my awe of God. How can a mouth that has spoken so many words against this same Lord Receive that most glorious body. He is pure goodness and perfect compassion. Having seen his beautiful face, tender and friendly, my soul feels more sorrow for not having served him than she feels fear of his magnificence. How could I possibly have experienced what I am about to describe, not just once, but twice? O oh, my Lord and my glory! 
I feel certain that in some mysterious way I have served you by enduring the affliction I will now recount. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I am writing this as if someone else were speaking through me. As I recall these things, I am so disturbed that I am almost beside myself. How could I have just thought I had anything to offer you? That idea did not come from me. Maybe I do have a right to say I have done something for you, but no such notion is even possible unless you put it into my head. There's no reason to thank myself for thinking it. I am the one in debt to you, my beloved, and you are the one who has been wronged. Once, when I stood up to receive communion, I saw two abominable devils. They appeared more clearly to the eyes of my soul than to my physical eyes. It looked like they had wrapped their horns around the poor priest's throat. When I recalled that my Lord in all his majesty was within the host that was about to be given to me, now held in the hands of his offender, I understood that the soul of this priest was in mortal sin. Can you imagine, my Lord, what it was like to see your beauty in the midst of such hideous company? The demons seemed terrified in your presence, as if they would flee the second you released them. This vision so thoroughly upset me that I don't know how I was able to receive communion. Afterward, I was afraid that the vision did not come from God, because why would he have allowed me to see evil in connection with a priest? But then the Lord himself commanded me to pray for that soul. Do you see how powerful the words of consecration are? He asked me. However wicked the priest who recites them may be, God does not fail to be present when they are uttered. Christ reminded me of the boundless benevolence he manifests by placing himself in the hands of his enemy and how he does this out of love for me and all beings. I realized several things from this vision. I saw how much more obligated priests are than the rest of us to be good. I saw what a terrible thing it is to approach the blessed sacrament with unclean hands. I saw how much power the spirit of evil has over a soul lost in grave error. All this did me a great deal of good. It helped me to understand more fully what I owe to God. May he be blessed forever and ever. On another day, I saw a similar vision and it really scared me. I was in a certain place when a man died. I had heard that he had lived a wicked life. But his illness had spanned two years, so he'd had time to make amends for some of the things he had done. Although he died without confession, it didn't seem to me that he would be condemned. While the body was being wrapped in its shroud, I saw a multitude of evil spirits grab hold of it and start cruelly playing with it. It terrified me to see them drag the deceased with large hooks, tossing him from one demon to another. As I watched, while that same body was buried with all the honor and ceremony we bestow on our dead, I reflected on the goodness of God. He conceals the fact that a soul set itself against him. He doesn't allow his enemy to be dishonored. I was stunned by what I had seen. I did not see another evil spirit during the rest of the ceremony until they placed the body in the grave. 
That's when another horde of demons jumped in with him and tried to take him away. Seeing this made me frantic, and it took all my courage to conceal it. If they had such dominion over the poor body, what would they be able to do to the soul? If only souls in a state of grave error could see what I have seen. It's horrible. I think it would be a powerful incentive for them to repair their wicked ways and start living a life of integrity. These visions deepen my awareness of how much I am beholden to God. Look what He has freed me from. This experience continued to trouble my mind until I spoke to my confessor about it. He assured me that the vision was not a delusion. I had been afraid that the spirit of evil might have been tricking me to discredit the man's soul. It might have been true that he did not have the most pious spirit, but the outcome terrified me every time I thought about it. Now that I have recounted some of my experiences with the dead, I'd like to tell you about some of the other ways in which it has been God's will for me to see certain souls. I'll just mention a few of these, since it doesn't benefit anyone for me to go into great detail. I was informed of the death of a man who had once been our provincial, Father Gregorio Fernandez. I had dealt with him on various occasions, and he had been very kind to me. He was a virtuous man, known for his many good deeds. When I heard that he was dead, I was immediately worried about his salvation. Father Fernandez had been a superior for twenty years, and I think being in charge of other people's souls can be a dangerous thing. I entered an oratory with an anxious heart. I offered up all the merit I might ever have accumulated in my life for the good of Father Fernandez's soul. But when I realized that it didn't amount to much, I asked the Lord to draw from His own store of goodness to purify and liberate the priest's soul. While I was in the middle of petitioning the Lord to the best of my ability, the man's soul seemed to rise up out of the ground on my right side and ascend into heaven. He looked gloriously happy. When I knew Father Fernandez, he was already quite old. But in this vision, he looked like he wasn't even thirty. His face was beaming. The moment passed very quickly, but I felt much better afterward. Father Fernandez was greatly revered, and I saw people suffering severe grief over his loss. But his death never made me feel sad again. The consolation I experienced banished all worry from my mind. I no longer doubted that his soul was safe, nor did I question if the vision was real or a delusion. Two weeks had passed since his death, and I continued to ask other people to pray for him. But although I kept praying for him myself, I did not do so as desperately as I had prayed before I had been given that vision. It's funny. When someone dies and the Lord shows them to me in this way, praying for them feels like giving alms to the rich. Father Fernandez died far away from Avila. Afterward, when I heard about the death the Lord had given him, I learned a lot from it. He amazed everyone with his deep wisdom and humble tears. A nun from the Incarnation died. She had been a great servant of God. A day and a half after her death, another nun was in the choir, 
reciting the service for the dead for her sister's departed soul. I stood beside her to accompany her. When she was halfway through the verse, I saw the nun who had died. As before, it seemed that her soul rose from my right side on its way to heaven. This was an intellectual vision, rather than an imaginative one like the other, but it was just as reliable. Around 18 or 20 years ago, another nun from that same house died. She had suffered from poor health her whole life and had always served God with great devotion. She was dedicated to her choir duties and scrupulous in every way. Since she had endured so many illnesses, I felt certain she had stored up a surplus of merit and would bypass purgatory. Yet four hours after her death, while we were reciting the prayers prior to her burial, I suddenly understood that her soul had been released from purgatory and was on its way to heaven. While I was at St. Helis, the Jesuit college in Avila, I was experiencing one of those great trials of body and soul I've told you about. I was so distraught that I don't think I was capable of thinking a single good thought. That night, a Jesuit brother died in that house. A priest from the Society of Jesus was saying Mass for him, and I was praying for him when a deep recollection came over me. I saw him ascend to heaven in great glory, and Christ rose with him. I was deeply blessed to understand that the Lord accompanied him on his journey home. Another very good friar from my own order, Diego Matias, was gravely ill. While I was at Mass, I fell into deep recollection and understood that Father Diego had died. I saw that he had ascended to heaven without going through purgatory. According to what I learned later, he died at the exact hour I'd had the vision of him. At first, I was amazed that he did not require a period of purification. But then I realized that because he had observed the monastic rule so faithfully, he was saved from a sojourn in purgatory. I don't know why I was given to understand this. It seems to me that it must be because I know that being a friar is not a matter of wearing the right robes. It's about cultivating the state of higher perfection, exemplified by a spiritual life. I don't know what to say any more about these things. As I mentioned, they don't really matter. The Lord has granted me the favor of seeing many things, but of all the visions I've received, I never saw any soul skip the purification stage and go straight to paradise, except for Father Diego, the saintly Pedro de Alcantara, and the Dominican priest I've talked about, Father Ibanez. It was God's will for me to see the varying degrees of glory allotted to some other souls and the distinct places assigned to them in the afterlife. As it turns out, these differences are far greater than I would have thought. Chapter 39 Beyond Doubt one day, I was imploring the Lord to restore sight to a certain person. The man had almost completely lost his vision. I felt terrible for the suffering of my friend and started to worry that the Lord would not listen to me because of my transgressions. Then the Lord appeared to me. He stretched out his left hand and showed me the wound there. 
With his other hand, he extracted a large nail that was embedded in it. It seemed to me that when the nail came out, it tore out a piece of flesh along with it. I could see the pain on my Lord's face, and it broke my heart. You should not doubt the one who has suffered for you, he reminded me. I will do what you ask, but even better. And then he asked, Haven't I already told you there is nothing I would not do for you? I know that you would never ask for anything that was not for the greater glory of God. Then, after reassuring me he would answer my prayers, he said, Please remember that even before you truly began to serve me, you never asked for anything that I did not grant, and in a better way than you even knew how to ask. Now that I know you love me, how much more likely am I to fulfill your request? Do not question this. Not even a week passed, and the Lord gave sight back to the blind man. My spiritual director heard the news right away. Of course, it's possible that my prayer had nothing to do with the man's sudden cure, but since it happened to correspond with my vision, I felt pretty certain that they were connected, and I praised God for His mercy, as if He had granted the favor to me personally. Once, my cousin Pedro was very sick with a severe case of kidney stones. He suffered unbearable pain for two months. The agony made him tear at his own flesh. My confessor went to visit him and felt so sorry for him that he told me I should go to see him myself since we were related. When I saw my cousin like that, my heart was moved to such pity that I burst into prayer and begged the Lord to heal him. God's favor could not have been clearer than they were in this case. The next day, Pedro was completely cured. On another occasion, I was very upset because a certain person I cared about was intent on engaging in an activity that would seriously dishonor both God and himself. He had made up his mind. He was going to go through with it. I was so worried about this, and I didn't know what to do to dissuade him. It seemed there was no hope of making him give up his plan. I urged God with all my heart to intervene. But since I didn't see any results from my prayer, I couldn't find any relief from my grief. We have various secluded retreat spaces here in our monastery. Filled with anxiety for my friend's soul, I went to the hermitage that has the painting I commissioned of Christ bound to the pillar and begged him to remedy the situation. I heard a gentle voice speaking to me as if in a whisper. The voice startled me, and my hair stood on end. I wanted to understand what it was saying, but it passed so quickly that I missed it. My fear also passed quickly. I felt deep quietude and joy. The inner delight was so pervasive that I was amazed. Simply hearing that voice in passing had such a profound effect on my soul. I had actually heard it with my physical ears this time, even though I hadn't understood a word. Somehow, I became aware that my prayer would be answered. Nothing changed externally, yet my inner affliction left me completely, as if what I had asked for had already been accomplished. 
the pain simply went away. Later, I found out that the man I was worried about had changed his mind and abandoned his destructive course of action. I told two of my spiritual directors about what I had gone through. They were both very learned men and good servants of God. Another person I knew had resolved to serve God with all his heart. He devoted several days to prayer, and His Majesty granted him some favors during this time. But this man was struggling with various temptations, and he gave up prayer and followed his dangerous inclinations instead. This broke my heart. He was a man I loved very much, and I owed him a great deal. I think I begged God for an entire month to bring this soul back to himself. One day, while I was at prayer, I saw a demon beside me. In a wild frenzy, it was tearing up some papers it had in its hands. It comforted me to see this, because it seemed to me that what I had been asking for had come true, and the spirit of evil was frustrated. And so it was. Afterward, I heard that this person had confessed with a contrite heart. He returned to God with such sincerity that I trust he will continue to make tremendous spiritual progress for the rest of his life. May God be forever blessed. Amen. The Lord has often answered my prayers on behalf of other souls. When I ask him, he draws them away from serious transgressions and leads them on the way of perfection. God has granted me innumerable favors by rescuing souls from the purification stage and releasing them to paradise. He has granted me so many other blessings of this kind that it would exhaust me and bore my reader for me to recount them all. Most of what he has done for me pertains to the health of souls rather than the health of bodies. There have been many witnesses to these favors, so they are widely known. Initially, I had some misgivings about all this because I couldn't help believing that I'd had something to do with these amazing cures. Of course, I never lost sight of the most important fact, that God was doing this purely out of His own goodness. But there have been so many instances of people radically transforming after I have interceded on their behalf, that it no longer bothers me to consider my part in it. Instead, I praise His Majesty even more and see how completely I am indebted to Him. These intercessions only quicken my love for Him and increase my desire to serve Him. You know what's amazing? When I want something that turns out to be contrary to the Lord's will, I find myself unable to ask Him for it, no matter how hard I try to force myself. The thing I want to pray for may seem worthy, but if it's not the Lord's desire, I am incapable of summoning the energy, enthusiasm, and concern to petition God. Yet, I find it effortless to pray for the things His Majesty is going to do. Those prayers arise often and with great insistence. Even when I'm not intentionally pondering such cases, they pop into my mind. There is a vast difference between these two types of supplication. I don't really know how to explain it. When a certain outcome is not the Lord's will, I keep trying to force myself to beseech Him about a matter that may be very close to my heart, but I don't feel the fervor I feel about those other petitions. 
I am like a person who is tongue-tied. He wants to speak, but nothing comes out. Or if he succeeds in making any sound at all, no one can understand what he's saying. When the impetus of my prayer conforms with God's will, I feel like a person whose speech flows eloquently and passionately to someone who is eagerly listening to what she has to say. In the first case, I approach the Lord as we do when we practice vocal prayer, with the effort of intention. In the other, I reach out to Him from a state of sublime contemplation, in which I am nothing but a passive channel. That's when we experience His Majesty revealing Himself. He assures us that He hears us, that He is happy we have asked this of Him, and is glad to grant the favor. May He be forever blessed. He gives so much, and we give so little in return. What are we to do, my beloved, if we are not willing to undo everything for you? I stumble and I blunder and I fail. I could repeat this a thousand times. I endlessly fall short of giving it all up for you. My failure to live in harmony with what you have given me makes me want to die. But there are other reasons to keep living. I see so many imperfections in myself. There are so many ways in which I neglect to serve you. Sometimes I wish I could be totally unconscious so that I wouldn't have to face so much that is bad in me. May the one who is able remedy my plight. While I was staying in Doña Luisa's house, I had to be careful about everything I did and maintain constant vigilance about the many vain details such a lifestyle entails. The people there had such esteem for me that they were always praising me and offering me things. If I had been looking out for my own gratification, I could easily have become attached to these extravagances. But the one who sees everything in its true light was looking out for me. He did not let me out of his hand. Now that I mention true vision, recall the great difficulties people face once God has brought them knowledge of the truth. When we deal with the things of the world, so much seems to be covered up. The Lord explained all this to me once. Actually, many of the things I say here do not come from my own head. The Heavenly Master dictates them to me, and I simply write them down. In the places where I explicitly say, I was made to understand, or the Lord said to me, I am exceedingly careful not to add or subtract a single syllable. When I do not remember everything exactly, I claim it as my own thought. Some things actually do come only from me, but I don't attribute anything positive to myself. I already know that there is nothing good in me except what the Lord has put there without my deserving it. When I talk about something coming from me, I mean that it was not given to me in a revelation. But why is it, my beloved, that even in spiritual matters we try to understand things our own way? We approach them as if they were just like the things of this world, and then we come up with a distorted opinion of the truth. For instance, we think we should measure our spiritual progress by how many years we've been practicing silent prayer. In this way, we are trying to put a limit on the one who gives his gifts without any limit. He gives whenever he desires to give. He can give more to one soul in half a year than he gives to another in half a lifetime. 
I have seen this happen so many times to so many different souls that I'm amazed it's even an issue for anybody. I strongly believe that anyone with the gift of spiritual discernment will not be deceived in this matter, especially if the Lord has given him humility. A humble person will judge other souls by the fruits he sees in them. He will pay attention to the effects of a soul's prayer and the love he sees in her heart. He will understand that the Lord gives him the light to recognize these things. God does not care how old we are. He considers only the progress of our souls. That's why one person can gain more in six months than another can in twenty years. The Lord gives what He wants to whom He pleases. He is also more likely to give to those who are ready to receive, regardless of how many years they have been practicing. I see the young girls entering this house already filled with light. God has touched them and set their hearts on fire with love. They do not sit around waiting for Him. They do not tolerate any obstacles in their path to Him. They barely remember to eat. For love of Him, they shut themselves away forever in a house that has no money, as if they didn't care one bit about their own lives. They give up everything. They don't even want their own will. The thought of being discontent with a cloistered life and austerities would never cross their minds. They offer themselves up whole as a sacrifice to God. I have no hesitation in admitting their advantage over me. They inspire me to enter God's presence with the utmost modesty. What His Majesty did not succeed in granting me over the course of the many years I practiced prayer, He has given them in three months or three days. With all the favors He has granted me over all this time, I have not accomplished a fraction of what these girls have achieved with far less help from Him. But He rewards them generously and they have no reason to regret what they have done for Him. To those of us who have been practicing prayer for many years, let me offer a reminder. Let's not bother those who have made tremendous progress in a short time. Let's not force them to turn around and walk at our pace. Why would I want to make those who fly like eagles on the wings God has given them move instead like fettered chickens? Let us keep our own eyes fixed on God. If these souls are humble, we should not hesitate to hand over the reins. The Lord who grants them these favors will not let them plunge over the precipice. These young women trust in God, and the truth they know through faith serves them well. We must trust them too and not try to measure them by our own meager standards. If we do not achieve the wonderful results and excellent resolutions they experience, let us not condemn them, but rather humble ourselves. It takes experience to understand these things. By abstinently looking out for their spiritual growth, we impede our own. Through them, God has given us an opportunity for humility and self-knowledge. He helps us to see how much more detached these souls are and how much closer to Him. Why else would His Majesty draw them so near? I do not mean to suggest anything other than this. I appreciate a prayer practiced for a short time, if it produces dramatic results, for it takes a powerful love to give up everything for God. 
A prayer of this intensity is far superior to a prayer practiced over many years that never gives rise to the determination to do whatever it takes to get to God. Sometimes a long life of prayer only yields small acts of love, like grains of salt. They bear no weight. A sparrow can carry them in its beak. We can hardly consider such lukewarm resolutions to be genuine spiritual fruits. What a pity we pay attention to any of the things we do for God, even if there are many. That's how I am. I forget God's blessings with every step. I'm not saying that His Majesty, who is infinitely good, does not highly value the lowest action we dedicate to Him. Of course He does. But I don't want to pay any attention to my own deeds and make a big deal out of small sacrifices. They are nothing. Excuse me, my lord. Please don't blame me for seeking minor solace in the things I do. I am well aware that I'm not really serving you. If I served you in great ways, I wouldn't have to latch on to these trifles. Blessed are those who serve you with truly noble deeds. If envying those people and wanting to emulate them could carry me closer to you, I would be almost there by now. But I am worthless, my lord. Please, since you love me so much, share some of your worth with me so that what I do for you has value. After we had received the documents from Rome granting us permission to found the new monastery without secure revenue, I started thinking about all I had been through to accomplish this goal. I was glad the matter was resolved and grateful that the Lord had seen fit to make some use of me through these trials. I thought about all the different deeds I had done and noticed that in each of the things I considered worthy, there were faults and imperfections. Sometimes I lacked courage. Often I lacked faith. Now that I see everything the Lord promised me fulfilled in this house, I recognize that I never fully believed that what the Lord had told me would come true. Yet I could never really doubt that it would either. I can't explain it. Sometimes I thought it was impossible that it would happen. Other times I thought it was impossible that it wouldn't. Finally, I sorted it out. The Lord was responsible for the positive parts and I for the negative. At that point, I stopped thinking about it. I couldn't bear to recall all my faults and stumble over so many imperfections. May the one who desires to draw good out of everything be blessed. Amen. As I say, I think it is dangerous to keep track of how many years we've been practicing prayer. Even if we are very humble, it's easy for a sense of entitlement to creep in. We start to think we deserve compensation for this service. I don't mean that we don't gain merit from our practice or that the prayer will not bear fruit. But I am sure that any spiritual seeker who thinks he is entitled to certain delights of the Spirit in exchange for all the years he has spent on the path will not ascend to the summit of perfection. Isn't it enough that God has taken him by the hand and guided him away from falling into the kind of error in which he may have engaged before he started practicing prayer? Now he wants to sue God for damages. This doesn't look like profound humility to me. Maybe it is, but I consider it sheer audacity. I don't even think I, who am not very humble, 
would dare to behave like this? It may be that I have never asked for a reward because I have never really served him. Perhaps if I had, I would want more than anyone for the Lord to give me my money's worth. I don't know. I'm not saying that if a soul has been humble, she will not grow. God will match the plentitude of her prayer. But I am saying that she should forget about her years of service. Everything we do amounts to nothing in comparison to a single drop of the blood Christ shed for us. What are we asking for anyway? The more we serve him, the deeper in his debt we are. If we pay one penny toward this amount, he gives us a thousand dollars in return. For the love of God, let's light these accounts on fire. They are his to judge, not ours. These comparisons fall short even in worldly matters. How much less adequate they are when we are speaking of things only God understands. His majesty demonstrated this perfectly when he gave as much to those who came last as he gave to those who came first. You know, I have so little time to write that I've had to walk away from the last three pages and return to them many times over the course of the last three days. I keep forgetting what I was trying to say. Oh yes, the vision. Well, I saw myself in prayer, standing alone in a field. Many different kinds of people surrounded me. I think they all had weapons in their hands and intended to harm me. Some held spears, some daggers, some swords. Others brandished long rapiers. I had no escape route. Any direction I turned would have led me straight into the arms of death. I was alone. There was no one to defend me. My spirit was gravely afflicted. I didn't know what to do. Then I lifted my eyes to heaven and saw Christ. He was not actually in heaven, but high above me in the air. He was holding out his hand to me and encouraging me. I felt totally protected and knew that I had nothing to fear. Those people couldn't hurt me even if they tried. This vision may not make much sense when considered by itself, but it turned out to be of great benefit to me. Shortly afterward, I was given an understanding of what it meant. I found myself under attack from every side, and I knew that the vision had been a picture of the world. It seems as though everything in the world bears arms to inflict injury on the poor soul. I'm not talking about ordinary things that ensnare us, such as honor and property and earthly delights. It seems those things are designed to trip us up when we least expect it. No, I'm referring to friends, relatives, and, most surprising of all, some very good people. These very good people oppressed me so much, I didn't know how to defend myself or what to do. Oh God, help me. If I were to tell you about all the trials I suffered during that time and add them to those I have already described, it would be a graphic lesson about rejecting all worldly things. This was my greatest persecution so far. Sometimes I found myself beset on every side, and the only relief I could find was to raise my eyes to heaven and call out to God. I also thought about my vision. This helped me a lot. I remembered not to put my trust in any human being, but to turn always to God, 
who is the only reliable help. His Majesty always sent me one of his representatives to lend me a hand when things were most difficult. It was generally someone who had succeeded in detaching himself from the world, whose only goal was to serve God. This helped me sustain the small flower of virtue I had and to cultivate my own desire to do everything for God. May you be forever blessed, my Lord. One day, I was feeling very distressed. I couldn't seem to recollect myself in prayer. I was at war with my own thoughts, which kept galloping after imperfect things. My customary detachment failed me completely. I started thinking that since I was so wretched, maybe the favors the Lord had granted me had been delusions. A deep darkness fell on my soul. In the midst of this anxiety, the Lord spoke to me. Do not be troubled, he said. Learn from this. Where would you be if it were not for my grace? There is no security as long as we live in the flesh. He helped me understand that strife is valuable because it generates merit. He seemed to have great compassion for those who live in this world. Do not think I have forgotten you, he soothed me. I will never forsake you. With tender mercy, the Lord told me I must do the best I could. And then he said other things that showed me his divine favor, but there's no reason to recount them here. His majesty often expresses his love for me. Now you are mine and I am yours, he says. What do I care about myself, I say. All I care about is you. This is my customary response, and I believe it is genuine. His words embarrass me. Because of what I am, it demands more courage for me to receive these gifts than to undergo the most severe worldly trials. When I experience His grace, it makes me forget any good deed I have ever done. All I can remember is where I have missed the mark. This has nothing to do with a discursive mind. It seems like a supernatural phenomenon. Sometimes, I am overcome by an urgent longing to receive communion. I cannot exaggerate its intensity. This happened to me one morning when it was raining so hard that it seemed impossible to leave the house. But once I stepped outside, I was already so transported with the desire for communion that if it had been spears battering my chest instead of raindrops, I would have pushed through them. When I arrived at the church, a powerful rapture came over me. It seemed to me that I saw the gates of heaven thrown wide open. This time, it was not only the entrance I saw, but deep into heaven itself. I was shown a throne, and I could tell there was another one above it. Without actually seeing it, I understood with ineffable knowledge that the Divine Himself sat on this upper throne. It seemed that there were some animals supporting the throne. I think I have heard a description of these creatures. Maybe they are the evangelist mentioned in Apocalypse. But I couldn't see what the throne was like or who was seated on it. All I could see was a multitude of angels. They looked even more beautiful than the ones I had seen in heaven before. Their glory varied a great deal. And I wondered if there were different orders of being 
such as cherubim and seraphim. They seem to be on fire. I cannot express in writing the glory I experienced in myself then. It cannot be put into words. Anyone who has not experienced it will not be able to imagine what it was like. I recognized that everything we could ever desire was present together there. Yet, I didn't see anything. Then someone, I don't know who, said, All you can do is understand that you can understand nothing. The voice urged me to reflect more deeply. Compared to that glory, it said, Nothing else is anything at all. This made me ashamed later. How could we ever be sidetracked by any created thing, let alone become attached to it? The whole world looked like a mere anthill to me. Well, I attended Mass and received communion that day, but I'm not sure how I did it. I thought that the glorious rapture had passed swiftly, so I was amazed when the clock struck and I found that two hours had gone by. This fire, I realized, comes from above. It is God's true love. No matter how much I may want it and seek it and strive for it, I cannot obtain a single spark of it unless it is God's will. It's amazing. When we are united with this fire, it annihilates the old self with all her cravings and faults, her insipid misery. We are like the phoenix, which is completely burned and then rises again from those same ashes. And so the soul, once she is consumed by the fire of love, becomes something altogether different. She has new desires and tremendous fortitude. She is not what she was before, and she follows the way of the Lord with new purity. I prayed to God that this would be so with me. I asked to serve Him in a fresh new way. Then He spoke to me. You have come up with a good metaphor, He said. Make sure you never forget to strive for improvement. One time, when I was struggling with the same doubts about the veracity of my visions, the Lord appeared to me. Oh, children of men, he said in a stern voice, how long will you be hard-hearted? He said I needed to look inside myself. Are you totally surrendered to me, he asked. If you are, then believe this, I will not let you go astray. His reprimand troubled me deeply. But then he came back and spoke to me in the most tender and soothing voice. Do not worry, he said. I already know that you are completely devoted to my service. Everything you desire shall be done. Notice how your love for me is growing inside you every day. This is evidence that your experiences do not come from the spirit of evil. Do you think God would allow the spirit of evil to have power over one of his beloved servants? Do you think the spirit of evil could give you the clarity and quietude you've been experiencing or the depth of understanding? He helped me see that because so many people of such high caliber were assuring me that my visions were from God, it would be wrong of me to doubt them. One day, while I was reciting the Athanasian Creed, I suddenly understood something I had never really understood before. I clearly saw how there was only one God and three divine persons. I was amazed and consoled by this realization. 
it enhanced my awareness of God's extraordinary grandeurs and marvelous mysteries. Now, when I think or speak about the Holy Trinity, I believe I understand how such a thing is possible, and this makes me very happy. On the feast day of the Assumption of Our Lady, Queen of Angels, the Lord desired to grant me another favor. In a rapture, He showed me the Blessed Mother's ascent to heaven. I witnessed the joy and dignity with which she was received there, and I saw the place where she resides now. I cannot begin to explain how this happened. Simply beholding such glory filled my soul with glory. The effects were magnificent. I was left with a deeper desire than ever to withstand difficult trials. Seeing how worthy Our Lady is, I longed to serve her. Then there was the time I was at the Jesuit College of St. Helis. As I watched the brothers there receiving communion, I saw a canopy over their heads. It was very ornate and beautiful. I saw this twice. But when other people were receiving communion, I did not see it. Chapter 40 Soul on Fire once when I was in prayer, I felt such profound interior delight that I couldn't help but wonder if I was worthy of such grace. I suspected what I really deserved was that place I had seen reserved for me in hell. I never forgot the situation in which I had found myself in that vision. As I reflected on this more deeply, my soul gradually caught fire. I don't know how to describe the spiritual rapture that came over me then. It seemed to me that I plunged directly into the majesty that before I had only understood intellectually, and it filled me completely. Within this majesty, I was given full realization of a truth that fulfills all truths. I don't know how to explain this. I didn't see anything or anyone, yet I clearly understood that truth itself was speaking to me. This is no small thing I am doing for you, it said. You owe me a great deal in exchange. All the harm that comes to the world is the result of not knowing the truths exemplified so clearly in the sacred scriptures. Not one iota of this truth shall ever fail us. It seems to me that I had always believed this, that all faithful people believed this. Ah, daughter, truth said to me then, how few there are who truly love me. I do not conceal my secrets from my lovers. Do you know what it is to love me truly? It is to know that everything displeasing to me is a lie. By the fruits this knowledge bears in your soul, you will come to understand what you do not yet understand. And I have come to understand this. Praise the Lord. Ever since then, anything that is not directed to the glory of God seems empty and false to me. I don't know how to explain how I know this or how to describe the benefits this knowledge brings to my life. Nor can I express the depth of grief I feel when I observe people in the dark about this truth. During that rapture, the Lord spoke one particular word to me that blessed me immeasurably. I don't know how this happened. I didn't see anything, 
but it left me with an indescribable sense of good fortune. I felt fortified with a powerful strength to carry out even the smallest teachings of Holy Scripture in my life. It seemed to me that there was not an obstacle that could cross my path that I would not overcome. The divine truth that revealed itself to me that day mysteriously engraved itself on my heart. It left me with a new reverence for the power and majesty of God. I cannot begin to describe the nature of this knowledge, but it is exceedingly high. After that, I had an intense desire to speak only true things that transcend what we generally deal with here on earth. I began to feel the pain of living in the world, but was also filled with a feeling of great tenderness, consolation, and humility. Without my understanding how it happened, I think the Lord gave me many gifts with this one favor. I didn't feel any suspicion that it was a delusion. Even though I didn't see anything, I understood that it is a great blessing to learn to ignore anything that doesn't bring us closer to God. Thus, I came to know what it is for a soul to walk in truth with truth itself. I understood that God gave me this knowledge. Of all the things I have come to know, some were revealed through spiritual voices and others were not. I comprehended some things more clearly without words. I understood extraordinary truths about this truth. My understanding was greater than if many learned men had tried to teach me. I don't think they could ever have succeeded in impressing this knowledge upon my soul or helping me see the vast emptiness of this world. This truth that was taught to me is truth itself. It has no beginning and it has no end. All other truths depend on this truth, just as all other loves issue forth from this love and all greatness is born of this greatness. This statement sounds obscure compared to the penetrating clarity God gave me. How mighty is the power of the Lord who leaves such bountiful growth and marvelous gifts imprinted on my soul in such a short span of time. Oh, my great majesty, what are you doing, my all-powerful beloved? Look at the one on whom you are bestowing such exalted blessings. Don't you remember that this one has been an abyss of lies and a sea of vanities? And it's all my own fault. You endowed me with a natural aversion to lying, Yet I have allowed myself to get caught up in a thousand lies. How do you bear it, my God? How can you continue to shower your loving mercy on someone so ill-equipped to receive your grace? Once, while I was reciting the hours with all the other sisters, my soul suddenly became recollected. It appeared to me like a highly polished mirror. There was not a single part of the surface, on the top or the bottom or the sides, that was not totally clear. I saw the image of Christ our Lord in the center. I seemed to see him in every part of my soul as clearly and distinctly as I saw him in the mirror. I don't know how to explain this. This mirror conformed entirely to the shape of my Lord through a loving transmission I cannot possibly describe. Every time I remember this vision, I notice its benefits especially after I have received communion. 
it gave me a graphic understanding of what it is for a soul to be in grave error. In such a state, the mirror of the soul becomes shrouded in a dark mist, so that we cannot see the Lord, even though He is always with us and is the one who gives us our being. I also understood that unbelievers do more harm than simply darkening the mirror. They shatter it. I cannot adequately describe what I experienced. Seeing it is very different than talking about it, but this vision was very beneficial to me. It also brought me pain to realize the times when I had allowed the mirror of my soul to become so clouded that I could no longer see my Lord there. I think this vision is especially advantageous to committed practitioners of prayer who know what it is to be recollected. It teaches them that the Lord resides very deep inside their own souls. This notion is much more attractive and fruitful than the idea that God is outside us. Some books on prayer tell us where to seek this God. The glorious St. Augustine speaks especially well about this. He could not find God in the marketplace, or in pleasures, or in any other place he searched for him, until he sought inside himself. Absolutely the best place to look for God is inside ourselves. We don't need to ascend to heaven or reach any further than our own beings. Trying to go beyond our own center only wears the soul out and distracts her. Such efforts do not bear fruit. Here's something I'd like to address, in case this experience happens to you. Sometimes, when the soul has been in deep rapture and the faculties have been totally absorbed, the soul emerges from union and yet remains recollected. She has trouble returning her awareness to external things. The two faculties, memory and intellect, are in a state of frenetic confusion. This happens especially in the beginning. I think this is because our natural weakness cannot bear such spiritual force. It drains our imagination. I know that some people suffer from this more than others. I would recommend that these people stop praying and allow themselves to recover. They can go back and pick up their practice again later when they have reintegrated. If they push through, they could do some serious damage to themselves. I have personal experience in this matter. I know how wise it is to take your health and disposition into consideration. Nevertheless, personal experience and a spiritual guide are indispensable. Once a soul has gotten this far, she will have many important things to talk about. If you look for a guide and don't find one, the Lord will not let you down. In spite of what I am, He has never let me down. I admit that there are not many people who have arrived at these places themselves. If they have not experienced these things, they have no remedy to offer a soul that has. Lacking direct knowledge, such a guide will only disturb and distress the soul. But the Lord will take this into account as well. It's best to talk things over with your confessor. This is especially true for women. The confessor needs to be well qualified. I can't remember if I've said all this before. I think so. I'm saying it now because I believe it is very important. The Lord grants these favors to many more women than men.
the saintly Pedro de Alcantara always said this, and I have confirmed it with my own observations. He used to say that women make much more progress along the path than men do. There's no reason to mention all the excellent reasons he gave for why this is so. Suffice it to say that all his opinions favored women. Once I was shown a brief glimpse of how all things are seen in God and how he holds them all inside himself. Although I perceived this with distinct clarity, I did not see any forms, and the moment passed quickly. I have no idea how to express this in writing, but it impressed itself deeply into my soul. It is one of the great favors God has granted me, but it also confuses me and makes me feel guilty in light of all my transgressions. If only it had been the Lord's will to show this to me earlier and to show it to others who had forsaken him, I don't think any of us would have had the heart to offend him. Even though I'm calling this a vision, I have to repeat that I didn't actually see anything. Something must have been there since I am able to come up with language to describe it. Yet the vision is so subtle and delicate that the intellect cannot grasp it. Visions that are not imaginative are almost impossible to convey. There must be some element of imagery present in them. But since the faculties are transported, they can't recreate a picture afterward of what the Lord revealed to them or how He wants them to rejoice in Him. Still, I will try an analogy. Let's say the divine is like a clear diamond, more vast than the whole world, or else a mirror, so sublime that its purity cannot be exaggerated. We could say that everything we do is visible in this jewel, since it was fashioned to contain all things within itself. Nothing transcends its greatness. It was frightening for me to see so many things joined together in such a short time within this gem, and it made me sad to have seen such ugly things as my mistakes reflected in that pure brilliance. Whenever I recall this, I don't know how to bear it. It leaves me with such a pervasive sense of shame that I don't know where to hide. Oh, who could explain this to those who commit the ugliest sins? If only such souls could realize that dishonorable deeds cannot be concealed from God. Of course His Majesty is aware of everything. It all takes place in the middle of His being. How can we act so disrespectfully in front of Him? I saw how we deserve punishment for a single grave error. Yet we just don't seem to understand how dreadfully serious it is to commit this error in the presence of such awesome majesty. Can't we see how far this behavior is from the nature of God? This awareness only increases my perception of His mercy. Even when we understand all this and behave badly anyway, He keeps loving us. If something like this terrifies the soul, then what will the day of judgment be like, I have wondered, when this same majesty will clearly reveal himself to us and we will see everything we have done reflected there? Oh God, help me! I have walked in such blindness! I have often been appalled by what I have written in this account. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. Yet you must wonder how I keep living after having seen these things inside myself. May he be forever blessed who has put up with so much from me. Once, 
when I was in an especially deep state of recollection and prayer, filled with peaceful delight, it seemed to me that angels surrounded me. I felt very close to God. I began to pray for the church. Then His Majesty revealed to me that one of the religious orders would do a great deal of good in the future and that its members would uphold the faith with great fortitude. On another day, while I was praying near the Blessed Sacrament, a saint appeared to me. His order had been experiencing a gradual decline. He held a big book in his hands. Then he opened it. Read this, he commanded. The letters were large and completely legible. In times to come, they said, this order will flourish. It will have many martyrs. And then one day, while I was at Matins in the choir, I saw six or seven members of that same order. They were holding swords in their hands. I think this meant they would be defending the faith, because I saw something similar on another occasion when I was praying. It seemed as if I were carried to a large field where a huge battle was taking place. Those belonging to that order were fighting with tremendous energy. Their faces were radiant, as if they were on fire. They conquered many foes. They either threw them to the ground or killed them. It seemed to me that this was a battle against the unbelievers. I have seen the same glorious saint several times, and he's told me a few things. He thanked me for praying for his people and promised to commend me to the Lord. I'm not going to name this order. If it were the Lord's will for their identity to be known, He would reveal it. As it is, I don't want anyone to feel offended. Each order should strive for the well-being of the whole. Actually, every member of each group must work to be an instrument of the prosperity of His order. He ought to concentrate on being of service during a time when the Church desperately needs all our help. Lives sacrificed for such a cause are truly blessed. A certain inquisitor once asked me to beg God to give him a sign by which he could decide whether or not to accept his nomination for bishop. He wanted to know if to do so would serve God. After I received communion, the Lord spoke to me. When he understands in complete clarity and truthfulness that real lordship is about possessing nothing, he said, then he will be ready to accept it. With these words, he was teaching that anyone who assumes a position of great power must be far from wanting it. At least he should not strive for it. The Lord continues to grant many blessings to this sinner. It doesn't seem necessary to go into all of them here. I think what I've said is enough to convey something about my soul and the spirit the Lord has given me. May he who has taken such good care of me be forever blessed. Amen. Once, the Lord was comforting me in the most loving way. Don't worry, he said. Nothing stays the same in this ever-changing stream of life. Sometimes the soul will be passionate, other times dull. Sometimes she will be disturbed and other times serene. She will suffer various temptations. But if she trusts in me, she never needs to be afraid. I was wondering one day, if the joy I derived from my relationships with my spiritual guides represented a dangerous lack of detachment. I loved being with these men. I found it deeply satisfying to discuss my soul with such great servants of God. Then the Lord spoke to me. 
If a man who has been close to death attributed his recovery to a doctor, it would not be a virtue for him to withhold his gratitude and love from that doctor. And so it is with you. If it hadn't been for these people in whom you have confided, what would you have done? Conversation with good people can never be wrong. If you consider well whatever you say and always speak with integrity, you have no reason to avoid their company. Not only are such conversations not harmful, they are beneficial. This was very comforting to me. I had been worrying that because conversing with these men gave me such pleasure, it must be an attachment. This made me not want to talk to them at all. The Lord has always given me specific advice. He has told me how to deal with certain people who are weak and with others who have different problems. He never ceases to take care of me. But sometimes I am distressed about not serving Him enough. It bothers me that I still have to spend more time than I would like to tend my wretched body. I was praying before bedtime one night. I was in a great deal of pain, and my customary nausea washed over me. I saw that I was caught by my body while my spirit was longing for more time in prayer. This dichotomy upset me so much that I started to cry. This was not the only time such a thing had happened. It makes me so angry that I end up hating myself. It isn't usual for me to harbor antipathy toward myself. I can usually see what I need to do and do it. May it be God's will that I never care for myself more than I should. Sometimes I'm afraid that I do. That night, the Lord appeared to me and offered me solace. Endured these things for love of me, he said. Your life is necessary to me. After this, I don't think I ever felt afflicted again. I am determined to serve my Lord and my comfort with all my strength. Even though he has allowed me to suffer a little, he has consoled me so fully that it is nothing to endure a few trials for him. In fact, it no longer seems that there is any reason for living except to give myself to him in any and every way. I enthusiastically beg God to bring on whatever trials he sees fit. Sometimes I say to him with all sincerity, Lord, all I ask for myself is either to die or to suffer. Every time I hear the clock strike, I am relieved, because I know I am one hour closer to the end of my life and drawing that much nearer to seeing God. At other times, I feel nothing. I don't want to keep living, but I don't actively want to die. Everything seems tepid and dark and difficult. Even though the Lord warned me years ago that He was going to publicize the favors He gives me, this has caused me tremendous suffering since everyone interprets what He hears about me in His own way. The only thing that has consoled me is the knowledge that it's not my fault that these things have become widely known. I was extremely careful not to tell anyone but my confessors or people to whom my confessors referred me who understood these experiences. I wish I could claim that it was humility that moved me to avoid talking to my spiritual directors about the divine favors. It simply pained me to disclose them. Now, glory be to God, people's opinions of me do not bother me very much. I realize that the Lord has used me as an example to many souls.
It's true that people still criticize me vehemently. Some men are afraid to hear my confession. Others make up all kinds of stories about me. Maybe the Lord has placed me in this little cloistered corner of the world to protect me from the consequences stemming from public knowledge of these favors. I assumed that once I became enclosed here, it would be as if I were dead and they would forget about me. But no, things have not turned out quite the way I hoped they would. I am still compelled to talk with certain people, but because I am rarely seen, it seems the Lord has given me some refuge. We'll see. Here at St. Joseph's, I dwell among a few holy companions removed from the world. I observe everything as if from above, and what people say or think about me doesn't trouble me much. Besides, I would be happy if even one soul could benefit from the things being said about me. Since I have been living in this house, all my desires converge on this desire. Look at how much the Lord himself is willing to suffer for the sake of a single soul. God has given me a life that is a kind of waking sleep. I almost always feel like I am dreaming now. Everything I perceive seems to be at a distance. I am aware of neither happiness nor sadness in myself, or if I do feel either of these emotions in any given instance, no matter how intensely, it passes swiftly. I am amazed by how ephemeral these experiences are, and they always leave me feeling like it's all a dream. This is really true. After the experience passes, I may wish to rejoice in the pleasure or linger in the pain, but I am incapable of doing so. It's like a level-headed person who finds it impossible to delight or grieve over a dream from which he has just awakened. The Lord has now awakened my soul from the things that used to cause me such feelings before I was sufficiently mortified and dead to the things of the world. His Majesty does not want me to become blind again. This is the way I live now. Please beg God either to take me home to Him or else show me how to serve Him. May it please His Majesty that what I have written here be of some benefit to you. It certainly wasn't easy to accomplish since I have so little time. But the difficulty will prove well worth it if it moves even one soul to praise God more. Then, even if you burn it afterward, I would feel compensated. But please, I don't want you to destroy this document until you have shown it to the three other men to whom I've addressed it. They have been my confessors and need to have a look at it. If I have done a bad job in recounting the story of my life, then they can give up their high opinion of me once and for all, which would be a good thing. If I have said anything well, these are good and learned men, and I know they will praise God for it, because they will understand that it came from Him through me. May His Majesty always keep you in His hands. May He make you a great saint. May the light of your spirit illumine this miserable woman who lacks humility and has been so bold as to take on the task of trying to put such sublime things into words. And may it please the Lord that I have not made a mistake in writing this. It has been my wish and my intention all along to obey my superiors and be accurate. I have always hoped that through me, God would receive some praise. This is what I have begged him for, for many years. 
Since I have not offered him this praise with my own actions, I have dared to offer this account of a dissipated life as an example of his great mercy. I have only spent as much time composing this as was absolutely necessary to document what has happened to me as clearly and truthfully as I was able. The Lord is all-powerful and can hear me if he wants. Hear me, Lord. May it be your will that I succeed in doing your will in every way. Do not allow this soul to be lost, Your Majesty. You have employed so much ingenuity in so many different circumstances to save my soul over and over. You have pulled me back from the abyss and brought me home to you. Amen. Epilogue The Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. In light of what I have revealed here, I don't think it would be wrong of me to ask you to pray for me. Think of what I have gone through to write about myself here and recall all my miseries. Although the truth is, it was far more difficult to recount the favors His Majesty has granted me than to admit my offenses against Him. I did what you commanded and expanded on some of the original material. This was based expressly on your promise that you would tear up whatever seems wrong to you. After I had finished writing the account, you sent for it before I had a chance to read it over. So there could be some things I have not explained sufficiently, and also places where I've repeated myself. I wish I had been able to review what I wrote. I am asking you now to correct this document and find someone to transcribe it before you share it with anyone else. Otherwise, my handwriting might be recognized and give me away. I desperately want to know what you and Father Juan Avila think of this. If it is your opinion that I am walking a good path, I will be very much consoled. For then, I will have done everything it is in my power to do. Handle this any way you think best, of course. But please remember your responsibility to a woman who has entrusted you with her soul. I will pray to our Lord for your soul as long as I live. Just do me this favor. Hurry and serve God. You will learn from what I've written here that we are best occupied when we give ourselves over entirely to the one who gives himself immeasurably to us. I see that you have already begun to do this. May God be forever blessed. I hope in his mercy that you and I will see one another in that place where we will know everything with perfect clarity. There we will behold all the great things he has done for us and praise him forever and ever. Amen.